Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. <laughs> It's the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast with Jack Encarnacio and J.P. Sorrow. It's still real to me, damn it! The Lapsed Fan. In all my years in professional wrestling, I've never seen anything like it! Oh my God! Well, it's the last fam man, number one in the ring. Forget about the startle, we the real king of swing. When the bell goes ding, you can kick like me. Thrown in the corner with a splash like sting. Even Jerry King can take off the crown. Nodding his head like it's D-Low Brown. We can get low down, but we go even higher. Flip you on your head, but you're no cool driver. You be spitting more knowledge, dragon spits fire. Give you more shock than when Edge retires. Dropping more truth than the kind of sniper. Bless you with a coconut, Body Piper, Jack and JP, be like JYD, drop the cupcakes and gluten, the brain by beans, the best podcast from start to close. If y'all benefit, it's a five-second pose. Well, boss, the, uh, the turkey's in the digestive phase. The cast turns its attention to the most wonderful time of year. And, uh, you know, what better stocking stuffer than an edition of a Coliseum home video from the World Wrestling Federation. Well, I mean, it's 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 the best time of year, so why not go with the best of the WWE? The best of the WWF Volume 2 here on the Coliseum Collection as the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast gets back on the rails and charges full steam for that anal cavity. And uh, I, 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 This is just a... I don't even know what to fucking say about this tape. Are you trying to say it's not the best of the World Wrestling Federation? I'm saying it's the dullest of wow. World Wrestling Entertainment. Well, we've done Best of WWF Volume 1. Of course, that predated the Coliseum Collection journey, but it is available in the archives. That had yeah. Hogan Andre versus uh, Murdoch Adonis and Stud. That right. had Mula versus Richter. Uh, that had Piper versus Snuka. That had Hogan and Gene Okerlund in tag yeah. team action against George and Steele and Mr. Fuji. And, of course, the, um, the San Martino versus Larry Zabisco epic program. So they, you know... When they came to the best of the WWF series in that first edition, they dug into the archives and they found things that were, were truly historically significant. Yeah. No shortage of title changes on this tape number two. Um, that is true. I mean, there is some significant stuff, but, you know, outside of that that um, that, that Tito-Orndorff match, there's, there's there's not much here. Not much here. It's, it's really... I mean, it's also... It's fascinating... Don't get me wrong, because it definitely co- covers such, you know, a, a many decades of of time. But it's just, I mean, for a tape about the best of, this is the best you could do? It's so strange how they go best of, they go tag title changes, IC title change. Okay, you know, I kind of get what they're doing here. They consider best of as historic, you know, even if the matches mm-hmm. weren't particularly great. And then they suddenly hit you with two Sky Lolo matches and yes. they hit you with a completely immaterial Jay Strongbow Toro Tanaka match from 1977 <laughs> and you start to lose faith in their uh, curation abilities yes and then of course the main event is Rick Martell and Tony Gurria versus Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saeed and I, I'm, I'm always a fan of seeing Mr. Saido oh yeah don't get me wrong but I mean well that is that is a tag title change but is it that's your main event 
Yeah. Also, with heels winning in the end, that's how you want to send the crowd home. Yeah, that that's true. I, I don't think such things occurred to them when they were putting these videos together I mean, in the early going. Obviously, I mean they didn't even to the end. Like right. we've always talked about how these 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 tapes are just thrown together. There's no sense of rhythm. There's no sense of of actually building something, which you could do because you can actually do whatever you want with them. You know, you can actually, you know, uh, 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 just create, you know, if you will, a a like a great pay-per-view of sorts and have it build to a great main event. But this is yeah, it's just fucking weird. Yeah, and we'll have uh, actually a bit of a glimpse, more than we've had thus far in the Coliseum collection, into sort of the mindset that went into putting these tapes together. Not to the hyper-specific, you know, did you think of a main event? How did you pick the matches? But yeah. I was able to find um, that the uh, two-man power trip of wrestling podcast had interviewed um, one of the gentlemen who's listed in the credits on these early Coliseum videos and on most of really? them. Steve Hecht, who was listed as a writer-producer and who I hadn't realized until just recently um, had done an interview. So we'll jump to that just to kind of cover the high points. This probably honestly belonged on the first installment of the Coliseum Collection. However, um, no time like the present. And as it turns out, he says a couple of things that actually make it sensible to introduce his perspective at this point in the Coliseum Collection, particularly with the Roddy Piper tribute tape coming up. But um, Sure, sure. This is a bit of a glimpse, I guess you could say, into how we, we ended up where we are at this point um, in launching the Coliseum Home Video line with the WWF, and now we're what? What is it, six tapes in? Uh, something like that. Yeah, let's something let's run like it that. down. Of course, uh, bloopers, bleeps, and body slams, number one, followed by Hulkamania, yeah. first Hulk, Hulk Hogan tape, the best WWF. We had WrestleMania following that, which, of course, uh, we didn't cover. Oh, I guess if you're including those, yes, it's probably... WWF's most unusual... Six. Andre the Giant, which we brought to you last time, and now best of the WWF Volume 2. So we're uh, in the summer of 85 in terms of a release schedule when they put Most Unusual Andre and Best of WWF Volume 2 out at just about the same time, which it, which was their early cadence, three tapes at a time. One was, as Steve Hecht will talk about here, a profile feature on an individual wrestler. One was a Best of, which they thought to be sort of a legacy series that would carry on as long as the Coliseum videos did. And one was... Um, kind of a, a compilation with a theme like most unusual, like bloopers, something that was sort yeah, of right. thematic. And then, of course, they came out with WrestleMania. And as we talked about last time, these tapes, the best of tapes, the most unusual Andre, those profile personality profile tapes, those retailed for about 60 bucks at the time, whereas the uh, WrestleMania one release on VHS retailed for only thirty nine ninety five. So do you think do you think they did that because because they 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 had made money? on on WrestleMania other ways? It's a good question. Um, maybe, maybe. Maybe it's also, it was a gravy uh, because they had already scheduled their three-tape drop at full price and yeah, and just threw uh, the WrestleMania tape in the fray. I don't think they necessarily, and I'm not sure Steve Hecht actually sheds any light on this, planned on including pay-per-view events of, um, of WWF into the series because, of course, they started working... Right with Coliseum before they had what we would consider uh, pay-per-view slash mega events, even in the pipeline. Those, of course, early on would only be one, and then later right. just two a year. But uh, that would be my guess. Um, okay. That's for Steve Hecht. He was an independent contractor uh, selling sponsorships on syndicated radio and television for the WWF um, and for other organizations at the time that the Coliseum Home Video Alliance started. And he said he had heard buzz in the street that Vince Jr. Um, was going to buy the WWF from his father and was planning to take it national. And he'd been a fan growing up in the 50s and 60s. And he knew a guy 
um, who was the very first VP of marketing, I guess, at the WWF, who was a former media director at an ad agency called J. Wall Thompson. So we called him up and says, hey, I understand Vince is going to take this this thing national. I'd be interested in helping uh, if he needs anything on the national ad, ad sales side. If he's going national, I've got experience there. Yeah. Uh, you know, just calling on ad, ad agencies and saying, hey, this WWF thing is the next hot thing. You want to buy space on it, et cetera. So he recalled getting WWF some of their first national sponsorships uh, on the television side, heard they were going to also license home video rights. And when he heard that, his ears perked up because he knew people in the home video business um, and had brought an independent company called A&H Video Sales uh, to the table. They owned a bunch of companies, uh, including Metro Distributors, which were independent distributors um, distributing some major studio stuff at the time. And so that group stuck a deal, struck a deal with Titan um, and A&H. This is A&H's uh, Morowitz mm-hmm. & Company. Uh, they decided, Arthur Morowitz, that they needed a distinct identity for Is this. Barry Horowitz? <laughs> no, we've talked a lot about Arthur Morowitz, of course, in the history yes. of the uh, Coliseum video collection. But uh, they decided that they needed a distinct identity for this. And I guess I understood this, boss, but didn't really appreciate it. You know, they created the the name Coliseum Home Video for WWF tapes. It didn't exist before. Oh, my God. The deal. Of course not. It's tempting of to think not. that, you know, I mean, they created that, that, that in a vacuum. That doesn't surprise me one bit. Yep. Not one bit. So they decided they needed a distinct identity for the series and thus was formed Coliseum Home Video. Uh, Steve Hecht was hired subsequently. Um, he said, you know, um, it wasn't his original intent in getting involved with, you know, the, the ad distribution yeah. side and the video distribution side of WWF to be a writer for their series. But ultimately, uh, they said, you know, you obviously know the material um, and you wrote a bunch of these presentations that ended up, you know, forming the basis for this home video relationship. So why don't you write and produce the actual videos for us? And so he agrees to come on at Titan as a contractor to do that. And he said Coliseum Video was formed and they had an exclusive deal to produce and distribute the official WWF home video series. And um, worked there for five years and change and um, said to his sense of things, everything was really successful up until the point he left. Not saying they weren't after he left, but just what he could recall what he had actual visibility into, did 55 videotapes overall for the World Wrestling Federation, did Steve Hecht. And um, he said on the interview, they were, I can tell you, everyone turned a profit. So there you go. Oh, there we go. When you see those prices. Just like uh, just like all of Hogan's movies made money? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no pushback there, but maybe he was taking a book, <laughs> page out of the Holsters book. Said it was a very good business arrangement for the guys at Coliseum, where his contract sat. He actually was contracted to Coliseum. I mean, I mean, it really is true. When you really think about it, though, it's like what, what, what kind of loss can there really be? I know it's just found because footage. It's you know you're, right. It's all it's all in the canned footage. You know you're 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 gonna just like probably spend. I mean, I can't imagine with the thing I would think maybe may, maybe cost the most money would have been dubbing the footage. I mean, dubbing the sure. um, the, the tapes. Yeah, and finding, as he'll talk know. about here in a minute, uh, everything they had was very poorly cataloged at the time. Right. There was no professional cataloging of what they had in archives. So there actually was quite a bit of sweat and labor involved in yeah. finding good stuff. Even, you know, even if you knew what you were looking for, it took a hell of a long time to find it. So that's yeah. a fascinating thing to think yeah. about. Just, you know, cracking open the warehouse for the first time. Can you imagine and just like, oh, all these film reels from these, just you know. A fucking disaster. But it's all so worth exploring. God, well, I was born in the wrong year. I know, right? What a job that would have been. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, when you look at the WWF series for Coliseum, 
Um, it became the most successful non-theatrical video series in the history of the home video business. Mm. That, that's something he stated as if it's uh, an accepted fact in that world, which yeah. I was surprised to hear. Okay. But it does make sense. They were right there on the cusp. You know, they were there yeah, at the very I mean, beginning. Yeah, it, it, yeah, there is. It is true. I mean, they, it, it was still, you know, it wasn't like when they were doing that, it wasn't like everybody in the world had a, a VCR in their, in their home. Right. You know, that wasn't common yet. The VCRs were like $1,000 or whatever. And they can charge those high prices for the tape, so big-time profit. When you talk about success, I'm sure it's not just units sold, but money made. And, uh, yeah, they were. It, that's the history of WWF. I mean, is say what you will, but they are always five years ahead of the next trend in distribution for television, sure. for sports, sure. for everything, from over-the-top streaming services to DVD to pay-per-view to home video. Uh, they're trying everything first, it seems like. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And so uh, Coliseum Video, of course, was owned by Arthur Marowitz and uh, Howard Farber, who we've talked about at length on the show. Porn producers, essentially, in terms of how they made their biggest bucks. And uh, Marowitz also considered the pioneer of the home video business uh, in the United States. Of course, um, the germ of the idea is how do we get porn in, into homes? And, uh, <laughs> and he opened literally the first video store in the world, which we talked about, I think, on the very first Coliseum collection there in New York City. The same location that one of our... I just got to figure out how to get porn in people's homes. That's right. That's that's the way. I think that people need to have just access to illicit content. (laughs) They weren't calling it content quite yet. (laughs) They were calling it smut. Yeah. I want to do something dirty. (laughs) Get smut in people's homes. So you're saying, Arthur, you want me to call Vince McMahon directly? Uh huh. (laughs) Arthur would undoubtedly watch porn with just a complete um, blank face. You know, no. There's no, no, there's no actual enjoyment. It's it's a right. it's a business transaction for him. Very much so. Um, he's he you know he, he's one of those guys that would get hard, but like his face his facial expression would not change at all. <laughs> um, and I guess he was saying that Morowitz was the very first president of of the VSDA, which was the Video Software Dealers of America. So the the idea of being a video dealer in this country became yeah. <laughs> you know an industry a vertical something that associated it was a trade association for home video retailers well, that, that's that's where that's our next trend we're going to become video dealers that's right we're going to be in the um the home video economy and we are going to deal out home video tapes and provide access to the inside of uh the entertainment industry from a different standard and a different viewpoint from a a way that 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 just goes beyond anything ever seen before by you the viewer the viewer and certainly they learned all they needed to know about distribution from Dr. George Zahorian <laughs> um so you know they reviewed as savvy marketing guys he greatly admired uh, the marketing of the WWF I don't and Steve Hecht. <laughs> there's a lot he didn't accept and he still went to jail isn't that funny how that works <laughs> 
Um, he said there was a plan to do three series he can remember um, of Coliseum videos. He doesn't know anybody that could try and produce that much content so fast as they did in those early years of this relationship, right about where we are here, this epic of the uh, Coliseum video relationship with the WWF here in the Coliseum collection. He said they were going to do three original programs every 90 days. That was the goal, which is nuts to think about at the time. But uh, that's, one, that's one a month. That's crazy. That is crazy. Uh, he said the first idea, of course, was best of the WWF series. As we are here, our first best of WWF is part of the the Coliseum collection formal here. Um, and that was thought to be just, you know, a series of generic highlights, as he put it, which I guess that's one way to describe this tape. I mean, it's generic. I'll say that. The second highlights. A- I don't know personality series, as he calls it. So tapes on individuals like the Andre the Giant tape we did last week, the Hulk Hogan tape that we already did with more to come, uh, the Roddy Piper tape coming up. And um, he said, you know, whoever was wanting to get heat at the time was a candidate for Can't wait for for that Ken Patera tape. Dude, it's there, isn't it? It's there. It's unbelievable. Uh, But that'll tell you about how conceptual it was. It wasn't just like, here's a great wrestler, let's give him his own tape. It was, we need to find a wrestler for this blank spot of the personality series. Who we got? You know, there's, there's no way they, they said Ken Patera's got to have a tape one day from, from Jump Street. It definitely was the other way around. Wrestling's Country Boys. Can't wait for that one. Can't wait for, I mean, we have Bruno coming up later. Fuck. People say, you know, when are you going to stop? I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of these tapes. When are you going to stop? Lapsed no. fan on the Coliseum. No. Never. Never. You know, we'll be, we'll be dead before the, you know, run out of stuff. That's right. Too much, too much of a collection to parse through. Too many lessons to learn. Too much context to glean on these video cassettes. And Hacksaw's too much, got one. That'll be interesting. Yep. But the Bulldogs do. Bulldogs do too. Which is fascinating to think about. And then it's funny how they... I'll be very curious to see, you know, to, to, to see what happens once they kind of evolved. Like after 89, they stopped doing the, um, the, uh, you know, the, this format, you know, cause they stopped doing the best of, they stopped doing the, the, for the most part, the, 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 uh, how to phrase, you know, the sequencing didn't happen anymore. Like they didn't have it being these three tapes, like, or these three styles of tapes They kind of dropped that format and just did a bunch of other shit. Yep. Yep. There was a, I wonder if that, that marked the break with Steve Hecht's departure after 55 tapes. I wonder if that was uh, coincident with that. Cause he clearly was the person who was, had the most fidelity to this idea of a release schedule around these three different categories. So I wonder if, um, when he sort of exited the picture, they rethought everything. He'll get into that a little bit uh, here in the interview. Um, so, yeah, think about it as best of WWF uh, personality series and what they called novelty series, like history mm. of the tag team championship, history right. of the intercontinental right. title, steel cage matches. Um, and are you, are you ready for that? Are you ready for those? The history of the championship of the intercontinental championship. If I'm honest with you, I'm not. Those are fucking. Mm. Those are like bucket list subject matters for us here. You know, we've History always... of the WWE world title. Folks, there's a reason we're doing this. I mean, that, that in and of itself is a journey, right? I mean, that... It really is. That, that's something we've talked about before, is doing a title history one. And uh, fuck, the Coliseum Collection serves it up to us. It does. Ready to go. Ready to dive. We don't have to architect the thing. We don't have to, to piece it together. It was already done for us by Titan Sports and the World Wrestling Federation and Evart Enterprises. 
So let's pick that ball up. So you have uh, the three regularly scheduled um, releases, um, and then there was a plan also for special events like WrestleMania or other big super cards that might come up. And he says timing was everything. He had incredible admiration for the WWF as a fan, and he had no doubt in his mind uh, when Vince was looking to become the first national promotion that he would succeed. But he said he'd be lying to you um, if he said he thought WrestleMania won was going to be the phenomenon that it became. Uh, but he put the deal together, packaged up a rights deal. This was in October of 1984, if we're setting up a timeline of the history of the relationship. October of 1984 uh, was when the home video rights deal with Coliseum and Vince was put together. Um, and then, of course, the first mania taking place March 85. We had three regularly scheduled series every 90 days, plus the special stuff on top. He had some training in his life and research because he used to work mm-hmm. at the Nielsen Company. So he really kind of oh, liked... Wow. Finding stuff in video archives and television station archives. And um, as he said, as I hinted, the archive uh, of the WWF, when he got his hands on it, um, it was warehoused at the TV station in Onings Mills, Maryland. This is, of course, where they would shoot Tuesday Night Titans with Vince at the desk playing David Letterman. So think about it. Backstage somewhere was all the archives. Jesus. And that was a place to fucking visit. Wonder what's there now. Probably a Panera. Garbage, yes. What's the Um, address? I have no idea. And he walked into literally a small warehouse, and there were tapes everywhere in all sorts of formats and film reels, and not all of it was categorized. And he said, you know, the beta versus VHS battle had just been won. Um, So there was, uh, I guess, some stuff that was in beta that people didn't really care to categorize because they didn't see it as... Uh, necessarily useful or uh, <laughs> what, what, what do you know about that boss? We didn't spend much time talking about beta versus VHS, but that was a significant showdown. I mean, you know, I, I don't know too much about, about beta, you know, cause, cause the beta, it's a weird, it, it's a weird thing because their the beta, um, beta max, a beta, I think they made a, a different, tape later on but yeah i don't really know much about big ass tapes right about yeah 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 there were big big tapes and um yeah that's about it really there's a question of format and what ones were going to win the day and people had. i mean you know what it's the same thing as the battle between as far as i know it's pretty much the same thing as the battle between uh uh uh, blu-ray and yes hd Whatever it was. Yeah, did they call it DVD HD? Is that what they called it? It was HD. That, that'll that tell you how, you know, the winner gets to write the history. You don't even fucking remember the name of the ones that, that yeah, lost HD out. HD DVD was what it was called. Right. And then, um, yeah, it had the battle between, between Blu-ray and then it, you know, Blu-ray. I forget. Who, I remember when it happened, but somebody chose, was it PlayStation? When they chose Blu-ray, that kind of like to support, like to support it on PlayStation devices instead of HD DVD. Yeah, that's the battle. Do you remember ever sampling both and seeing a difference? No, no. Yeah, I don't even remember what Blu-ray. What even people pointed to as the difference? I don't even know. Uh, I don't. don't, I'm trying to look it up right now to see what they're. What there was, yeah, it was play. Yeah, Sony's decision to incorporate Blu-ray disc player, a Blu-ray display as a standard feature of the PlayStation Three video game video game console also helped ensure the format's eventual triumph. Um, because I remember for a while, people 
the, the, there were a lot of people thought that HD DVD was going to be it was going to be it like yeah. Blu-ray was going to was going to you know hit the bricks but yeah I'm a, I, I would assume that 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 that, that beta and VHS had a similar situation definitely did and uh, yeah I'm, I don't know if there's even an era where you could get Betamax home yeah. video cameras you know over the shoulder the big units because. Actually, I'm looking at this here. A Betamax cassette is actually smaller than a oh, really? VHS tape. What am I yeah. thinking of then? That these massive. Well, you know, what you're thinking of you're thinking of those like th- those are those are different. Those are like uh, almost news footage. Yeah, like SVHS. Is that what they're called? That's not SVHS. No. I, I don't even know what that would be. Yeah, you know what I mean. But it though. does have a beta. Like the, like we even used. <clears throat> I, I you know I don't know the whole the whole thing, but there, there I even remember digital oh beta cam, beta cam. That's that's what we would. Uh, that was what I remember using. Yeah, Beta Cam. That's the that's the giant tape. Beta Cam. Okay, Beta so Cam. Beta's in there. Beta's in there, but it's not Beta Max. Wow. <clears throat> so that was significant, yeah. I guess, at the time. He remembers picking up a case of two inch tapes, and all it said was MSG ten seventy, as in October of nineteen seventy, and that's all he had to go on at first yeah. when finding. Raw material for these early Coliseum home video releases. Uh, he and others at the point in time, he once laid claim to probably having watched uh, more pro wrestling than any person alive going through all these tapes. And, uh, you know, of course, as he says, the video business today, he did the interview in 2015 with the two man power trip podcast has all but disappeared as a business when you buy stuff in uh, some physical form. But at the time, it was all about finding the physical and uh, the business, in fact, started with beta, then moved to VHS, then moved to DVD, and then, of course, fizzled out in the face of streaming. And um, he said, overall, the WWF was a very good custodian of content. So I'm sure that's a term he was using in 1984. Content. He says, Vince was pretty stimulating and thrilling to work with. I like to do me. Can we use, can, you know, instead of calling, instead of talking about it as, as wrestling or sports entertainment or entertainment, I'd, I'd like to be able to just call it content. Can we call it content, Steve? Can we call it content? We have a main event content tonight. <laughs> a title content. I don't think that's going to work. Yes, this content is for the WWE Championship. <laughs> This content. So much for the Fink's legacy. <laughs> That's basically what it the, is now, now, right? Howard, I need you to say this. The following content is scheduled for one fall. The following content is scheduled for one fall. Very good. This is the way of the future, pal. The way of the future. We are a content distribution we are a content distribu- distribution entrepreneurial yes. venture. <laughs> so stupid. So he said Vince was very, it was pretty stimulating and thrilling to work with, and he's a very driven guy. <laughs> Only remembers Vince taking. I'm also very stimulated. <laughs> I knew that, much. that word would tickle you. Um, he said in five or so years working with Vince, you only remembers McMahon taking one vacation. It was basically just a long weekend, which I guess is cool. 
Um, He has an energy level, uh, Steve Hecht says, that's almost supernatural, does Vince McMahon, who, of course, is in peak form right at the time the Coliseum video series launches. I mean, he's in full divide and conquer mode. He's in full acquisition mode. He's in full, you know, choke on my New York money, you fucking bitch mode. (laughs) And so this is what it was like to work with him behind the scenes. So I can I can tell you now, Okay, as I'm just quickly skimming over some stuff here. The battle for the battle over over cassette supremacy between VHS and beta um, revolved around two things. The the uh, player, recorder, um, Betamax ones were more expensive. That hurt it. And also the the VHS uh, technology or design or whatever, it was invented by JVC. And JVC would, they licensed it to any manufacturer that was interested in creating ah. a player. And Sony created Betamax. They did not do that until the 80s and therefore kind of like died. Oh, wow. So they were late, you mean? Yeah, they were, well, they were early. I mean, they actually came out earlier but they because of their their limited because you can only buy a sony you know beta player and and um you know and, and the beta players were more expensive they they killed themselves wow basically and 80s sony that shit was so expensive that was such a premium brand in the 80s oh, yeah. wow I, now it's like barely a blip you don't i mean obviously my mom owns sony yeah, really yeah, she's chairman. See, I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought you just exactly. meant, I thought you just meant she owned Sony Electronics, like no, no, she individual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's always that's always for you in listener land. That's always how you know boss is interesting and interested in advancing a discussion is when he just drops you out. Yeah, okay. Well, my mom's involved. <laughs> That's a, that's always the uh, let's move on moment. Like if there's something like if people are carrying on about something like you don't care about. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, my mom is in, my mom owns Sony. Okay, that's what I think about Sony. It's like it's almost an insult, which is so weird. You know what I mean? It's like it's like it's 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 shitty enough of a subject that my mom owns it. Somehow, somehow, I I'm. <laughs> Somehow I'm insulting you by insulting my mom. <laughs> Basically is what happened. Right. Your mom's a sim- simply a device <laughs> through which to deliver a stinging rebuke. <laughs> Tremendous fucking shit, pal. I mean, we've been using mom like I know, for 20 years now. I remember, I remember when we started doing that because we were like, you know, that was in a, that was, that was like during an age when your mom jokes were like right. huge. And we're like, well, what if it was my mom? <laughs> right. We just started saying, yeah, well, my mom's a whore. <laughs> right. Stop it's, people dead in their tracks. Right. And using it as if everybody knows like your mom's reputation. <laughs> and so if you're citing your, your mom, then that means it's really bad. Yes. And we chose to do this. And sometimes instead of calling, referring to our actual mothers, we'd refer to each other as mommy. (laughs) Oh my God. Did you do that one time in the elevator or something? I did. I I was calling you mom. I must've said this before, but 
when he'd call me, I get in the elevator in the dorm filled with college kids and actors and artists. And I'd answer, "Hi, mom. <laughs> fuck you, mom. What the fuck, mom? <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm talking to my actual mother. Fucking whore. <laughs> I don't think I ever went that far. <laughs> Are you fucking dad again, mom? What's that squishy noise I hear? <laughs> Is the ragu on again? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like <laughs> sauce that you leave bubbling too long on the. How was that fucking? T- how was that turkey sandwich, boss? What the oh. fuck? You want to talk about Black Friday? I I don't think I'm Mm-mm. ever going to be able to have another Black Friday for as long as I live without seeing. I don't care if the podcast doesn't <laughs> exist and the Twitter just exists to to post one tweet a year. That's right. It'll be it. It's going to be your uh, morning after Thanksgiving sandwich. Let me tell you, that is the best fucking breakfast you'll ever have. What did you what, tell me? Take us through it. All right, all right. So, so actually, it, it was in, you know, so the day before, I actually had, I was running some errands, um, some last minute errands for my dad with with my kid, and we had to go to a bakery, and I was like, you know what, I got to get some bread because if we don't, if I don't get bread now, it's over. wow. Because um, yeah, so I got I got a nice loaf of Italian bread. And, um, you know, had that ready and, uh, slice that bread, slice that bread a little <laughs> thicker than it should be, but just what it needs. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be, it's handling a lot. So, right? it's handling so, a lot. so it didn't come pre-sliced. No, no. I, I, they asked, I said, no, don't, I will slice it myself. I know what I'm in for here. And your slices won't won't be good enough. Right. No matter what I tell you to try to explain to you what right. this bread is designed to handle, you're still going to slice it too thin. Right. It's going to be too fucking thin, and I'm going to hate you uh, before that. And so I, um, yeah, so I, I cut the bread, buttered it, because you got to, you know, <laughs> I'm going to grill the bread. It's going to happen. <laughs> yes. Yes, Bob. Cheese, a little bit of cheese on both sides. Like I'm going to have a grilled cheese sandwich. And then I fry up, you know, just quickly, quickly fry up the uh, the turkey. But something that, that I started doing last year to make, to make, because, you know, you fry it up, it's going to get dry. And it's going to oh, yeah, yeah. be awful. So I, I, I cook it up, but then I put a little water in it. Really? In the pan, yes. Put a little water in the pan, and the turkey soaks it up, and it's very, it still can be very moist. And then, um, then I put it in the, uh, put that on the bread. I reheat some potatoes. Mashed. Some stuffing, mashed potatoes, stuffing, gravy. Put those layers on. Those incredible layers. Put the gravy on top. Then top it off with some cranberry sauce and just spread a little bit of mayonnaise, just a little bit of mayonnaise (laughs) on that other piece of bread, put it on top, squish it down, cut that motherfucker. Yes. Tweet it. Go to town. Tweet it, then fucking go to town. How's that first bite? I mean, it must be like. Oh, it's fucking, it's, it's, you know, in in so many ways, it's better than Thanksgiving. (laughs) Right. It's better than Thanksgiving dinner to have all that shit in your mouth at the same time. And, and all the, and all the, you know, the pomp and circumstances behind you. Yeah. Right. It's all gravy at this point. Right. It the pun. literally is. It literally is all gravy. 
Good for you, and man. So fucking great. And, um, you know, I was, <laughs> I intended, it just, you know, it just didn't end up happening. I was going to make one more and I was going to tweet it. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I named this one Julie, just one for the road. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Did you make a Julie? You make a Julie? No, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't make a Julie. So that's incredible stuff. Um, it was so good. And I know the solar system appreciates that tweet just as much, and uh, it's just tremendous. Kind of makes me sad that it's behind us, but hey, I know. Think about our friends across the pond who don't have American Thanksgiving, right? It's true. For them, Christmas dinner is what we think of as Thanksgiving dinner. It is true. So they're ready for turkey, and they can certainly. They are more than welcome to uh, embrace that recipe. You know, there yeah, there is more turkey ahead, too, you know? Absolutely. Gonna, not my turkey, though. Doesn't, going back to my home. It's my uncle's turkey now. Fucking asshole. Why, someone took it from you? What do you mean? Well, no, but he does. I can't take his turkey home. Oh, 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 oh my I uncle's see. House. Oh, oh, I understand what yeah. you mean. Yes, yes. So, but um, I want to, you know, something I realized, too. I realized one of the greatest, one of the greatest days... The, the there is there is no greater sensation yes than than the last day that you're working or whatever before thanksgiving yes that last day and it departs there is some sort of fucking magic about that moment when you are done for Thanksgiving week. It's heavenly. It's a heavenly feeling. Now you're saying the day before you eat the bird, the day before the, 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 the last day that you work. Yes. Cause everyone works, you know, some people work Monday, Tuesday, some people work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, when you're done. Yes. That sensation God. that you're feeling. It's all upside is greater than, than it's, it's, it's why you live. Yes. And, and you know what? I honestly think it's, it's even, as much as I love the Christmas season, I feel like I don't get that same feeling. Yeah. Because, you know, in a weird way, in some way, that moment is is the beginning of the Christmas season. Yes. You know? And, you know, because Thanksgiving's right there, and then after that, it's just fucking gravy. Yeah, it's true. Really. It's true, because, um, you know, it feels like you work all the way up until... You know, because Christmas Eve is a holiday in and of itself. Right. It, but it's odd to say on December 23rd, if that's your last day of work, that you feel the same way you do before Thanksgiving because tomorrow is not December 25th. Right, right. The, not everybody right. has the 24th off. Fuck, not everybody has the 25th off. Uh, not, not to suggest that that's like the only way to, to experience this, but it, it's what comes to mind. And there is kind of a, there is a lack of that flavor. I mean, it has a lot to do as well with the fact that, you know, every single year, in America, Thanksgiving hits the school calendar the same way. It's always that Thursday. Yep. Yep. Friday is always a day off. There's always, at least in the school districts I've become aware of in my time on Earth, uh, a half day on Wednesday, which only adds to the fucking magic. Exactly. And uh, with Christmas, it's much more a crapshoot because you don't know what day of the yeah, calendar month of the December. Yeah, it's the 25th. It's always, it's always shifting where it's all like... The last fucking, day could be like a Friday and Christmas isn't right. until Monday, you know, right. so it doesn't really right. feel right. like that. Um, plus, there's, you know, there's certainly a lot of dinner preparations that 
in food preparations that go into Christmas, but it's just not the same. It's just not as, at least in my experience, as regimented. It, it, it isn't, too, because you're also having, like, in a weird way, Thanksgiving kind of burst the bubble. Yeah. You know, like, Thanksgiving happened, and it's like, well, fuck, you know. That's the first time you had all that shit, all that fucking food. And then a lot of times for people, it's a repeat. A repeat in the same family, you know. Same family, um, you know, not enough not enough stuff has happened, can can really happen between Thanksgiving and Christmas for you to like. Right, have a lot to talk to know, people about. Have a lot more to talk about. And, um, you know, Grant, we get the ravioli and the brujol, <laughs> as well as a turkey dinner. <laughs> I can't complain about that. (laughs) Oh, man. I've had the Brajol, man. I know. I know. I know of its powers. (laughs) The Brajol is is a power unto itself. Is is your dad making the Brajol this year? Is it a certain? Um, I don't don't think so. He doesn't usually make the Brajol. Oh, whoever does. Um, My my uncle usually makes the Brajol, but he hasn't, you know. You know, they, and I wish I'd actually done this, too. I didn't think to do it before my grandmother died. But I wish that, you know, no one went to her and said, can you teach me how to make the brujol? Right, right. You know, before she died. And it's like, fuck, like, why didn't people do that? Like, they should have fucking done that. I should have done that. Everyone should do that. You, you know, know, if you're in that but, situation right now and you've got a relative who cooks something magical and that's part of tradition. Yeah. Yep. And you think you've got time. No, you don't have time. No, there's no time. Do it now. I'm glad I know how to make her meatballs. Well, there is. I that. do that. I'm gonna. I offer to do that now. I make the meatballs for Christmas. <laughs> Fucking tremendous! What a time of year it is, man. Oh. Such a renew. Such a time of renewal. Indeed. Um, and people chill the fuck out. I mean, I they they freak yeah. out about you know their domestic situation and trying to keep everyone happy on that front. It's stressful in its own way. But you know, the workplace stops thinking that they can reinvent yep. the world yep. <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Yeah, and, it's not um, gonna happen. Right. Shut the fuck up. How about that? How about you shut the fuck up for a few weeks? How about that? That's right. That's right. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Go home. Leave me the fuck alone. Go bury yourself in a hole and die. (laughs) I got some Christmas stockings to wear. That's right. I have a book to leaf through by the fire. (laughs) So, Well, I'm drinking some mulled wine. (laughs) Mincemeat pie this year? Uh, No, I didn't. I'm not going to do it this year. That's too much. Too much prep. Yeah, well, and yeah, that and, you know, just the move and everything. I just, you know, I, I actually, uh, if I wanted to do, if I was going to do it, I actually wanted to prepare it even further. Because my friend, my, my, my um, you know, one of my co- co-workers at uh, MSG, he, he's, he's from the UK. And he, um, he actually uh, uh, would say how his mom makes a mince pie every year. And she starts, she puts the stuff together six months before Christmas. Oh, my fucking God. Like she makes it from scratch six months before Christmas. Like, what the fuck? That's amazing. I would do it differently. I think it needs to be a little, I think, I think it needs to be a little more savory than, than sweet, in my humble opinion. So, so you're saying if you were to start that far out, it's not possible to make it more savory? No, I just think I would, I would tweak the recipe a little bit. To make it a little less sweet and make it a little more savory. Terrific. Well, we um, 
for all of our wonderful traditions on this side of the pond, we do tip our cap to the Christmas dinner traditions of the UK because absolutely from that's the goose all wear. the way on down from the that's Dickens that's descriptions. You, I mean, you got that's where it. you wear, you know, you, you can't have dinner unless it's by candlelight. You, you have top, to wear a top hat. You have to wear a top hat. Everyone does this in England <laughs> for, the, for the next I've month. I've seen the Sainsbury commercials. <laughs> And don't 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 fucking tell me otherwise, you 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 fuckers over there. I know I know what you do. Yep, top hats, monocles, fucking uh, high collars. Go and get your tails. Tea at Fortnum and Mason, velvet galore, <laughs> riding horses and carriages. Oh. Got little paper boys running through the streets. Little urchins. There's always extra extra. <laughs> pa- paper boy with extra on the new vi- on the new variant. <laughs> That's going to be the new holiday holiday tradition. A new variant emerges on slow oh, news absolutely. days. Oh, yeah. um, absolutely. You ready for another lockdown? I'm, I'm prepared. <laughs> We're never getting out of this fucking thing. It's fucking so, you know, vaccinating it, and shit. It's been, it's been hilarious to really watch. Like People pretend that there's a way that everyone agrees on that this will end. And it's like, yeah, it just yeah. will not end. It just, it, there's no it's end. It's not going to end until those motherfuckers who don't want to vaccinate themselves all die. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm but, all for it. Uh, dude, let him I mean, die. Way too many people that are vaccinated are getting it anyway. It doesn't fucking, I mean, yeah. It, it, I know, it, it's true too. It's true too. So that even but, that even that sort of carrot that was dangled, that if we all just yeah. somehow convinced enough people to do this, that we would see the end of the pandemic. And it just continuously just mocks oh, I know. that it, consensus. It's, it's, it just, it's like, oh, really? Oh, we're, really, we're gonna be motherfuckers? We're homeless for the rest of our lives. Get used to it. <laughs> Right? Yeah, it's just, and and, and I, you know what I love? I love this whole. Oh God, this is this is me being being so fucking cynical of 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 my own business, really. Because I, I I I sit there and I you know Broadway's back, Broadway is back, and every fucking show someone's getting COVID. Yes, and they got to close down. They got to close down. Shit, we got another. It's like yeah, you know what? Because everyone's trying. Everyone is so desperate. Desperate. It's all too soon. We all fucking ran in too soon. Well, boss, I don't think there's, I don't think there's such a time. We could sit yeah, with our dick maybe, in our hands, maybe. and there will never be a time where any anywhere close to fifty percent of people agree that it's yeah. time. Yeah. The yeah. only way is, is through it. I mean, we've we've tried enough things. It's like if you could put in front of me a circumstance, you take X, Y, and Z steps, and it will not reemerge. You know, you know, what, you know what'll do it? Martial law. <laughs> well, ask China about that, where they can literally force you to stay in your in your house all day. Do it. And they did it, and they still continuously get outbreaks. Guess, yeah. That's true. Trip all over their dicks. Trying to, it's just, <laughs> the stats make total mockeries of people who think they have a strategy. And I think that's uh, that's the story of life. Yeah, you know? like, I mean, that's it. Mother Mother Nature is, is You don't is, have a strategy. Queen. You don't have a strategy. Right. That's Mother why Nature we, will, because here's the thing. Mother Nature will always beat you. Yes, exactly. The planet is fine. The people are fucked. Okay. Oh, yes. Make no yes. mistake. The planet will heal itself. Don't worry about the planet, as George right. Carlin once sagely observed. And uh, yeah, if you have the word strategic anywhere around your job title, I, I have to snicker because <laughs> there is no strategy. Okay? No, none. You can't strategize about anything. <laughs> Not really. You can only you know. respond. You can only put out fires. That's right. That's um, right. And, anyway. and once you put one out, there's one up behind That's you. That's correct. Doesn't mean you don't put it out, but it does mean you don't dangle a false hope that somehow we can prevent fires from ever breaking out again. Or because that maybe would be you just dishonest. Sit there and burn. Let it burn. 
Well, as Vince did, um, he burned both end of the candles for years <laughs> in getting this uh, national expansion home video sure. licensing version of WWF off the ground. And Steve Heck remembers that uh, his energy level, Vince's energy level, was almost supernatural. He said Vince is all about heat, and he lives it. And uh, for all that time he worked with Vince, never had a problem. Uh, always found Vince ready to listen and respectful of him and the company he worked for. And he just says, as a marketer and a person, Vince is unique. So Steve Heck, not one that Vince decided was a useless bitch at some point. Okay. Well, I'm glad we settled that. And uh, it's probably telling that he wasn't at Vince's uh, Thanksgiving table as we <laughs> dropped on the solar system Thanksgiving day. Indeed. Oh, that was glorious. So um, he said, you know, over time, the match choice for Coliseum videos began to evolve and uh, they must have been around tape number 20 before he turned to his boss and said, you know, I'm a little dry for ideas here. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were approvals all the way along and they got approval for every match and who was in it from WWF to put them on the tape. The WWF vetted everything before it went from Steve Hecht's mind to a video cassette distributed. Uh, We were pretty much left alone, though, he recalls, uh, to do the three series and the specials as they saw fit. There was final sign off and everything, but there wasn't anybody really getting in Stephen Hecht's way in terms of selecting matches from the bottom up, which is interesting. He said he didn't take a whole lot of debate. Uh, it didn't take a whole lot of debate to decide if you should release WrestleMania one on video. It was very clear when the success of that event came in that they should do it and they did it. So again, the sense that the WrestleMania Coliseum release, which happened right around the time of this tape was very much a tack on very much something that wasn't counted on in the pipeline. And uh, so the best of novelty and personality series, they approved them all. And under the circumstances, considering how hot the business was, WWF and home video guys I worked for uh, were um, on the, were one of the uh, innovators of the business. And um, thus they were pretty much left alone uh, with the um, approval process. Um, He said about 20 shows in, 20 tapes in, he told folks at WWF he needed some help here. And, uh, coming up with more ideas. So at that point, Vince convened a meeting at his office uh, as well as his house. He remembers Howard Finkel being there. He remembers Pat Patterson being there. He remembers Bobby Heenan being there, which is Mm. something that's um, an undercovered part of WWF history. When Bobby Heenan came in to manage for WWF along with so many people from Minneapolis like Hogan and Ventura and stuff in late 83, he was given a front office role. He was actually considered part of the creative team as well as a producer. So there was a period of time where, you know, they'd be having interview days and shooting localized promos for all the cities and arenas they'd be coming to where Bobby Heenan was the guy behind the camera saying, action, cut. Wow. Do this, emphasize this, de-emphasize this, and, and running all that stuff through. He didn't quite love the job, but he, he had it for a while, right around the time George Scott was booking for WWF from WrestleMania 1. So Heenan was uh, at the table as part of the brain trust here and trying to figure out what to do past about 20 Coliseum home video releases as well, to Stephen Heck's memory. And uh, he said to the group, he said, I need some ideas um, here. What do you think? And they banged out ideas pretty quickly right there at the table. And uh, by the time that one meeting was over, they had the next 10 to 15 Coliseum home video releases already uh, specked out. So um, as we're going through the Coliseum collection, let's try to keep our eye and our minds on once we get to release 20 or so. That was when uh, the original architect of so many of the matches selection and so much of the things we've been talking and speculating about up to this point in the series, um, kind of puts the ball more in Vince and his brain trust's court. Are you saying Are you saying the the 20th release? I would think so. That's what he remembers it as. So, yeah, you could say 2021. Or the 20th best of WWE. 20th release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I took it. Um, and he said, further, WrestleMania 3, the experience of that, um, he watched it from the tunnel, the entrance tunnel, 
Um, the he second, was there? Yeah. Oh, so then it's not then. That, that's later because the 20th release is, well, the, I'll say this, the 21st release is WrestleMania 2. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think he wasn't saying he left at that point. He was just oh. saying that he stopped architecting the entire tape by himself without I see. needing help of where to, th- where to go next for stuff. Um, but yeah, he was at WrestleMania three. He remembers watching it from the, uh, the entrance tunnel. He has a pretty interesting perspective on those early WrestleManias because he's still kind of an outsider, but he's kind of granted, you know, access to the inner sanctum at the mm-hmm. same time. Oh, the, I love that. Yep. He remembers the second WrestleMania. He literally watched it from an antenna farm, um, which are these big old, um, buildings out in HBO's, I guess it was on long Island where they kind of, synced up to make sure all feeds were coming in correctly. It was basically like a big production truck, I guess, in the middle of uh, isolated areas. And um, he remembers WrestleMania being from three locations simultaneously being pretty risky. Um, But he says WrestleMania 3, to his mind, contains the greatest single match of all time, which was Savage Steamboat. Um, He remembers shooting background stuff in the morning of that match, and not more than five or ten minutes before the bell, uh, before anyone was in the ring, he took an opportunity to take two steps up outside of one of the posts there on the floor of the Pontiac Silverdome and look around. And uh, it was fascinating. Can you imagine being able to do that? You just walk out there. You talk about the fucking night before Thanksgiving, right? How about an hour before WrestleMania three is about to fill the Pontiac Silverdome and and the ring is perfectly dressed. The, The building is already lit. It's just, it's nothing but pent up possibility. Fuck. I mean, we walked the ruins of that building 30 years later and felt it. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that night, the power of pro wrestling on that night? That, that dome, that beautiful dome, just in pristine condition. Oh, the God. country in pristine condition yes, in so indeed. many ways, depending on your vantage point. God. So there he is. And um, what I found fascinating is, you know, you have this long standing, never ending debate about 93,000, 70,000, 73,000, how many people were actually in the Silverdome that night. And this guy who, you know, presumably is not in the middle of that debate, is not, you know, trying to trying to take sides in this this decades long battle of. of Please tell me this is like 40,000. He says 73,000, 79,000. I forget what it was. I mean, (laughs) wouldn't you come away with the 93,000 myth burned into your memory and the actual attendance announced on the WrestleMania three broadcast itself? If you were part of Team WWF back then. You know, like, why would you come away as just this, like, passive observer who, who lost association with the company years and years ago, and, and shortly after WrestleMania three, in fact, and come away remembering 73 to 79,000 instead of the 93? I find that a relevant data point in this ongoing. Because you know exactly how many fucking people are in there. Right. Because you talk to people who actually just told you as a professional instead of through the filter of what's the entertainment number, pal. Right, right. I mean. Well, what's the number to beat? Right, right, exactly. They hadn't decided what they had to back into quite yet, or at least word of that hadn't distributed up and down the chain. That's my supposition. But he remembers announcing the World Indoor Attendance record for that show, and he says, I don't think people have experienced in their lives anything where they can say uh, they watched it like he did at the table next to Gino Monsoon and Jesse Ventura. Wow. Um, he so remembers, he's in the fucking booth. He's, yeah. Up there. Holy shit. He says, Okerlund, um, he's standing next to Gene Okerlund, and about five minutes in a savage steamboat, Gene was pounding on the table with his fists. That's how fucking excited he was. or Morella? Uh, He's talking here about Okerlund, yes. He was next to uh, Monsoon and Jesse in the commentary booth, but Gene Okerlund was also in the proximity. And uh, he remembers Gene just pounding his table in excitement for that match. And for a guy like that to get so excited, he said it was genuinely thrilling. So 
This is the guy um, who brought us so much of these early era Coliseum home videos. Um, he remembers biggest, strongest, strangest um, being a particular tape that he remembers fondly. A lot of fun. They did all the extremes on that one. History of heavyweight championship and intercontinental championship were also some of his favorites. He says when you put all that stuff together in a linear fashion and see how the stories evolved through the history of the championship and how the characters interacted throughout the lineage, uh, that was a lot of fun for sure. So, like I said, I was born in the wrong year. Yeah. You imagine, like, never before has a lineal representation of WWF title history has been put together. Well, and then I'm also saying this too. If he did those ones, if he, he worked on those ones, you say? He did. Yes, he did. He put them together. That's way past 87, way past. Ladies and gentlemen. I think when he's talking about number 20, I'm going to say it now, that he's talking about best of the WWE number 20. Because after that, like I said, the That's whole when you thing a shift? changes. It's okay. a huge maybe shift. I miss, maybe I misunderstood what he said. Because the whole format is, is changed. But can you imagine? Like, it's all there. Somewhere in this completely disorganized, um, you know, jumble of archived footage is every intercontinental title change, is every world heavyweight title change. And it's up to you to go yep. and find them all. And, and to do the yep. research to make, make hay out of those very brief and generic notations on this tape or this film reel about this date and time in this arena and whether that could be the one and then finding the one, finding yeah. the decisive pinfall because it's not like uh, titles changed the first time and only time two wrestlers met. They almost always had 10 or fucking 15 matches before, during, and after the title change. So you must have landed on so many matches, like let's say between Don Morocco and Pedro Morales that weren't the IC title change. You just got to right. watch, you got to watch, you got to watch, you got to watch. Until that decisive one, two, three, and the announcement of a new champion. Sounds like a hell of a, a, a gig, pal. And I'll say, uh, just to get you an idea, maybe this is why he didn't do any more. Because on Best of the WWE Volume Twenty, uh, he includes Red Rooster versus the Brooklyn Brawler. Yeah, that would be your last. Uh, that would be an indication you're out of ideas. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. Um, the, the host had recollection of something that he actually couldn't r- recall but it's actually a, a piece of Coliseum home video trivia that I was unaware of. Um, there had been a trailer for a personality profile tape on the junkyard dog that was included. And maybe we'll run into this as we go through the Coliseum collection that was included on one of the tapes in terms of the coming attractions coming soon section Interesting. And it never was released. There never ended up being a junkyard dog specific tape on Coliseum home video. Of course his tenure with WWF, which was, right around the point of rock and wrestling. And he was one of the top three names pushed. It was Hogan snooker um, slaughter until he exited into and JYD. Um, it ended rather ignominiously because he just had such a problem with recreational drugs yeah. that uh, you could see them pulling a, a personality profile tape on him, perhaps in the midst of that. That's just speculation, but fascinating. Uh, he didn't remember that. He said they should have done a personality video on Jimmy snooker. That was one thing he felt they should have done. Talked about the cage match against Morocco and how um, how they gimmicked they around. Showed the, that anyway. So what does it matter? Yeah, they did show it, but there wasn't a Jimmy Snuka video with all of his greatest moments. And I guess to the um, the tape that replaced the uh, the um, JYD one was the Heart Foundation. Oh, it replaced it. The Heart Foundation, yeah, came out instead of the JYD one. 
I mean, as much, as great as the Hart Foundation was, I wouldn't think it would have much commercial appeal at that point in their history. I'm trying to see when this when this happened, when the Hart Foundation one. Guessing like '86 came out. No, it came out after WrestleMania three. Yeah, so they're a heel team still. Yeah, and uh, you know, relatively speaking, a limited body of work in the WWF. I bet there's some um, duplication with their tape and the British Bulldogs tape because that was oh the God, feud. I mean, of the- I'm gonna say like there's there's a lot of um, a lot of Hard uh, Foundation Bulldogs matches on this tape. Yeah. So yeah, that that kind of four four of them feature the fucking exactly. Hard Foundation British Bulldogs. So that that's kind of what I mean that <clears throat> it's a limited commercial appeal at that time to release a yeah. video on a heel tag team that was in many ways. Um, duplicative of a tape you've already released. Um, so maybe that, that does add up in terms of it filling in the JYD slot. Anyway, um, he remembers, uh, yes, and we, of course, did use the Morocco Snooker Steel Cage matches. We've already talked about that was on um, the Unusual Matches one or the Grudges one. Which one was um, it? Let's see. We have most unusual matches, I think. Yeah, WWF's most unusual matches had the uh, 1983 Snooker Morocco Cage match on it. So they did eventually use the, the match, but... Um, he said, you know, they should have done something more with that, he felt like. And he felt uh, the Jimmy versus Morocco was one of the biggest face I mean, heel in matches. a weird way, though, that was the best of Jimmy Snuka. It, it, it really was. I mean, we, we talked about that. We talked it's, about how the whole tape was of, like the alternatives yeah. to Hulk Hogan tape. Right. Um, and he also talks about the Piper feud when Piper beamed him in the coconut and how that all could have been included in the compilation tape as well. And when Snuka was on top, it was really outstanding. And one thing we, we really learned and appreciated here on the Coliseum collection is just how prominent and how um, featured Jimmy Snuka was right before Hulk Hogan's arrival in the last month of, of 1983 in the WWF. Yeah. It, it was very much the Snuka and Slaughter show. Um, and so you can see why people look back on that time period as seeing uh, Snuka, Hogan, and perhaps Kerry Von Erich as the choices before Vince McMahon Jr. to carry the WWF to national prominence in terms of the most charismatic babyfaces operating in the industry, whether under his auspices or not at the time. Snooker was there. Snooker was top, the first person you'd think of, even before Hulk Hogan, when you thought about who could carry the uh, WWF nationally. So um, he recalls doing a studio interview with Don Morocco once and asking him about uh, the cage match, and they showed it to him in the finishing splash. And he remembers thinking that he thought the guy that had to lie there on the canvas um, was sort of putting it on the line and counting on Jimmy Snooker to do it properly. Uh, so no, he said, he said, Morocco, actually, that was his comeback, um, is that it took more guts to, to lay there and survive that splash than it did to jump off the uh, top of the cage. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Morocco agreed. That's certainly the way I looked at it because, you know, Hecht, Hecht asking that question was kind of threading the kayfabe needed a little bit like, Hey, you deserve credit for laying there and letting Jimmy Snooker do that to you. And, uh, Morocco wasn't quite going to go full steam with that, uh, in terms of a compliment, but said, that's the way I looked at it. Um, and there's an element <laughs> of trust involved. Um, so he thought about a guy that had in his time, a great amount of athleticism and set up his character wonderfully against Piper. This being Snuka and thought there could have been a, a tape done on him. Um, in terms of working with people in the business, he found everyone pretty open in terms of kayfabe and working with the, these new Coliseum home video newcomers. They realized what Coliseum was doing. And that it was a formal business relationship with the WWF and that we were the exclusive distributor all independent contractors can't speak to what their business arrangement was in terms of appearing on the videos vis-a-vis home video, but uh, he never got anything except cooperation from the talent involved in Coliseum home videos. Um, 
He said his favorite piece of cooperation was doing a commercial for Piper's personality tape, and Vince had purchased a hot rod, a car, that wasn't even street legal. It was kind of a chassis of a car with a box and an engine and flames on the side. And he says uh, Roddy (laughs) used to refer to himself, of course, as Hot Rod, and Vince, who was... uh, not the world's slowest driver, as Steve Hacked and many others have put it, quite well uh, knew an accelerator, um, pretty much bought an accelerator with a box and an engine and flames on the side, and Lennon McMahon was not pleased that Vince had bought this engine on wheels, but uh, such was what? the situation. What's the problem? Take a look. Look at a hot rod. Linda, horsepower. Linda, look, I get, I get power. Power between my thighs. The power of the WWF. Mm-hmm. The power, power of the WWE. So you don't understand, because you're just you're just a you're just a, 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 a employee, right? Employee of mine. <laughs> you work for me, so you don't understand. This is it. Street illegality is what we need to succeed. I don't believe in street legality. I believe. In street reality. And that's what I'm doing here. So get the fuck away. Because I'm going to go get laid. Well, as he did say at Thanksgiving dinner, right? She is not my primary sexual partner. (laughs) I want that to be clear to everyone at my Thanksgiving dinner. I'd like everyone to know that my wife is not... Just want to get this out there in the open, make sure it's clear. My wife, who I love dearly, is not my primary sexual partner. Got it. Enjoy it. Enjoy dinner. Thank you. (laughs) So uh, they were using the hot rod in a commercial and doing something in terms of setup. And uh, Roddy Piper being Roddy Piper, he liked to joke. And so while they were setting up the shot, he just decided to drive the hot rod away. Right off the lot. The parking lot at Titan. And he just drove it away, and we had to get in cars and go find him. And Vince was not well pleased. Uh, in the end, he thought it was God funny. God damn it! And Fuck Roddy, of course, Rod. thought it was funny. So hijinks on the Coliseum set. That's right. That's what happens. Uh, Steve Hack said the low guy who was... Lojinks, too. Lojinks. The guy he was closest to was actually John Minton, Big John Stud. Oh, um, oh hey, we're none of us perfect. Was uh, tra- trained by uh, Killer Kowalski, who will be seeing in action on Best oh, of the WWF yes, Volume 2. Um said he was a lovely guy. Um, uh, Roddy was very good. Hulk was very professional. Gorilla Monsoon was fantastic. A very, very sweet guy. Pleasure. Very helpful to him in terms of shaping stories and creating stuff for the home video series. See? See? Stories. See how that works, Steve? Shaping stories. Telling stories. Is Steve Hecht teaching Vince McMahon how to tell stories in these early days, in a way? I, I want to tell stories. I want to. I want stories to be told in my life. Now it can be told. Of my life. My reality. Someone get Netflix on the phone. Yes. Yes. Vince McMerica. Yes. That's that's what it is. Vince McMerica. Do you remember um, his face at Survivor Series when he had the egg? It's, I mean, what's the problem? He looked a lot better the next night on uh, Raw. I don't know what they did, but they uh, figured something out. They probably used some CGI. <laughs> I mean, it, it's something else, this guy. 
Something else. Um, so he also worked with Bobby Heenan, worked closely with him for a while. Steve Heck recalls. Uh, Jesse did about a dozen videos uh, either on or helping him. And he was like, uh, like any good actor, showed up 100% of the time, ready to go, had a tremendous sense of humor. Um, he remembers they were doing a Tuesday Night Titans with Gene and Jesse, both live in Minneapolis, and had to make his flight. Otherwise, he couldn't get home until the next day. So they were a bit late in leaving the taping and driving to the airport. Him, Jesse, Gene Okerlund, and um, Michael Hayes uh, driving a big Titans, um, a big Lincoln Town car. And um, not Michael Hayes, I'm sorry, Lord Alfred Hayes, sorry. Mm. And uh, Lord Al could not drive over 25 miles an hour. Just couldn't do it. I don't know how he's ever friends with Vince McMahon, but he just couldn't do it. And Jesse and Gene are getting really, really perturbed in the back. Listen, I don't believe in driving the speed limit. I believe we drive below the speed limit for safety. Because the... the uh, He also drives on the left side of the road. The problem is I don't know what drugs I've taken... I don't know. Well, Al, so we must drive slowly. But Al, we drive on the right side of the road here. I mean, but you're get the dragon killed. is in front of me and behind me. Don't you see the red fiery dragon? No, I and don't. the horse with tits. <laughs> you don't see them. Uh, where's Sean? I don't know Sean yet, do I? Uh, fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Do I? There's a giant beetle in front of me. Looking like a... Paul McCartney? It's... Who? Nothing. What's it? Twenty-five miles an hour is the only way we can get to to live safely. I don't know what to do. Clearly, I don't know why. He drive with Gene and Jesse. I guess he would. <laughs> And so they're kind of like, hey, Al, can you drive faster, please? We're going to miss our flight. Oh, chaps, I'm terribly sorry. We need to stop for gas. <laughs> and then the two of them, Gino. We don't need to stop for gas. We have to stop because I have to pass gas. <laughs> yes, there we can go. He, he pulls over to do it. He's like, you know, one of those like old school, like proprietary folks that actually go into the bathroom. To- I don't, you know, I don't like to, I don't like to, to, to soil myself in, in public. Let me, I'm going to pull over and, and I'm going to step outside and, and release the fumes. <laughs> Al, Al, I'm going to shit. And he runs off. I'm going to shit. He's like doing like a, I, oh, a limp. Oh, fuck. It's coming out. Oh, I've got to pull over. Shut up, Gene. I got to fucking shut. It's coming out. <laughs> I've got. Shut up, Gene. I've got to fucking shit. That's Lord Alfred Hayes. Okay. It came out of his mouth. 
So they're yelling at him, let's go. But he pulls up to a gas station, 7.30 at night. There were two teenage kids in the gas station in the office, one uh, on the phone, rolls down the window, and Al's waving at them, and they hold up their finger like, just a minute. Jesse's like, fine, I'll pump the gas. I'm not going to wait for these people. So he gets out wearing his uh, big garrison belt and his bandana on his head, his jeans, and um, they they wouldn't come out to take the money to accept payment for the gas. So they had to leave uh, money under the gas cap because they were in such a rust. What's the problem? You think that I'm going to do something to you? I'll pump the gas. I'm going to pump the gas, and then I'll pay for it. I'm an American. <laughs> Glad you clarified, Jess, because your Mexican citizenship didn't make that very clear. But you got to understand that Mexico is in the, in the Americas, so I don't understand where you're coming from. Could this be the year? Could this be the year that a third-party candidate becomes president of the United States of America? Joining us today on CNN, hoping to make that dream a reality, is the candidate for the Reform Party nomination uh, in the upcoming presidential election. And he's joining us from Moldova, Jesse Ventura. Well, I do, hello. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I am a third-party candidate. And I'm, uh, I'm very proud to be that. I, I'll tell you right now, based on what I did in Minnesota, I think I can tell you right now that I can guarantee you that people are going to come out of the woodwork to vote for me. And uh, you're going to see me, well, I'll tell you what, you won't see me in the White House because I'm going to govern from Mexico. I don't believe, say, as a third-party candidate, I don't believe that I have to be in Washington to govern the United States. Right, the third party being the non-American party, I believe it's called. (laughs) The non-citizen of the United States party. I think as a reform party candidate that I can do things uh, remotely. You know, we do live (laughs) in a (laughs) COVID-19 America. Yes, he proposes to govern remotely. I don't see why not. I mean, it's all meetings anyway. I, I mean, all it is here. is meetings. We can do it over Zoom. <laughs> they have Zoom I here in Moldova. Yeah, I got a good Wi-Fi connection. I might even talk to the... I might even conduct official business from Russia. What's the problem with that? It's not like they'd be monitoring my communications. I mean, I, here's the bottom line. I got to stay off the grid. Even as president of the United States... You can call me right now. You can call me President-elect Ventura. <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> you can call me. Pre- Imagine that. Hoping to make that dream a reality is Jesse Ventura joining us now. Uh, excuse, excuse me, uh, Don. You can refer to me as President-elect Ventura. You don't have to call me mayor. You don't have to call me governor. But I do. Or do uh, I would appreciate it if you did call me President-elect Ventura. Finally, from Steve. There's Heck. no problem with that. He did. No, there's. No, especially from your perspective. No, there's not. The only slight problem is I you mean, if have you, yet if to you be elected. The votes, if you did, if you put it this way, if you if you count the uh, if you look at the election of of the governor of Minnesota when I won, if you look at the um, the uh, the different, uh, you look at the the percentages, and you add that to a national a national vote, I've already won. Yes. You can call me. I've been president since 1998. (laughs) Yes. If you take the election returns for a winning gubernatorial candidate and just say that's the percentage of the national vote he got, yes, he probably would be president. Correct. But Jesse, by that logic, there's 50 presidents of the United States every year. Yeah, but they're not reform party. (laughs) 
They have to follow their own rules. They would I'm never a win a primary. Candidate. I don't have to win a primary. I mean, I could, but nobody's yeah. going to challenge me on. No that. one's going to challenge me. And and the problem is, these guys, these 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 Democrats and Republicans, they're afraid to have me on the the debates because they know I'd kick their ass. Because I'm going to tell the truth <laughs> about what about everything. <laughs> Wrestling's fake. <laughs> JFK was. Not murdered. <laughs> I had dinner with JFK last week. He came down to Mexico. We had some tacos and nachos <laughs> and gorditas. <laughs> yes. Any flautas for the president? I had. We did have an appetizer of chicken flautas with guacamole. <laughs> So you know they're all lined up at Dealey Plaza waiting for this guy. You couldn't just tell him to go up the border a bit and relieve these folks. We watched the coverage. We watched the coverage. He was laughing his ass off. And then, and then, we brought out the churros. And and then for dinner, and then for dessert, we had. We had fresh churros with ice cream. That's a delicacy down here in Mexico. Where I just had dinner with JFK. Isn't this where I'll Lee Harvey right Oswald... Now, John F. Kennedy, you know, he believes in third-party candidacy. Yep. He does. He believes in a future after, well, death. Um... And isn't Mexico where Lee Harvey Oswald was trained by the CIA in counterintelligence and communism? I mean, see here that that's a, what do you think about that? I mean, we're talking about here I am. I can counterintelligence. <laughs> oh, hot shit, Jess. Tell me uh, you have me captivated. Tell me more. Um, so, yes, I can counterintelligence with the truth. With the reality of it all. To understand the conspiracies going on in the world. I'm going to, when I get in the White House, when the, when they when they finally realize that I've been president-elect since 1998, and they finally inaugurate me, put me in the White House, I'm going to show the world how the conspiracies around the world have prevented the world from seeing that we live in the land of Oz. Who's the big kahuna in this deal? It's me. Jesse the Big Kahuna Ventura. Do you have kahunas too? Is that, is that on the table as well? <laughs> and then for dessert, we had fresh churros with, with vanilla ice cream. Like anyone gives a shit, you know, like <laughs> you had to add like that extra. <laughs> like anyone cares if it was with ice cream. People barely care that you had dessert. <laughs> Is it about food? Yes. Hey, what's the Laps yeah. fan about? Is it like old wrestling? No, it's it's actually it's about food. food. It's about it's about ways to use wrestling to get to food references and talk about making sandwiches. And our wrestlers go to fucking <laughs> buffets and eat like pigs. <laughs> it's a podcast about how wrestlers go to buffets and eat like pigs. <laughs> It's a crotch-based podcast about wrestlers tearing up 
old country buffet. We deal with anal issues and <laughs> and buffet and buffet delicacies. That's a progressive pod for you. <laughs> it's like the uh, it's like the the uh, the gay gourmand, right? Yes, indeed. anal issues and uh, <laughs> just just delicious delicacies. Oh my god! So so Steve Hecht. The point of all this is that Steve Hecht doesn't really know what Coliseum Video was the bestseller. He doesn't know. Okay. Um, right. He probably he thinks it's probably the first Hulkamania tape. He remembers that he had to keep ordering new duplication orders to make more copies of that one. Wow. And that right after WrestleMania, he had heard um, that his image is on like ninety percent of everything. All the uh, uh, messaging that went out of the WWF at the time it was, had Hulk Hogan's name on it, which of course you got to believe. Um, yes. He says um, they want, I guess, in in the business, in the home video business, there's like a almost like a gold record in music, a gold cassette thing you can get. Oh, really? And there was a, he has three of the gold cassettes in his office, two gold actually, and one platinum from the Coliseum wow. days. Gold for Hulkamania, platinum for WrestleMania one, gold for WrestleMania two. Wow. There wow. were others, but he ran out of room for those. And uh, yeah, that's um, that's it. And of all the work he's done in his career across a bevy of companies, and some of it quite successful, um, the one thing that never fails to get a comment when someone looks up his company is, wow, you worked for the WWE. And he did. So that's the story of Steve Hecht woven in here to the Coliseum Collection. And uh, we can sort of appropriately place the best of the WWF series now within that that context. And... um, it's time for further storytelling as it regards the matches on this particular release and kind of the backstories of the feuds they represent and the personalities involved. And I think before we uh, plunge into that boss, it might be time to crack open oh. an honest can of paps. It helped us get Absolutely. through Thanksgiving. It helped us get through the 2021 WWE survivor series available yes, for did. you now it on Patreon. Me, it got me some extra sleep that night. I was going to say, yeah. It also uh, saw to sure. it that you had no trouble uh, ejecting from the, Roman Reigns, Big E main event. God, I don't even know what fucking happened. It's amazing. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't go back and watch it. Either. <laughs> That's the boss index yeah. at work. That's right. Um, yes. Pabst. Pabst is the way to go. Pabst is the path for the lapsed fan. Right. Get you where you need to go. Get you into, you know what? Pabst can get you into that sweet spot. You know, because in a lot of ways, you know, it's it's a nostalgic kind of beer or or franchise, really, because it reminds you of that college lifestyle. Right. And maybe even some of that early high school stuff if you if you had access to the alcohol, you know, that time period. Just like what we were all about, nostalgia and food. Yes. Yeah, so no, no shortage of uh, of options from the fine folks at Pabst. Absolutely. And, and we deeply Support them here at the Pabst Fan for their support of the cast mm-hmm. uh, going into 2022. What better way to um, add a little bit of edge to your holiday and New Year's Eve celebrations sure. than with some libations, courtesy of our friends at Pabst. If you're a lapsed fan, you're a Pabst fan. It's just how the nature of the commercial relationship works. And uh, we're proud to bring it to you, courtesy of Pabst, who's done no small part in um, helping um, us gather the resources to deliver oh, the yeah. extra punch that you've come to expect each and every time TLF invades your podcast catchers. And uh, with that, we look to the best of the WWF Volume 2, and Boss, I'd invite you to pull up the VHS cover of this particular... Uh, it's the one with Fuji in it. Yes, would that one jump off the shelves to, uh, 
a young precocious wrestling fan. I'll tell you what, I do remember seeing this one. Really? And uh, it did not jump off anything for me. Could you handle Fuji? It made me want to jump off a lot of things, I'll tell you that. Because I'm sure you were a Fuji as a manager guy, right? Well, yes, exactly. I had no idea that, I mean, you know, they always talked about when Fuji was in the ring, and so it was a very weird thing to see Fuji on a cover and, like, actually wrestling. Yeah, supplying a uh, nerve hold. It was one of those tapes where I was like, I was like, oh motherfucker, he's he's on this. Like, I need to. I'm I, like, I kind of wanted to get it just because I wanted to see him wrestle, but I never rented this tape. As to the WWF Volume Two Intercontinental Title, Pedro Morales versus Magnificent Morocco listed on the cover, uh, right over the shoulder of Fuji, applying a nerve hold to a grounded opponent. Also, Tito Santana versus Paul, Mister Wonderful Orndorff, won front cover billing. As did Mister Fuji, the Moon Dogs, Killer Kowalski, uh, Mid- uh, Midget Madness, um, surprise <laughs> endings, and more. So, thank God for that Midget Madness. Just to say what the surprise endings uh, entail. But on the back, there's a picture of a uh, Mad Dog. Uh, I think it's Moondog, Moondog. Moondog Rex and um, Tito Santana and his fighting uh, maroon trunks. He kind of looks like a Von Erich there. He does, yeah. He actually does. He's got the um, the dukes up and he's got the the part down the sides and kind of yep. the, the shaggy locks over the ears yep. there. And this is... Um, Tito's been a real character, I would say, in these early... Oh, for sure. Coliseum releases. It's It's been fun to realize just how important a party was of the WWF kind of before Hogan's arrival. He factored in, like yep. we said, to that theme that runs through the uh, most unusual matches tape that has snook all over it as well. Yep. yep. These kind of guys that f- were front and center, 1A, 1B uh, stars across the WWF circuit before Hogan's arrival. And here on this tape, he crosses paths with uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And let's put it this way, boss. It's not the worst match on the tape. <laughs> no, it is not. Actually, it might be the best match on the tape. It's pretty spectacular. Actually, I agree. It's um, it's a nice look at just how much of a complete package Paul Orndorff actually was. And I don't know if that's uh, underappreciated about him. I sense that it is. I think it is. I mean, his whole deal, basically, was that he was never afraid to tell promoters to fuck off if he felt like he was getting the short end of the stick or if they were trying to de-emphasize him or to find him down. And so he never really had time to really homestead in an area and have just like a, a long extended run. But it was clear whenever he got the chance, including against Hogan, which, you know, pretty much Paul Orndorff is Hogan's most lucrative opponent behind uh, Andre the Giant, if you want to look at it a certain way. But when it comes yeah. to house show in, house show out, drawing on the road, that famous Toronto Exhibition Stadium, 46,000 crowd uh, that he did with him in 85, I think it was, just Paul Orndorff was just the money opponent for Hulk Hogan. And um, sure. he was so money that he was turning face before their eyes and right. kind of a preview of what was to come when they tried to push awesome heels so strongly against uh, baby faces that some in the crowd could be considered spoon-fed or force-fed, I should say. They start cheering the heel, and there were no shortage of Paul Orndorff supporters in those crowds in those early years, but incredible opponent, as it turns out, not only for Hulk Hogan, but Tito Santana as well. And we turn to Tito Santana's book, Don't Call Me Chico, for a little bit of color. A little bit of color on what it was like crossing paths uh, with Paul Orndorff. Ooh. Um, And of course, Tito's many feuds have been chronicled uh, throughout the course of, of this series, including uh, Don Morocco and others. But as for uh, Orndorff, one night at Madison Square Garden at a match against Paul Orndorff, I took my first really nasty spill, he recalls, um, as I 
ran toward him to try to land a flying forearm. He ducked at the last second. He dropped down and grabbed onto the top rope, so I had nothing to grab onto as I went flying. I literally took to the air. I flew over the top rope and out of the ring to the floor. I was able to turn in the air and land on the concrete floor on my back. My sweaty back caused me to slide into a crash landing and probably kept me from a real serious injury. Everyone watching thought I had just killed myself, but I was relatively okay. After a few days, and lucky that I hadn't suffered a serious injury, however, my knee felt a little off, and this was the start of knee problems that would kind of plague him throughout his life. Boss, what mm. do we have for a timestamp on the uh, Paul Orndorff match that's on this tape? Ooh, um, Get that trusty old list ready. I'll be calling you want, on it. Uh, you want... You want um do you want like on the video or do you want yeah. like when it was? Yeah. What, what, um, what, what's the date of the match that's featured oh, on the this? Date of the match. I see. Uh, I will get that for you. Yes, we have. Uh, okay. Uh, September 1st, 1984. So that'll give you sort of a that's sense. What he says, uh, no, no, that's, um, on a list I just have here. Oh, okay. So if I've got October 84 here on the listing of when these matches on this tape took place, it's September 84 on Best of WWF, and he recalls here by October of 84, so right around the same time. I had been champion for eight months. I was gaining momentum, holding my own, and all my title defenses and building a really solid fan base. I didn't know it at the time, but the end of my run was near. The company was planning on having Paul eventually beat me for the championship. Ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to consider Paul Orndorff as Intercontinental Champion. I mean, yeah. And it adds up. I could see it. For sure. Um, then something happened that would kind of mess up their plans, he writes. Now, if Paul Orndorff actually was the next in line to win the title, I would have had no problem with it. He was one of my close friends in the business. Because we were so close, he ribbed me often, busting my chops because I always flossed my teeth in the locker room or playing tricks on me by putting Tabasco sauce or salt in my coffee. Nice guys. Nice guys. Paul had a great look and was one of the best heels ever. The way he could work the crowd was unequaled by his peers, but he had a temper that worked against him. He was sometimes an atom bomb just waiting to explode. If Paul wasn't happy... He was in the company until 94. (laughs) He was a Brian Clark just waiting to explode. Mm -hmm. If Paul wasn't happy with one of his payoffs, he would just lose it and walk. He was capable of just quitting on the spot. He really didn't give a shit. He didn't take crap from anyone. I think his lack of politics hurt him in his quest of becoming the WWF World Heavyweight Champion, which is why that never happened. One night in a match with Paul in Los Angeles, the arena was packed with mostly Hispanic fans. After he gave me a pile driver, the Hispanic fans started throwing things in the ring. Paul was being pelted by batteries, oranges, cans, bottles, half-eaten hot dogs, you name it. At first, he just egged them on, but then he realized that things were truly bordering on pandemonium. Ooh. Boss, do we have a... Also, if you can take a look as I'm reading through this here, um, yeah. a city for this September 1984 match between the two. I don't have that as handy as I'd like. Um, I, let me take a look here, because I think, I, I know I, not, I jotted some down. Mm-hmm. Um, history of WWF. Here, a history of WWE.com. Oh, yeah. Has a September 1st, 84 show. I said September 1st, right? Yeah. Yes, it did. At the Keel. Yeah, it kind of looks like a a Keel, but then they have Philly, too. As we take a look at that, I don't think, it's not LA, so it's not, the, he's not talking about this match. Yeah, I got it here. It was okay. taped for all, it aired on the All-American Wrestling September 16th, 84 episode, and it was taped at St. Louis, Missouri, Keel Auditorium, September 1. So there you have it. So this was in LA, maybe sometime afterwards. Um... By the time a fan hopped in the ring, and this is something in the wake of what happened to Seth Rollins just recently on Raw, 
by the time a fan hopped in the ring and jumped on Paul's back. It was back. not me, by the way. People asked. <laughs> it was not me. No, it was pretty clear it wasn't you. But uh, I can see why people uh, just reading it may have thought that there, the possibility existed. He had, a, he had had enough. Uh, Paul flung him off and went running because there was almost a full-fledged riot. Hey, you should have beat him up. I thought that's what you did to protect the business. You had to beat the shit yeah. out of anybody. That, yeah. Right. You're supposed to beat the shit out of all those motherfuckers. It felt good to be loved, Tito writes. Ariba. On my way out of there, however, I somehow had twisted my knee. It started to swell up right away. It hurt like hell and then just got worse and worse. A few days later, during a match in Erie, Pennsylvania, Paul locked me in a move that popped the cartilage in my already bad knee. It was very painful and I couldn't walk or put pressure on it. Somehow I made it through the match, but to this day, I don't know how. Andre the Giant had helped me to the back to my hotel room that night and up a flight of stairs. The following day, I hobbled to the airport to catch a flight to the next town. And that is... That's correct. That's what you do. Tito Santana's recollections of uh, working with Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Again, pretty much the best match on the tape uh, here from September of 1984 in St. Louis. Also on the card is Killer Kowalski, who, you know, we've talked a lot about, but I don't, have we ever done one of his matches besides um, charting the, um, the the spots, connecting the spots? No. So Killer no, Kowalski... Not really. here, no, just those stuff. We've never really done much about him. In action, uh, July 22nd, 1974, I believe MSG, against Pedro Morales, who gets quite a bit of play on this tape. Morales does. His loss of the Intercontinental Championship to Don Morocco also featured. But this is uh, this is a killer Kowalski that's uh, 10 years past his absolute prime as a big-time foil for, you know, stadium-style, stadium-scale matches against Bruno Sammartino and his sure. WWF Championship reign. Here against Pedro Morales, a bit faded, a bit. Um, he, he just looks weird, doesn't he? he? Just looks like a. Yeah. Oh, he's a he's a shell of a man. With his with. His, he kind of looked like you know what he kind of looked like he yeah. kind of reminded me of, of of Kevin Nash in that Vince McMahon makeup from. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he does from Nitro. It was a Killer Kowalski mask, and we didn't even yeah. know it. Yeah. Boss, he doesn't look great. The hair, the hair look looks every, like it's been like added on in post production or something. The, 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 the hair, yeah, the hair looks like it's been stapled onto his head. Like his he, his desire is certainly not there. The only desire he has is to go home and get in bed. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, you may be closer to knowing the truth there than you think, because. <laughs> One of the first glimpses we've ever gotten of this on the lapsed fan in terms of a match we've covered, which opens up the chance to talk about it, is yeah. what is in fact on Killer Kowalski's tights in this particular match. Do you recall the design recall. on his tights? He has a purple lightning bolt, or he has purple yes. tights with a lightning yes. bolt on it. And this was something that became clear uh, when Killer Kowalski died in 2008, and folks were really talking about some of his um, personal quirks, behind-the-scenes quirks. And it turns out that that lightning bolt is, um, is a fairly prominent symbol for, um, let's say, an alternative church that Killer Kowalski belonged to for much of his life before he was uh-huh. sort of excommunicated from it, as I can gather. Um, it was called the I Am Movement. And in the study of sort of cult behavior in America, uh, this certainly has a chapter in the book. This is um, uh, a, teach- a religious teachings movement founded in the early 30s uh, by, um, um, I think it was an engineer named Guy Ballard and his wife. And it was, you know, one of several major New Age religions, these kind of like, you know, the traditional church teachings take you too far away from the true spirit of God and will yeah. connect you to, to a higher spirituality where somehow you just, you know, right. thrive and conquer and dominate and feel good all, while doing all those things at the same time. And it had a lot of followers, and um, including um, Killer Kowalski. He was um, 
a diehard vegetarian. He was uh, incredibly skeptical of modern medicine to the point that he basically felt like it was poison, that it was wow. you know, being shoveled onto an unsuspecting public. I think, I think we can kind of deduce where he'd be in the vaccine debate where he's still with us these days. But uh, to his own detriment, I mean, he was one of those guys that would just decide, you know, I'm just going to not touch anything <laughs> foreign and I'm, I'm going to survive on air and not even eat, you know, and he'd fucking shrivel down to almost like a gaunt um, stature. Like Shawn Michaels? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just uh, just such a strange dude in terms of the, the, the personal philosophies that he ascribed to. It's so hard to be a, a headline pro wrestler for all those years and not eat meat. But uh, that, that's what he did. Yeah. Um, but again, he, he, he fell in with this I am movement and their, their, um, their symbol is, is a lightning bolt and you see it here on his, on his trunks. He, he tried to become a priest in this, um, organization, which was based in Denver at the time he followed them. And I think now is based in of all places, Schamburg, Illinois. There you go. A place we became acquainted with at the first star cast, of course. Indeed. And, um, yeah, there are, there are sort of chapter groups worldwide, um, with, with their own temple network and things. And, um, and yeah, that lightning bolt has a lot of significance, um, in the, in, in these teachings. It's like a, that's crazy. So he's out there kind of giving a nod, even in 77 to that religion while, while in the ring. Um, he, he retired, um, around the, uh, I don't know exactly when his last match was. I don't, I don't want to get out ahead of myself, but he had a, a couple of times where he retired and then came back. Uh, eventually, he, he was sort of knocked out of the, the church group, and he said um, <laughs> to his friend Donnie Liable that he asked too many questions. That's <laughs> But as Dave Meltzer wrote in his obituary on Killer Kowalski, the church became the biggest thing in his life, and every year he'd donate 20% of his wrestling earnings. Which he ended up, besides his having a soft touch, as one of the reasons after decades of main events, he ended up in bad shape financially. I'll never forget seeing him sit in that chair in that parking lot. And how'd the pastor do? I'm sure the pastor made out just fine. I'm sure the pastor had had an 11,000 square foot house. He was the best worker of the bunch. In that religion, Meltzer wrote, the color purple and a flame called the flame of violet represented the light of God in each person. Because of that, Kowalski usually wore purple trunks or would have trunks with violet lightning bolts. Wow. He claimed dropping meat improved his stamina and even credited it with improved mental focus. He said he noticed clear thinking after dropping meat. He says the meat puts something in the brain that retards mental development. I noticed I became more spiritual when I was a vegetarian. That's interesting. That's because you're fucking dazed. You're not <laughs> you know what I mean? Meat. You're just like you're searching for these things to like, uh, <sighs> right. Right, you're trying to ascribe like um, spirituality to the, the 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 screaming your body is doing for this deprivation right, right. of nutrients. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, come on! I would say there's a pretty high correlation in my sort of anecdotal uh, observances of vegetarianism or veganism, and kind of like a almost like a spacey spirituality. You know, connecting the two. Very interesting. Um, but yeah, it worked against him eventually. Um, yeah, he, um, yeah, Ms. Martino said they, they kind of made good, good mates because, uh, San Martino wasn't much of an eater or drinker either, but at the same San time, San Martino didn't eat. 
He wasn't much of a drinker, sorry, or a smoker. Oh, sorry. I say, Jesus Did I say Christ. eater or drinker? He said eater. He wasn't much of an eater. Oh, he was an eater. He, that wasn't a problem. Yeah. I mean, come on. Didn't take a pain pill or anything Every like that. He's going to the, he's getting the club. <laughs> but uh, they couldn't socialize because so uh, he was a heel and uh, Kowalski was a heel and he was a face. Um, Meltzer wrote, with all his ring injuries during his career, he refused to ever see a doctor. It led to painful arthritis as he got older due to all of his untreated ring injuries. In recent years, the oh. once towering man had shrunk greatly. That's awful. San Martino said, the last time I saw him when I went to Boston, I really wish I hadn't. They used to say he was 6'6 or 6'7, and I think that was pretty legitimate. Um, I was measured by the State Athletic Commission doctors when I wrestled, and I was 6'0, 6 foot. But now I'm a shade under 5'11. When I saw him, I was taller than he was. It bothered me for mm. days. Um... Don Liable remembered when John Studd, who Kowalski trained in the early 70s and considered like a son, was working a show for him while battling cancer and had all this medicine on him. Kowalski blamed the steroids Studd took for him getting the cancer, which shortly thereafter took his life, but was just as mad about the medicine he was being prescribed to battle the cancer. Poison, Walter would say. It's all poison. That's right. He also refused to blade, citing health concerns, and uh, thought a... Real pro doesn't need that to get people to respond. Um, yeah, I'll never forget him sitting in that chair, grunting at that show at the outdoor parking lot mm-hmm. at Albert on him, one of his trainees. Oh, God. And Chris Candido and Terry Funk and, uh. and just, he was just the grumpiest fucking, like, just, and it wasn't even like he was living a gimmick. I mean, he was just an old man sitting in a chair at that point. Right. <laughs> but he was just in pain. He couldn't stand. He could, he looked like a guy that was just pretending that it wasn't his fault that he was in the shape he was in. Do you know what I mean? It's fake. And that must be kept in mind. <laughs> and on that day, it was certainly real for uh, Killer Kowalski. Rest in peace. But a real curiosity. And when you watch Best of the WWF Volume 2 on Coliseum Home Video, know now the significance of the purple lightning bolt trunks that he's wearing against one Pedro Morales. What a fucking, you know. Listen, I, I, I have no. Here's the thing. I have no, you know, I know enough people who are vegetarian or vegan or gluten-free or whatever the Absolutely. fuck. And, 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 you know, you do what you got to do. You do to, to get through it, and I get it. And, but the whole thing to avoid medicine, I just do not understand. Yeah. I do not get it. I do not know why, you know, like... You know, it's it's like, I don't know. I just don't get it. I just don't fucking understand how people. But they think why? spirituality is going to heal them. You know, it's one, th- it's one thing to be skeptical of the um, pharma industrial complex, you know, and be like, oh, they're going to push medicine on me to make money, whether it works to my benefit or not, ultimately. I get that skepticism. But to think that um, a replacement for that is praying, right? That's going to heal your bum knee or something. It's like, no, man. Best of luck to you, but you're you're in for decades of self delusion, to your detriment. It's just gonna get worse, and right. uh, it's kind of sad that happened to him. He he thought he was so fucking smart, right? Thought he was so plugged into a higher level of understanding, a higher level of existence. And these people always, not always, but too often, end up just realizing when it's way too late that uh, they needlessly suffered. It's over, Johnny. It's over. Well, the match with Pedro was over, as was the match between Morales and Don Morocco, which is featured on the tape as well. This was a WWF Intercontinental title change. 
And um, it took place on January 22nd, 1983 in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. And it was Morocco's, um, I believe it was his first intercontinental title berth. Let's take a look here just to be sure. But What was, um, what was Pedro Morales' like? He, he just, every fucking time I see him wrestle... I just laugh at his like, <laughs> squished up little face. Yes, yes, he does have a squished up got. little face. He does. Like, I mean, look, he's obviously a legend. He's, he's, a, he's, he's, but what made him so popular? It was the just, Puerto Rican fans that lived in New York and came to the garden. That's it. Yep. I mean, he was just as over with every section of the audience as Bruno was outside of Italians. You know, mm. like Bruno would always get, prickly when you'd suggest that really the reason he was such a legend and such a drawing card was because the Italians loved him. And he was like, ah, oh, I want places that weren't Italians. I want all over the place and drew fine, Bruno, but fucking hell it's about the Italians. Like who, who shit and who here? And, and that, and so Pedro sort of picked up the torch of that sort of top New York baby face that had a particular draw with a particular ethnicity that was uh, voluminous in New York city. And um, that's the story, you know, it, back then it was just like, look, if the guy had fire, if the guy carried a physical credibility and looked like he could kick ass and he spoke, you know, either it would be an Italian or, or Spanish, he spoke a language that connected with a subset of New Yorkers that really could, you know, they could over-index on those people in the audience. That's all you needed. Just have Vince McMahon Sr. tell those people that this guy's the babyface hero for you. This is the guy that won't let you down, won't disappoint you, and you can get 10 years out of the guy. I mean, Bob Backlund has no right being a Madison Square Garden Main eventer no. for over a decade, like he looking like he does. I mean, he just has no appeal to a, to a New York crowd. But that was the power of the New York office saying, "This is the babyface superhero du jour." Like, fine, lead me to him. Lead, lead me to our savior. You know, so weird, so crazy. Yeah. Also, how simple it was. So simple. Yep. You just had to build him up the right way. They had to get the win over the menace, the the heel menace that people thought could never be dethroned, and then they just had to turn back. Uh, the heel challenger du jour every month, you know, fresh heel after fresh heel after fresh heel. And that was the, uh, that was the formula. Now, a bit confusing here as I take a closer look, this being the 1983 intercontinental title win, this was the second one for Morocco, but he won both championships from Pedro Morales. So that makes mm. it a bit confusing. He beat Morales uh, on June 20th, 1981 in Philadelphia for the championship. This one was not Philadelphia. This one was in Madison square garden, which when you look at the match, it looks like it's in the garden. I was yeah, kind of confused when I heard that this was Philly. It's not. When people talk about Morocco's first title win in Philly, that's what they're talking about. But this match on this tape comes on January 22nd, 1983, Madison Square Garden. This is after he had, um, uh, this is after Morales had took the belt back from him. I think Morocco, he came in, he worked with Backlund on top for the world title. He won the IC belt. And then I think he went to, was it? I think it was North Carolina. I think it was the Crockett's and then came back. Um, Pedro beat him um, in 80, 81, November 81 after Morocco beat him in June. And then Morocco comes back two years later um, and uh, wins the championship. And it was during this reign that the WWF withdraws from the National Wrestling Alliance. So remember some Ooh. of the, yeah, some of the title activity on these early tapes took place when WWF was still a, a signatory to the NWA, thus would send WWF defending champions out to other territories on occasion to defend championships and sort of consider the NWA's opinion and who they should award championships to. 
Uh, that obviously was coming to an end very quickly, but um, yeah, this is the fumes of that of that time period. Morocco, uh, in his podcast, talked a bit about working with Pedro Morales, said it was a blast. It was kind of like 15, 20 minutes of fire and brimstone, and then you just went home, and that was the match formula, unlike a Bob Backlund, where the match was a bit more drawn out. Um, this was pretty uh, a pretty easy day at the office. He kind of made made it sound like working with Pedro was akin to working with a Hulk Hogan in that regard. You know, you got in there, the people were wild for the guy. You knew what you had to do to draw the appropriate right. response out of him, and you got the fuck out of there. So that's uh, that's the glimpse we see here on this tape. Um, we also get a look, an interesting time capsule look at Classy Freddie Blassie, who, of course, we've seen oh, yeah. to no small degree in a managerial capacity thus far in the Coliseum Collection. Here, boss, he's in action in 1964 against Bobo Brazil. That is crazy. It's wild. I can say it's best of WWF. That wasn't even in the WWF. <laughs> it's in the WWF's archives, but it was pretty clearly, at least to me, uh, in Los Angeles, where uh, he was a huge draw. So how do they have that fucking tape then? Well, well they bought the L.A. Territory oh, right. from Mike LaBelle That's in 82. Right. That's right. So they apparently got a lot of stock footage as well and historical archival footage. By that point, of course, uh, Blassie had migrated over from L.A. to working primarily out of New York and became a chief uh, heel manager, kind of that trio of managers, along with the Grand Wizard Ernie Roth and Captain Lou Albano that would take so many uh, fresh heel acts into the garden and turn them into big-time superstars by cutting the promos. Fans were familiar with these heel manager characters, so they would kind of be the trusted voices to introduce us to these new menaces and get over what was uniquely threatening about them. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, by the time the home video business gets started, Blassie is very much um, a trusted consigliere to Vince Jr. We talked about how he would often joke around and prank around with Vince Jr. backstage and stuff and how they had a pretty good working rapport. Um, so as for Boba Brazil, um, who we see Freddie Blassie in-ring action against, they had quite a history as well. So this is no small um, opponent in terms of historical significance in the career of Freddie Blassie and vice versa of Boba Brazil that we see here on the tape. This is according to, uh, this is according to uh, Fred Blassie's excellent biography um, mm. that WWF put out. Boba Brazil was another popular character. He was the first African-American wrestler I knew who was a real superstar. Even white bigots couldn't help cheering for Bobo. As for black fans, <laughs> I'm fairly certain they would have skinned me if he'd asked. I remember meeting Bobo's kids at one of the banquets Vince Sr. would occasionally have for the wrestlers and their families. I was standing with a bunch of the boys, and Brazil walked over and said, Freddie, I'd like to introduce you to my family. Yeah, I joked. If they're anything like you, they're a bunch of shit heels. Bobo <laughs> shook his head and laughed then brought me to the table. One of his daughters looked up at me and said, Daddy, what are you doing with him? This is the one who bites and hits foul when the ref isn't looking. Clearly, Brazil's family had been kept in the dark about the business. Why would he introduce you to him then? So I said, man... Right, exactly. So I said, man, I can tell you there's no sense talking to you. I can tell there's no sense talking to you. You talk like your father. You talk like an idiot. And I just walked away. Wow. That's the business, pal. One night, Bobo and I wrestled in Washington, D.C., and I swear I didn't see a white face in the audience. I was walking to the ring, and there must have been, I'm not lying, 16 or 17 ushers surrounding me, all taking small steps. Jesus Christ, I hollered. We're never going to get to the ring at this rate. Well, Mr. McMahon told us to stay with you, one of the ushers blurted. Congratulations, you're doing your job. You're with me. Now, God damn it, let's move. As soon as I get my, set my foot on the ring steps, the first thing happened. Bam. An empty quart bottle hit the ring post and shattered. Oof. Oof. I got into the ring, and Willie Gilsenberg's old crony, two-ton Tony Galento, <laughs> hey where do we remember him from 
We remember him from Under the Cinemat with uh, On the Waterfront. You're fucking right, baby. Special referee, Blassie, he muttered, don't pull none of your shit tonight. He was scared to death. What the hell are you so afraid of? I sneered. I started giving the people the arm and the elbow. Up your ass, I shouted. Now Bobo ran down the aisle to a cascade of cheers. In Washington, Brazil always came to the ring with James Dudley. I remember him as an inaugural WWF Hall of Fame class member. Mm-hmm. Dudley mm-hmm. had started off doing odd jobs for Jess McMahon, who was the grandfather of Vince Jr., then became an indispensable part of Vince Sr.'s operation. Vince broadcast his shows out of the 2,000-seat Turner Arena in D.C., and in 1956 appointed Dudley its manager, making him the first black man to run a major arena in the United States. In 2002, Vince Jr. included him in a vignette on SmackDown. He played an old man being wheeled into the arena by scheming Stephanie McMahon, the fourth generation of the family, to work with 92-year-old James Dudley. The moment Brazil stepped through the ropes, he put his hand on the back of my head, wound up, and began slugging me. I backed away from him, shaking my body and throwing my head back. The crowd went wild, but their euphoria didn't last. Soon I unloaded on Bobo, rocking him with punches, then snatching him around the throat and taking him down to the mat, choking him. Bobo was a master at selling a chokehold. Spittle was forming at the edge of his lips. Ah, ha, ha, he groaned. <laughs> Loud enough to be heard in Arlington. Break it, Blassie, Galento demanded. Break it. I ignored Galento and continued to choke, and Bobo continued to sell. Ah, 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 ah. I'm not joking, Glenta reiterated. Break the hold, you crazy bastard. They're coming to the fucking ring. I looked up, and sure enough, the fans had broken past security and were streaming down the aisle to get me. For Christ's sake, Blassie, do something, Glenno begged. Thinking quickly, I released the choke, grabbed Bobo's hand, and pressed the fingers around my neck. Now it was my turn to sell. Ah, 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 fuck you, Bobo. The way you sell, you're going to get me killed. Glenta looked on That's in amazement. Hilarious. But I hadn't been in professional wrestling this long without learning anything. With Brazil in command, the people were happy and forgot that they'd planned to tear the building down. The match ended in a double disqualification. Then I had to leave the arena and walk to my car. I showered, changed my clothes, and waited a long, long time to exit. Most of the fans had gone home by the time I left the building, but a couple of hundred diehards were still hanging around. Holy shit, it's Freddie Blassie. Some oranges, apples, and wadded-up wrestling programs were tossed my way, but I could read the mood of the crowd, and I realized that it would be suicidal to go into my gimmick. I just looked straight ahead, not reacting to anything, and walked. The crowd followed behind me, but because I was out of character, they weren't sure what to do. I like that, that tension. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, you know? we, what's going on? Like, is he going to do something? It's like when you follow someone that you think is dressed for Halloween, but you're not sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there was, or you think it might be a, like a statue or a lawn decoration, but it's actually oh a person. God. There was an eerie quiet as I found my car, put my key in the lock, and gradually opened and closed the door. Once in a while, some asshole shouted an insult to scattered laughter. As a rule, though, the group was tense but cautious. I turned on the ignition and backed up, very slowly because I didn't want to bump anybody. If I'd run someone over, it would have been the end of Freddie Blassie. There were some people in my way, but I didn't honk the horn. I just kept going at an easy pace. It's the only time I didn't want to bump anybody. That's correct. Yeah, the Harley Race never had that problem. Right. Until the people moved out of the way. Then I shifted into drive and got out of there. A block or two away, I remembered my Catholic upbringing. Looking heavenward, I said, thanks for everything. Fred Blassie, after working with Bobo Brazil. Who knows, boss? Maybe after this September 64 collision, something similar happened. Maybe. But keep that in mind as you watch these two tangle on Best of the WWF Volume 2. And we also get, finally, uh, an historic uh, tag team title change. We get a couple of them, actually. Um, one is when Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson, um, the sole connection, lose the championships to Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch. This took place on April 17th of 1984. And I believe it was in Allentown or were they in Hamburg at this point? Let's see. This was a big one at the time because it was such a short-lived reign for um, Atlas and Johnson who looked like they were just 
just great, a great babyface team to carry the belts for a long, long time and draw really well. But due to all kinds of disharmony within the unit and with Vince Jr., as it turns out, as it regards uh, Tony Atlas, the duo was to be short-lived. And essentially, as soon as Vince got his hands on power, mm. it was over for uh, the Rocky Johnson-Tony Atlas duo, who was christened really under Vince Sr. But yes, it was, uh, in fact, Allentown at the Agricultural Hall, April 17th of 1984. Yeah. Dick Murdoch and Adrian Adonis beat Atlas and Johnson. We'll also be seeing, I guess, this match uh, on the Tag Team Champions uh, collection VHS to come. But uh, Rocky Johnson tells quite the story. Atlas kind of touches on it a bit. He doesn't have a lot to say. He's got a lot to say about Rocky Johnson, as we've talked about before. The Hall of Shame and Pain episode on Rocky yes. Johnson's uh, Hall of Fame induction speech has a lot of it in there, where Atlas basically has a menu of gripes about Rocky Johnson, which are just, you know, tremendous. Uh, tremendous to know that they hated each other the whole time. I love it. I fucking love it. Or got on each I other's nerves the whole time. Um, but as for Atlas, just quickly to check in, um, when Johnson comes out with his book with the same co-author, Scott Teal, by the way, he, um, let's say, fact checks quite a bit of what Atlas says in this book, which is a nice advantage when you're the person writing second, right? Oh, of course. You can just come at him. Um, let's see. What Tony Atlas has to say in his book, Too Much Too Soon. Um, Vince didn't say, okay. Uh, there was an incident with Pat Patterson. We've talked about this before, um, where there was a disagreement backstage um, over something that had happened in the ring where um, where he perceived that Rocky Johnson was doing, I think, a gorilla press slam or some move that Atlas considered exclusive to his arsenal. And despite calling him out on it, it continued, so he got pissed off. And uh, when they got back to the dressing room, he screamed, don't put me with Rocky again to Patterson uh, and uh, hit, um, slammed the championships into Pat's chest and Pat took a bump. So, uh, that was, um, he punched uh, Rocky in the face as well he after this. And then there was a bit of a schmoz and everyone jumped he, in to break it. Patterson bumped? Patterson bumped after he shoved the, uh, the tag belts in his chest. So I guess he was trying to, he's trying to say that um, Patterson kind of said he got hurt in this whole thing. The word was he got hurt. And I think what Atlas is trying to say is it was basically like a, like a theatrical thing. Like, you know, he, he's skeptical as to the degree to which Pat Patterson really got hurt from that. And I love this. That'd be hilarious if you'd like, you know, a little tap or whatever. And oh, my God. Patterson gets air. <laughs> <laughs> like a soccer player. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, yeah, people knew all about the incident the next day, and he said he didn't realize how much damage he'd done to myself when he hurt Pat Patterson. He said Pat had a lot of power in the office, and he would one day become the number two man of the company. After that, Pat only talked to me when it was absolutely necessary. Vince, Tony Atlas writes, didn't say anything about the incident, not one word. That's one thing about the McMahons. If you do something to offend them, the chances are good. They will never mention it to you. They will not confront you. That was the opposite of Ole Anderson, he says. It would be in his face the next time he saw me. Vince wouldn't do that. He would wait until he had a day off, like the last time he fired me. When I got home for a four-day break, my wife was standing in the doorway with a letter in her hands. You got a letter from the office. It opened, I opened the letter, and it read, your services are no longer needed. That's right. Huh? Um, so he says, Strongbow told him Patterson Gorilla wanted him out the most. Pat had good reason. He doesn't blame him for feeling the way he did. Showing him disrespect in front of the boys. Monsoon wanted him out because he made him look bad one night when he tried to take him down in the dressing room. They were doing play wrestling and it got out of hand and he blocked a lot of oh gorillas moves, which is just fucking God, you know, grow up guys. Um, it's fake. That's correct. And you're fake. 
So why don't the sooner you come to terms with that, the better off we'll all be. So, uh, yes, uh, Rocky and I dropped the tack traps. He writes, this is not a sport. And now in town to Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch on April 17th, 1984. During the four months we held the titles, we only defended the belts two times, Atlas writes, once in Canada and once when we lost them. The reason we didn't defend them was because we just couldn't get along. We lost the belts after Vince Jr. took over the company and during a time when Vince Sr.'s health was failing. He writes, one of the last major decisions Vince Sr. made in the business was to make Rocky and me the tag champions and he wanted to give us time to get over. That was the way he was. Whenever Vince made up his mind, nothing could change it. When Vince Jr. took over, however, the first thing he did was take the belts from us. Fuck you! And of course, (laughs) prior to this in the Coliseum collection, we did talk about uh, Atlas and Johnson uh, winning the tag team championships and uh, thus chronicled. Yeah, we saw that. We did. We did. We saw that title win. Um, And thus, uh, we also talked at the time, touched on. That was on the bloopers tape, wasn't it? How unceremoniously it ended. Yes, let's take a look. I'm trying to pull it up as we speak here. It's the bloopers one. Yeah, there's so much weird stuff on that tape. Doesn't even seem like there were matches. But yeah, they had uh, Orndorff's Atlas. We talked about that feud because they had the pose down uh, battle. Uh, Hogan making protein shakes. Adonis and Murdoch visiting New York. Yeah, I don't see it on there. It certainly wasn't on the Hulkamania tape. It wasn't on Best of WWF Volume 1. WrestleMania came out. Most unusual. Maybe it was most unusual. No, it wasn't on there. Andre. I know we I know we saw it. I know we did. Hold on. Yeah, let's see where we came across that. Okay. Hold on here. So we got Yeah, they must have showed a clip of it in the Bloopers tape. That I must think have. it was the bloopers. They won him from the Samoans when when Albano hit him right. over the head with the with the wooden chair. Right, and that was the that was the that was the whole gimmick. Yeah, it must be was part that. of what in this rundown of the tape is is uh, Lou Albano's many appearances on TNT. One of them must have been them talking to him about his his charges, the Wild Samoans losing the championships. But for a flip side perspective on this loss to Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch of the Tag Team Championships, who, again, we saw personality profiled in the very first WWF Coliseum release, we turn to Rocky Johnson's book. Um, Tony's rants, he's talking about Tony Atlas, uh, didn't end with his fellow wrestlers. He mentions Tony's drug problems, beginning with marijuana, but then him getting hooked on cocaine. You know how that goes. Um, he would have to wait all kinds of time. I, I can guarantee, I can promise you now, I can confirm bloopers, bleeps, and body slams. Thank you. Thank you. Within the whole, um, yeah, the, the whole, right before the, uh, the Italian cuisine bit and after the Samoan cuisine. So in between foods. I see. Delicious. That was such a strange early tape, but such as it was. And it's getting stranger. They all, fr- they're all strange early tapes. Yeah, but the further we get away from that one, that's a real fucking outlier. The better the better we are. Yes, indeed. Uh, so he recalls, he, he points back to in his book, Rocky Johnson does, a story that Tony Atlas tells in his book 
about Vincey asking him for a few days off to go back to L.A. to get his car. And Rocky, who was standing there, jumped right in and said, it's okay, Vincey doesn't have to do that. Doesn't need a couple days off to get his car. We'll be riding together so he can ride with me. And Tony uh, Johnson writes, use the above anecdote as a lead in to tell stories about me driving to the towns and leaving him waiting at our arranged pickup points. Neither one of us can prove that it did or didn't happen. But what reason would I have to leave him stranded? Anyone who knows me knows I have more integrity than that. Uh-oh. I don't know, Rocky. It doesn't sound right. Sounds like you're, I don't know. Anyone who knows me knows I have more integrity than that. If I didn't want Tony to ride with me, I would have told him so. And I would have discussed the situation with Vince Sr. Even more important, not having Tony with me when I got to the buildings put me in a bad spot because the agent would always ask, where's Tony? And I had to tell them, I don't know. As I stated earlier, I always waited at least 30 minutes and there were times I waited a full hour. Of course, the amount of time I waited depended on the destination and how long I had to get there. Safe to say he was almost never there on time. It's also safe to say that the reason Tony was late or a no-show was because he was out chasing drugs. Tony admits that in his book. Tony's drug problem again, marijuana, but then he got hooked on cocaine. He spent every waking hour trying to score another fix. One Tuesday night, we reached paid eight grand. On Friday, I had to loan him a grand because he was broke. Another time, he told me I had a good time last night. I spent almost $1,500. I asked him, what did you do? He said, well, we went to a bar and then to this guy's house and somebody pulled out the cocaine. After that, I don't remember what happened. How can you think you had a good time if you don't remember what happened? I asked. Vince Senior wanted to get rid of Rocky and go with his original plan of putting the belts on SD and me, but okay, yeah, this is um, an excerpt from Tony's book where he said um, it was supposed to be SD Jones and Rocky Maivia, but uh, Leah Maivia, Rocky's mother-in-law, had been Rocky calling Johnson, him, right? Had been calling Rocky Maivia, Rocky Maivia, yes, Miss Miss Maivia, Leah Maivia, Rocky's mother-in-law, had been calling Vince all week, begging him to let Rocky stay in the territory. This is from Atlas's book. So he rebuts that. He said, Vince Sr. never said anything about being unhappy with my work or that he was thinking about letting me go. He then relays a story about Rick Martell. had left his car with Rocky for safekeeping. He learned later Rocky sold the car to S.D. Jones. He writes, it's nothing short of miraculous that Rick Martell was able to give me his car for safekeeping when Martell was never in the territory during the time I was there. Nice. That's a good one. Awesome. You can always get carnies on that shit. Just timetables. Yes. Tony's rants, Johnson writes, didn't end with his fellow wrestlers. He launched them at Vince McMahon Jr. as well. This is where you're fucking dead. In 1984, (laughs) Vince Sr. wasn't around as much as he had been, and Vince Jr. was giving us our marching orders. Occasionally, those orders were meant for Tony. Tony and Vince Jr. mixed like oil and water. Tony had no respect for Vince and talked down to him. No matter what Vince told him, Tony took offense and argued. I don't work for you. I work for your dad. I used to tell him, Tony, just keep your mouth shut. You know he goes back to his dad and tells him everything you say. When Vince wasn't in the dressing room, Tony talked smack about him. I told him he needed to keep his comments to himself because the Stooges were relaying everything he said back to the office. When I said that, he cut me off in mid-sentence. I know what the fuck I'm doing. You do your thing, I'll do mine. It was obvious. Yes. It was obvious that Vince Jr. didn't care much for Tony. They argued almost every night. They didn't talk. They screamed and yelled at each other. Tony would storm back into the dressing room and yell, I'm not taking no bullshit from nobody. Oh, yeah, Tony? I was, in, Fucking thing I was sucks. in the dressing room one night when they went at each other right in front of everybody. Tony, what's the matter? We're doing everything we can to make you money. These aren't slave days. You don't own me. You know, Tony, you have a million dollar body, but you have a five cent brain. Oof. I was in Struthers, Ohio, when Gorilla Monsoon walked into the dressing room and told us that Vince McMahon Sr. had died from pancreatic cancer at the age of 69. It was so strange because the baby faces weren't allowed to attend the viewing or the funeral, just the heels. I would have thought they would have chosen the baby faces or at least have had a private that, viewing. That, that sounds to weird. me like he missed the baby face one. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> A few weeks after his father died, Vince Jr. was in the dressing room, and after a particularly heated argument with Tony, said, if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't, pardon me, if it wasn't for me, you'd be nothing. 
That's Vince talking to Tony Atlas. That's the reality. There it is. Come on, you son of a bitch. Fuck it. You are shit. I am the one that created you. I created Tony Atlas. I created Saba Simba. You are nothing but a worthless piece of human flesh. All of you are. You wouldn't know what to do with your hands, with your eyes, with your whole fucking bodies if it wasn't for me. Fuck you. Fuck you. And if you don't shape the fuck up, I'm going to kill you. That's right. That's right. Hard. (laughs) That's the next step here, pal. (laughs) That was a phrase Rocky writes, I heard Vince use with a lot of people. You're lucky we gave you a second chance. We made you and we can break you anytime we want. Instead of shutting his mouth and just going about his business, Tony said, what are you talking about? I'm the one who got myself over. I'm the one who does the power slam. Two weeks later... On April 17th, 1984, we were back in Allentown for the Championship Wrestling TV taping. We were scheduled to wrestle Dick Murdoch and Adrian Adonis on the last match of the third taping. Shortly before we went out to wrestle, Vince Jr. took me aside and said, we have to get rid of Tony. We can't do anything with him. We're going to have you drop the tag belts today. I asked, do you want me to leave too? No, no way. We're getting ready to expand. We're going into Tennessee, Minnesota, Florida, North Carolina, everywhere. It didn't surprise me that they were going to fire Tony. Pat Patterson, who worked in the office with Vince, told me several times, I don't know what we're going to do with him. He really draws, but he goes from hot to cold in a split second, and there are a lot of guys who flat out refuse to work with him. Vince then brought Tony, Murdoch, and Adonis in to discuss the finish. When Vince told them the belts were going to change hands, Tony had nothing to say. I had a strong suspicion that since he planned to fire Tony, Vince wanted him to do the job. I knew that would lead to an all-out war, not to mention the possibility of Tony walking out. So I said, let them take the fall on me. Vince thanked me later that night because he knew why I did it. He also told me I would be working an angle with Roddy Piper during the second taping on Piper's Pit. During the segment, Piper said he brought me out to shine his shoes, so I slapped him and we launched into a full-scale old-school studio brawl, which brings us to another excerpt from Tony's book. It's Okay, that's the Rocky and I belts thing. You're not going to make a job boy out of me like you did SD. Rocky went to Vince and said, okay, he put that word in Rocky's mouth. Rocky responds, I had several conversations with Vince Jr. and Vince Sr., but I would never say anything like, you're not going to make a job boy out of me like you did SD. For one thing, Vince had already told me about my upcoming program with Roddy Piper, and if I had any discussion at all, I wouldn't say something like that in the dressing room in front of everyone. I would go to the office and talk to a man-to-man. Vince Sr. has always been a voice for Tony, but when he died, there was nothing to hold Vince Jr. back. He wasn't going to continue to allow one of his employees, and that's what we all were, even though we were free agents. (laughs) a good one to talk back to him in front of everyone if you're if you're if you're if you're a private contractor you're not an employee right well that's he said you're both somehow no Um, no that was um you know what rocky pal read your book pal let me me, read it i I, listen big fan big fan of the book love the love the anecdotes love the the back and forth with tony atlas one little problem though pal you were never an employee of the WWE. You were a private contractor. Now, what I need you to do is to go back and rewrite the entire book. Right. I understand that it's been published. I've already made the phone calls. They've all, all the copies have been recalled. That's why that happened. 
and you are to go back and rewrite the entire book and correct one sentence, but you have to start from scratch. And, and, and uh, as a matter of fact, Al, to, every time you mention WWE and working at this great company, you need to include, much like, you know, a disclosure you'd see, like a, an ethics yeah. disclosure, conflict of interest disclosure, you have to say, for whom I was an independent contractor for a number right. of years. Yeah, every, that. And also, as another contractual obligation, uh, you need to say that the WWE is a multimedia branded um, streaming television based uh, entertainment based content creating um, individualist yet cooperative uh, entertainment vehicle of a uh, of, of the, the future capiche can you do that for you me pal you get it get it go rewrite the book you can't look at your old pages. I'm going to burn these copies. Rocky, if you don't do the right thing, I'm going to burn you. Let me, let me tell you something. What I'm going to do is I'm going to melt that fucking Hall of Fame ring. And then I'm going to pour it over your fucking eyes. <laughs> I'm going to watch it harden over your eyeballs. And then I'm going to kick you in the face. You'd be nothing without me. You are nothing. The only thing, the only way you were ever anything is because I provided people with the illusion that you were something. But you are nothing. You are nothing but a fake fraud bitch. <laughs> An FFB, as we say in the trade. That's right. A fub. So, um... He wasn't going to continue to allow one of his employees to talk back to him in front of everyone. Vince was the boss. He signed our paychecks and had every right to tell us what to do and what not to do. Vince put Tony and I together as a tag team several more times in the weeks that followed, but he never gave us a rematch with the new champions, which was out of the ordinary because the former champions were always given an opportunity to chase the new title holders. On May 19th, one month after we dropped the belts, Tony and I were both booked in Landover, Maryland. When I walked into the dressing room, the first person I saw was Boba Brazil. I immediately knew that Tony's day had arrived. Tony was booked on the card in a six-man with S.D. Jones and me against Roddy Piper, Paul Orndorff, and David Schultz. Vince, however, had no intention of letting Tony wrestle, hence the presence of Bobo. Unfortunately, we didn't have cell phones in those days, so Vince had been unable to reach Tony to tell him he wasn't needed on the show. As always, Tony was partying somewhere and was unreachable. He had wrestled four nights earlier in Brooklyn, but nobody had seen him since. Sugar Ray Leonard... One of the greatest boxers of all time was there that night and brought his son to the dressing room to meet me. Ray was a wrestling fan. We first met in Landover, April 23rd, 83, when I challenged Don Morocco for the Intercontinental title, etc., etc. Okay, name dropping. Uh, Tony flew to into Dulles Airport from wherever he had been and walked into the building around the time the first match started. Sugar Ray and his boy were still in the dressing room when he came in. Pat Patterson worked in the office, but he was scared to break the news to Tony. Pat told me, I'm not telling him and gave me a strange look as if he thought I might volunteer since Tony and I had been tag team partners. Well, don't look at me. I ain't telling him it's not my job. Vince refused to do it as well. He had seen Tony fly off the handle more than once and wasn't going to put himself in arm's way. No, 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 no. The burden fell in grill monsoon, Vince's TV commentator and backstage manager. I was like Gino. He weighed about 400 pounds and had the reputation of being a shooter, so Tony would have thought twice before he tried anything. Gorilla was a nice guy and very likable, and he probably handled it better than anyone else would have anyway. Tony, this isn't my decision. Comes from the office, but it's my job to inform you that we can't use you anymore. Tony paused for a few seconds and said, well, when I finish wrestling tonight, I'll go talk to Vince. Sorry, Tony, you aren't working tonight. 
Tony went berserk. He took his tirade to a level I had never before seen. He screamed. He hollered. He picked up chairs and threw them against the wall. Then he started swearing and shouting every filthy word in his vocabulary. Sugar Ray, his eyes as big as saucers, grabbed his kid by the arm and hustled him out. Tony never knew who they were there. Somebody must have called for help because their three policemen rushed in. Tony, you have to leave the building. How the hell am I going to get back to the airport? That's up to you. Let's go. Two of the cops each took an arm and the other followed behind. Vince eventually hired Tony back, but only after letting him sit on the sidelines for six months. (laughs) I worked a full year after Tony left, and when he returned in October, we teamed up just two times. Vince lived up to his word and featured me in a program with Roddy Piper. Based on what Scott Teal could find during the next five months, Roddy and I wrestled in singles matches at least 22 times. Of those, I did a job 21 times, and we were both disqualified during a match in Chicago. I never complained about the jobs. Why would I? I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life, and I was working on top. In 2010, at a fan convention in Charlotte, Tony came over to the table where I was signing autographs and shook my hand. He said, everybody says we have a lot of heat, but I want you to know you don't have any heat with me. I said, hey, I don't have any problem with you. And I didn't. Sure, he wrote things about me that weren't true, but if it didn't affect my life, I trusted the people who knew me would be able to read between the lines and know what was true and what wasn't. I gave Tony credit for standing up like a man and apologizing for what he'd written. Wait, wait, wait. He's He's claiming that people who knew him would know what's true and what's false? Yes. Those who knew him know he's a fake athlete and a liar. Right. So how the fuck are they going to know what's being what's truthful and what's not? They should be the last ones to feel like they've got the right. right. Um, that's tremendous. I just wanted to make the book interesting to help it sell, he says, uh, Atlas admitted to him. <laughs> he's getting all his receipts in, in this book to Rocky Johnson. I told him, I have no problem with that. A lot of guys do that. The only problem I have with the book is I know I can kick your ass. You're not sure whether you can kick mine. We both laughed and had a nice conversation. I have to admit, aside from the exaggerations Tony made, I really enjoyed his book. When he placed blame for the downfall of his career, he put it all on himself when he wrote, <laughs> Jesus, bury him. Yeah. Tony Atlas's failures. It takes a man to own up to his mistakes. I have to respect Tony for that. So there you go. That's the story of how they dropped the belts here wow. to Adonis and to Murdoch. On this TV taping in 1984. Also on the tape, we see a tag title change from much earlier in the decade, October 13th, 81, where Tony Gurria and Rick Martell, a perennial babyface tag team in the New York circuit, lose the championships to Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, who at the time were managed by Captain Lou Albano. More of that, or more on that, I should say, in the deep dive portion of our program. Mm-hmm. And, boss, we are coming off of Turkey Day 2021. We are coming off of the giving of thanks. Yes, yes. Thanks have been given. But uh, those to whom we're most thankful in this most blessed of seasons now get center stage because of course. we turn to the paying customer. Yes. We turn to the cohort that sets the lapsed fan apart from just about yes. any other podcast on earth. Listener for listener, dollar for dollar. It's our pleasures on Patreon that make us feel especially blessed this holiday season. That is true. I'm, you know, you know, the, they understand, they understand that at this time of year, it's the season of giving. Yeah. You yeah. understand we, and we give and we give back. We give back in that ass. <laughs> we give it to the back. We give it in the back. We give it back in general. And um, patreon.com slash the lapsed fan is where you can go to declare that you are an adult. <laughs> 
You are not a man child. Uh, You understand that quality content must be paid for. And what better way to pay for it than to go to the audience, go direct to consumer, if you will. No advertising middlemen necessarily, because, of course, if you pledge to us on Patreon, you get ad free versions of the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast, as well as exclusive content. I mean, we have to sell hard because we we just we don't care if people have a problem with it. It's always worth it because folks have put the cheese on the table, have deemed us worthy for a significant uh, apportionment every single month at Patreon. They get their money's worth and more, but it doesn't mean we're not still humbled before them, humbled as if before the Christ child. I mean... Oh, yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Humbled before the Christ child or before the uh, Iron Cheek, either one. As it were, Baltazar, you you can keep going. (laughs) Where's the wrestler named Baltazar? We have yet to get that. <laughs> that needs to happen. Maybe. And he comes down wearing robes on a camel. I highly thing. encourage Roman Reigns to refer to his wise man, Paul Heyman, this holiday season as Baltazar. Baltazar. We'll pretend we didn't say it first and everyone oh will be fine. God. But uh, <laughs> it, it's Jesus Christ, boss. Going into holiday movie season under the cinemat oh. for the VIP tier over at Patreon. Oh, if you're going to take a time to-, to do it, I mean, this season, this is it. Absolutely. Very excited to bring it back. You know, we had a little break over Thanksgiving, but here we are. And hey, you know what? It's the it's the one year anniversary. A Is year it? ago, yes. this week, we started uh, under the cinemat with uh, Santa, uh, Santa with muscles. <laughs> oh, of course. Naturally. The, as you have to. And uh, we continue our Christmas movie season with Batman Returns. <laughs> Christmas movie. You got absolutely it. Absolutely. Featuring featuring. Almost pro wrestler, trained but never quite got to the big time. Andrew Briniarski. Looking forward to the story of Andrew Briniarski, who otherwise, oh, yes. I think it's safe to say we wouldn't have gotten to at TLF. No, I don't think, I think it's very safe to say we wouldn't have gotten to to uh, uh, Mr. Briniarski. And that's the magic of Under <laughs> the Cinemat for absolutely pro grapple fans. First, is that we. We, we choose movies that concern a wrestler or feature a wrestler, and we go uh, as deep as one can on yes. that wrestler's story and telling the story of a film. But we switch roles. If you're unfamiliar, Bossman takes the hosting chair. I sit back and just sort of revel in the, the research that him and his colleague, James Irwin, bring forward. Oh, and he's it's, a beast. It's just a cavalcade of, of, of cinephile delight. So many movies I've been able to see and understand because of Under the Cinemat. We're coming off of scary movie season where we were able yep. to find wrestling connections with Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween. That was, that was money. That was seriously, you know, kind of not, 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 not that I didn't realize that connection, but really being able to, 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 to like actually have that, that connection actually has legs to what, right. Um, to watch this. Oh, I noticed that when I first saw Halloween, but the fact that it actually was an inspiration and that, and that people have claimed it to be an inspiration I was like, that's fucking money. Right, Undertaker and such with the setup yep. and Kane and everything. And, and to watch the movie through a wrestling fan's lens, that, that's what we mm-hmm. do under the cinemat in exchange yes. for our highest tier, the VIP tier. They get the only tier to get under the cinemat, of course, also afforded all the other benefits that the other Patreon tiers get, including our monthly live WWE pay-per-view calls. We watch modern WWE so you don't have to as we commence with the business of of sharpening the blade and the argument that it used to be better by availing ourselves of what the WWE is putting out these days. And um, Otherwise uh, known as my monthly nap time. Well, 
it, I'll tell you, there's there's a fascinating correlation between the shows where you actually, you know, are so disinterested that you drink enough to fall asleep. <laughs> And shows that actually are critically panned and, and suck. It very <laughs> rare is the case that you've been out to lunch on a great situation. Yeah, so it's kind true. of a it's kind of a canary in the coal mine. It's kind of that that first indication that uh, this this show is not going particularly well and will not be remembered particularly fondly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't remember anything about Survivor Series as I sit there and ponder why I'm doing this. But we do it for you. <laughs> we did it once years ago, and people responded so fucking positively and took the Patreon into a new stratosphere that we're basically obliged to do it until they, they nail our coffins shut. I know. So that's available to you. Um, and our $10 tier, uh, as well as the 316 tier where you get it on a, on a several day delay. Um, also of course we bring you ad free versions of this show. You get the deep dives a day before the general public does, so to speak on the, on the main feed. And so much more. Boss, you had a Thanksgiving treat for folks this week, as I understand it, on Patreon. Oh, yes, indeed. They, um, the, the Patreon folk got, uh, got a glimpse at this, my, my second outing in the Renaissance Rumble ring, this time victorious. And uh, it was fun. Got a lot of hilarious, hilarious feedback. Someone comparing me to Earthquake. Sure. Um, someone saying that <laughs> what, we, what, what Fred and I did in the ring was better than... Was better than what you see on NXT 2.0. <laughs> Someone just wrote three and a half stars. That's right. I'll take it. Um, just tremendous. Because, of course, listeners of the show will recall uh, during the summer, um, the cast traveled to Philadelphia to yeah. shadow the boss man going for his weekend wrestling intensive, learning the ropes, learning how to bump, learning, you know, to what degree you can in a weekend, the intricacies of the ring. Yep. And we documented it for you, but you were only able to hear the sound including the, uh, the commentary sound and the bumping sounds of, of the boss man's second pro match, if you want to call it a pro match. But here you get the visual, here you get the video, but it's only for patrons. Thank you very oh, much. My God, the pain, the pain. Sharing the pain. That's right. Sharing boss man taking those very uh, risky, very um, potentially um, destructive steps towards actually being a worker. No, I'm good. <laughs> the evolution continues. So... Um, Highly encourage you to check that out as one of the many goodies that suddenly will land in your lap if you pledge to us on Patreon. We do appreciate you uh, more than anybody else on the planet um, and will gladly throw any listener overboard um, in a, of the leaky Mayflower um, so as to keep you folks um, on board and dry. Um, and, you know, it's always funny whenever we kind of do our WWE monthly pay-per-view calls on Patreon yeah. and lament the state of the business We'll always get the folks, you know, AW man, you got to watch this AW show. Like it's everyone want people want us no. to like AW so much. And look, I love AW. I'm not, but I kind of divorce that side of my wrestling brain from what we present here on on the cast, sure. which is sure. a different mission. And we've done, you know, we did the uh, the Evolution show with the disastrous exploding barbed wire match. Oh yeah, thing. Um, that was and awful. We, and Boss loves watching it too. I mean, it's not, but it's yeah, just. Yeah, I do. I do like watching it. What I've always said is like. It's never mattered really at the end of the day if other promotions are better than WWE, including New Japan, WCW. It's like, as WWE goes, so goes the perception of how interesting the business is at the moment. Now, that might not yeah. be fair. If you just watched AEW only, their television and their pay-per-views, you would be thoroughly entertained and you'd feel like wrestling is, is in great shape. But, but I don't so think anyone's done. I don't think anyone does that. That's, that's exactly it. You enjoy AEW um, 
for many reasons, but one of the chief ones is because the ways in which it contrasts with what WWE is presenting. And how do you know how it contrasts with the, with WWE if you don't suffer through WWE? I mean, WWE? really, really, it's the job of our generation who has kids to basically, you know, give give kids the opportunity to educate them on AEW as the primary, you know, uh, as the primary promotion. Something tells me that just won't happen. It's really, it's really I, akin to being like, well, kids, there were a lot better movies for kids than the Disney movies, uh, critically. And so we're going to raise you entirely on these sort of um, non... No, Disney will always, always dictate the pace. Disney will always yeah. set the tone, rightly or wrongly. And everything is good or bad in, in contrast to that, to that market leader for that particular type of entertainment, in this case, pro wrestling. Now, I just think that I feel a lot more plugged in to how wrestling is perceived if I suffer through WWE signature events than if I just pretend they don't yeah. exist and look the other no, way. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, I'm just saying parents have the option to they give their kids do. a few years to just educate them on AEW if they want to have, uh, you know, cool. to kind of give them have give cool kids. kids. A, yeah, have, have WCW type of yeah. vibe, you know, something different. And I'm sure the kids in the schoolyard will back right off with the bullying, yeah. if you tell them, actually, I, I watch AEW. I don't watch WWE. <laughs> I don't. Yes, I'm. 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 I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure that the kids will benefit. Oh, that, oh, that's the real wrestling, isn't it? Yep. Yes, I'm sure that's, that's the, the real wrestling. I'm sure they won't have seen articles like this one that Carl hooked us up with in the uh, Washington Post, which you know was one of several great pieces of publicity that AEW has gotten in recent months. You know, because they've gotten some favorable metrics out there: the Arthur Ashe Stadium sellout vis-a-vis WWE struggling to sell tickets in New York, um, the the television rating for CM Punk coming out on on Rampage. Um, hitting WWE really hard in terms of comparative numbers that night, as well as the recent head-to-head battle where they extended SmackDown by a half hour on FS1 with Becky Lynch versus Sasha Banks and Roman and Brock going face-to-face against really not stiff competition on the AEW side. They had a CM Punk-Matt Seidel match, which, you know, Punk is a big draw, but that's hardly the most marquee opponent they could muster, and a Ruby Soho match and still beat them slightly in the coveted 18 to 34 demographic. So now there's sort of like data points to launch mainstream pieces about WWE has its first challenger in decades, including the one Carl hooked us up with from the Washington Post entitled as much AW as WWE's first real fight in decades. It may change the face of pro wrestling in the U.S. And he linked it to, and he linked us to the article, but not just because he thought we'd be interested in the subject matter because it drives home what we've been saying. What does it say right there in the article for no particular reason, way high up quote, Both companies use a mix of scripted outcomes and dialogue with improvisational physical combat in the ring. (laughs) Now, when you're on the schoolyard, do you think that sentiment wins over actually AEW does wrestling better? No. Yes. It's scripted outcomes, not a real sport. Well, actually, you know, I do know that it's fake because I'm aware, but I enjoy it for the the, the scripted storylines and the improvisational ballet that goes on in the ring. Oh. Okay, man. Well, I'm going <laughs> to go believe, get a- I believe this is where you would say, yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hesitated. <laughs> Instead, I'll say, hey, Fuller, go, why don't you go wet the bed for Christ's sakes? Um, and it's, it's, just, uh, it's just tremendous to see, no, no matter how much it seems like we've graduated past that being the barrier, that that is basically still the essential tenet of the general public's view of, the, of this industry that we 
somehow find ourselves dedicating all of our free time to is that it's just a complete farce and needs to be explained as such um, as if we've as if we're aliens that just landed on planet Earth and are encountering this thing for the for the very mm-hmm. first time. Um, so we appreciate um, the linkage. We appreciate people keeping us up to speed on what's happening in the modern business. But uh, we're here at TLF and we dropped um, recently on Under the Cinemat. One of the movies we recently dropped, boss, was The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. Indeed. Shawn Michaels. And what yes. a fascinating backstory you were able to provide on that one <laughs> in terms of the church that financed the movie and sort of inspired it. Yes, and the and the and the, the the wonderful wonderful people who run said church, and we learned that Shawn Michaels' sort of meandering interview style, in terms of you know a shoot interview, is not yes. just contained to you know being put on the spot about Montreal or some of his personal uh, failings um, while in WWF, but he also just wanders aimlessly when asked about his born again Christianity. <laughs> As he was on the uh, the circuit doing promotional interviews for the movie oh release, Zach Volk piped up underneath the the under the cinemat release and and said, uh, "Shawn Michaels bumbles because he's trying to regurgitate nonsense born again Christian programming." <laughs> but when he was doing wrestling promos, those were the mostly unscripted days. So yeah, this is actually Shawn trying to recite a script in in an odd way. That's very true. And uh, he is. also he's said, trying to he's trying to prove to people that he believes in God. And you remember the uh, what was the bit about the University of uh, Northwestern in St. Paul, people saying they. Oh yeah, um, it's it's like, like people a, just say they went to Northwestern, right? And they, it's like they neglect St. Paul, right? Right. And there's a huge difference. It's one of those like religion first institutions, the uh, univers- uh, uh, Northwestern in St. Paul. So Zach wrote, "I live not too far from University of Northwestern in St. Paul. You better believe alumni from there have no problem saying they quote unquote graduated from Northwestern." And having no intention adding, they mean the Bible version. So that's right, the Bible version. Yeah. Fabe, alive and well. Uh, I think it was asked too on the um, on that. Uh, I think someone posted something that asked where where to find that movie because um, they couldn't find it streaming anywhere. You know, here's the thing: I actually for under the cinemat, I keep a Netflix DVD account open, and that's how I found it. Lovely. I had There's to. Your tip. I had to take the next. I had to take the. Uh, get it off of um, Netflix DVD. You're talking so. DVD.com. Uh, yeah, gimmick? whatever it is. Wow. Whatever. Whatever Netflix does with D. I know. I had it's, no it's idea you're doing that. Still. Yeah. 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 That's how I get. That's how I get a lot of them. I. I get them off of Netflix. <clears throat> and look, folks, that's not a huge cost, but you add all the things up in terms of the resources that we are able to access sure. to bring you definitive podcasts like this. It's all you know. It's all an ecosystem. It's all a. It's all a um, self-fulfilling sort of virtuous cycle. You know, you put cash on the table to reward our efforts. We turn around, and when we don't put the cash in our pockets to the degree we deserve it, which is 100% of it, if not 110% mm-hmm. of it, we also reinvest back into the cast. We also try to make sure that we're bringing you as many unturned stones as we possibly can, accessing resources, databases, uh, finding access to video that might be difficult yes. to find, whatever it takes and so long as uh, the wind's at our back in the form of your Patreon dollar, uh, we will be uh, entitled to push the envelope even further in that direction. And certainly a gentleman by the name of Alistair saw to it that, you know, he's not going to be in the category of a bitch-ass freeloader. He wasn't going to be in the category of someone who wasn't pushing in the, in the general prevailing direction that TLF uh, has been stampeding since 2014. He upped his pledge sensationally. I'm talking one of the most impressive increases in monthly pledges I've ever seen. Alistair, oh, really? you have our attention. You deserve our attention. 
and you deserve our praise. You got it. And he was uh, quick to follow up uh, with a note as to what's behind the significant bump up uh, of his December tithing. He wanted to achieve a lifetime $1,000 given to that fucking Mm. cast. Mm -hmm. The 1K club, it's an elite circle, (coughs) folks, that have given over four figures in the history of their time tithing to us on Patreon. And what's sensational is there are big dollar givers that get there quickly, and there are small dollar givers who have just been with us for so many years that they get there eventually. And uh, he writes to us, um, I've written an email to you both, um, and he says, I've been tithing for five years. I'm closing in on the $1,000 total. Life changes have led me to being able to nut up a little more to get me across the finish line. But before that, I wanted to share a different view on British wrestling and the WWF. Oh, okay. My introduction to the sport of Kings in the 80s was watching World of Sport with my gran, cheering that fat bitch, Big Daddy, and booing the bad guys. I remember this also being my first introduction to Carney. The opening credits of the show would have a split-second shot of Hulk Hogan which in my child mind built the expectation that maybe, just maybe, Hogan would be fighting in the smoky bingo hall in Burnley. Hogan was never on World of Sport. No. Like a lot of children of the 80s, my introduction to WWF was the trading cards and figures. With WWF wrestling restricted to satellite television, a cost my family could not afford, and my dad forbid, as it would put money in the pocket of Rupert Murdoch, I was restricted to glimpses at friends' houses. I once convinced my mother to buy a Coliseum home videotape, hey now, on the Coliseum collection. Ooh. With Hogan and Andre on the cover, but after 15 minutes of watching it, it was removed from the video recorder and swiftly destroyed. (laughs) That's the kind of thing we were just talking about, right? With the schoolyard, yeah. Oh, yeah. Roddy Piper was billed from Glasgow, said as Glasgow, my hometown, but his accent to me said anything but. Not me, not my friends, ever thought he was a Scot. Though his history of alcohol and drug problems certainly made him a prime candidate. You You may think that the British bulldog Davy Boy Smith would have been our man, but the Union Jack was especially contentious in Glasgow. In the 80s, my home city was divided between the Protestant Unionists that believe in Britain and the Queen and the minority Catholics. A quick aside to make my point, when I was 18, I worked in France cleaning caravans for British and Dutch holidaymakers. I'd be happy when I met people from Scotland, and they would always ask me one question. What school did I go to? I thought nothing of it and assumed they knew my village. It only dawned on me months later why they were asking me that question. Any school with a saint in front of it, St. Margaret, St. Joseph, was a Catholic school, so they were trying to figure out which religion I was. The Union Jack is a unionist symbol, tied to Margaret Thatcher and an oppressive conservative government that treated Scotland as a vassal state, with cut glass accented politicians telling the Scots what to do and, to my eyes, denying our sense of nationhood. So when I saw Davy Boy wrapping himself in the Union Jack, it actively turned me off. He represented a side of my culture that I did not identify with. Add to that, the cornrows, those fucking ridiculous cornrows, my nine-year-old mind came to one conclusion. He was a bitch. Yes. I no longer I no longer live in Scotland, and I do believe it has got much better, but I wanted to share how these symbols used by wrestlers to get over could be interpreted in different ways. To finish, I want to share what the lapsed fan has meant to me over the last six years. I've spent a lot of time living in different countries, and one of the biggest challenges in, is finding intelligent conversation that broadens your horizons. You have been a constant companion in all that time, from lying on my couch in Brisbane when I should have been writing my dissertation, ignoring cunts on the London underground, to now setting up a new life in Kane's <laughs> hometown of Madrid, Spain. <laughs> what you do is a public service to those that need both belly laughs and intellectual stimulation. And the only adequate recompense is the increased Patreon pledge to get me into the 1K Club. Thank you. Alistair Files. P.S. 
cameo request. Well, holler over there. Get over there. He's on it. He's on it, cameo boss. It is the holiday season. It is the holiday um, season. If you have a lapsed fan in your life and you don't fucking get it, it's just your weirdo boyfriend or whatever. We get a lot of cameos from weirded out girlfriends and wives. Um, It's so fucking true. Jump over there and put put a, you know, twist the uh, little knob on the back of the boss man and make him sing and dance for you. I know. It's pretty much what it is. You, know, you put a you put a fucking quarter in, and all of a sudden it's like. <laughs> Have you done anything sort of strange lately? Kind of. Um. Well, yeah. Uh, a guy. Uh, uh. Uh. Someone. Someone did a. Um. Did one regarding a band. Uh. I guess I'm. I'm assuming I could be wrong, but somebody. Uh. In the band is a fan of the show. Yeah. And. I guess they got they got uh, um, they got ranked pretty highly. Uh, their album that came out this year got, got ranked pretty highly by a magazine, and so they wanted <laughs> Vince to either congratulate them or to uh, 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 critique the yes. the <laughs> thing. So you know, uh, I, he's not going to compliment them. You I know. think I know which of the two he went for. You know exactly what happened. And, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, that's a first. That was a first, so that was fun. <laughs> people want you to berate them, and you're glad to oblige, so. <laughs> that, that, that's the fucking funniest when people actually say, can you berate me, please, as Vince? <laughs> Happens uh, like every other cameo, but. Okay. So cameo.com slash the lapsed fan. You can pick from any of the lapsed characters and put words in their mouth. Have us deliver um, holiday greetings. Have us deliver congratulations. Have us deliver you pathetic son of a bitch. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, or create canon for these characters yes you can also take the characters in whichever direction you'd like create backstory and make us give voice to it we have fun fulfilling the requests you have fun receiving them um in various orifices and so cameo making that possible this holiday season also another great uh, lever to pull for the lapsed fan in your life is pro wrestling tees.com slash the lapsed oh, fan yeah. our line of t-shirts and it delights me to see the orders come in around christmas oh, time three four absolutely <clears throat> We've got, I know, it's always great when you get a couple, because, I mean, we've, we've had some, you know, Pro Wrestling Tees has had some, uh, a um, whatchamacallit? Um, sales. Black Friday sale, you know, so so people are, 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 are very much like, yeah, let's get into it. So I'm totally fine with that. I don't, I don't care. You know, the, the more the merrier. Absolutely. And um, why, why aren't my shirts coming up? So many. can't find any shirts matching. Well, while you're taking the, a look, let's... Uh, Let's run through. I'm just going to pull up some recent receipts here. Go ahead. It's fucking fake has been ordered. You trash <laughs> has been ordered. Okay. You're in danger being yeah. shipped right now. Um, Love it. The Gary Hart line back from the lamentable tragedy of world class. How about Yashur? Yeah, Gary sure. Hart line is necessary. Someone bought Yashur. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Some of our Bruno That's awesome. line. That's How awesome. about truck Bruno rules? Line. That that is that's that's necessary. Here we go. Back from the diesel days. I know that we can't. Why? Why? What do they close our store? What the fuck? Uh, maybe. Maybe we shouldn't be pointing maybe people they, to this. Maybe we we're certainly moving product. Maybe. I know, but like, yeah, I can't. Anyway, maybe it's just broken down for some for some reason. Yep. Anyway, um, yeah. Obviously, the, the the truck rules, and we've got what else was sold? We got Koyanis Casti was sold. Sure. Yep. We've got that. Oh, we've here got, we go. Um, well, we got an important one that's that's available now. The oil check. 
coming off the Andre the Giant Coliseum collection treatment of that Coliseum home video release on Andre. Uh, We spent no small time talking about him jamming his massive sausage thumb up the assholes of wrestlers and it just being boss being boss, right? right. Do it in amateur wrestling so it's not weird, I was told. (laughs) Something like that. And Andre's the one making the noise. Can you imagine the victim? How about the bastard Rose of Texas? How about how about this holiday season? Yes. The snow globe. It's Bedford near falls Bedford near falls or Spottersville (laughs) for the (laughs) worker in your life for the kayfaber in your life. Buy shirts that mean nothing to somebody to anybody except a fellow weird ass wrestling fan for the fan who loves. It's a wonderful life. (laughs) And if right. they you exist, also, they listen my, to this my, show. My favorite one, actually, out of out of the out of the, it's a wonderful lifeline. My my favorite is the Zahorian drugstore one. Oh gee, yeah. <laughs> Zahorian says Zahorian drugs, imported and domestic steroids, juice and rigs, minerals, candies. GT Zahorian proprietor, Bedford Near Falls, New York. The trial of George's life. I mean, it's. It's sort of the story of every great lapsed fan journey told on T-shirts, um, create a conversation, you know, uh, arenas are back open, conventions are running again, get out yeah. there, get that you a fan nudge and go from there. Yeah. You know, take, the take pictures with, take pictures with wrestlers with awkward, fo- with awkward shirts for them. It's a brilliant thing. It's That's a brilliant thing. We're still waiting for the uh, Kurt Angle quantum shot. I know that's, I, that is it. I need that. Someone buys quantum. And they fucking. Oh man! Got it. Or Survivor or Series I would 2000. Love, I would love to see. Um, I would love to see someone go with the uh, the wrestling. It's acting. Grow up shirt. Oh my god! Nobody. That's look. I don't blame you for a second if you don't wear that to a wrestling event. I that's do. Dangerous. That is dangerous. <laughs> You imagine like Seth Rollins like signing an autograph and you walk I right fucking up. Would love that. That'd be so great. For some reason, I pictured him first. You know, <laughs> or, or or wearing the it's fucking fake to to a wrestler. Oh my god! <laughs> Swear to Kev. Wear it to a big Kevin Nash signing. He yep. can't say shit. Yep. It's from his lips. That's exactly it. Say if somebody asks you about <sighs> that shirt, just say I was just quoting Kevin Nash shooting on Matt Bourne for kayfabe commentaries. Uh, so the, the long and short of it is there's no excuse. If you've got a lapsed fan in your life, uh, there are two vessels to exploit to get them something they'll never forget. Cameo.com slash the lapsed fan for a personalized message oh, yeah. from your co-chairs and the, the gallery of wacky and zany lapsed characters oh, or ProWrestlingTees.com slash the lapsed fan so they can wear it on their back and no one will know what the fuck it's about except 16 okay. people in their zip code. So I uh, look forward to that. Also, I need to thank Yeldy for joining the ranks of a Patreon elite. Thanks very much, my friend. Spence, welcome in. Get that fucking cake. Uh, John wrote to us about last week's Coliseum Collection series, last episode, I should say, on Andre the Giant. Failed to note that WWE actually re-released this Coliseum video as a DVD. Um, wow. With Andre the Giant on the cover and his big red handprint that they would use in a lot of merchandising of the Giant posthumously. And uh, yeah, it's just the Coliseum video just put on a DVD with no... Damn. No, uh, no spice to it. Nothing. Just the fucking video on DVD. That's uh, John right, writes to us, uh, greetings once again to my favorite college telethon podcast. I will refer to you guys as such because I find it funny. Sue me. 
Based on the timeline of Coliseum home video releases, number six is the home video release of Andre Rusimov chronicling the events of his WWF career, excluding his matches against Hulk Hogan at Shea Stadium, of course, before the Federation decided to push him out of the spotlight, and his health took a sharp decline, making just ex- existing a constant source of agony for our favorite oversized barfly. Given I've highlighted my rather peculiar introduction to wrestling to you gents, I have no recollection of this video, but I should point out an odd quirk about this tape. It mm-hmm. did get a re-release by WWE Home Video around 2004, presumably to hype up WrestleMania 20 as well as the reintroduction of the Hall of Fame, I believe. There aren't any notable changes on the DVD version, minus them replacing Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon on the call with Michael Cole and Taz for his WrestleMania match with Big John Studd. Wow. Cole and Taz calling WrestleMania 1. I mean, that's going to be the most exciting thing ever. This DVD is such a one-to-one translation of the original release that it even includes the hiccups present in the Andre Snuka vs. Wild Samoans match. Curiously, it was strange for the WWE to re-release old VHS tapes here in the States on their home video format. I'm aware that this was commonplace over in the UK, but that was primarily a Silver Vision distribution deal, so I thought I'd share this oddity with you. I look forward to the inevitable tackling of my personal favorite entry in the series, I'm Not Loving It, the Ken Patera story. Keep up up the good work and thank you for Pasta Mania. Thank you, John. Mm. Always good to hear from our friend Blake, um, <laughs> who just, he ran off with, <laughs> what was the Santa Rosa thing? That was, um, I don't even remember what this, I mean, it must have been, it it must have been something to do with uh, Scream. Oh, I'm sorry, Scream, yeah, and they had neighborhood opposition. Remember this? Yes. To like some of the effects <laughs> of, you know, the disruption to our, our quiet little hamlet here that they're shooting this movie. And Blake just <laughs> ran with the fucking Santa Rosa thing. And he, he was just, tweeting like Santa Rosa, like just an all catch. <laughs> and this guy, I don't know who he was, bless his heart. Um, the way Blake had phrased the tweet in reference to the center yeah. of the cinema episode, just got this guy thinking he was talking about like the real Santa Rosa. Um, <laughs> we liked his tweet. When the mind feeds the worms, where do the worms go next? Little one hashtag P Doreen Proctor <laughs> hashtag Santa Rosa. <laughs> And this guy, this guy named Juan, who must live there, retweeted it and wrote to him, Todos defendamos la pampa. So so Juan thinks he was advocating to defend the treeless plains of Santa Rosa. (laughs) He he, he took it as a shoot. He thought thought we we were, yeah, on the uh, conservation commission. So you never never know where this will take you. You shouted out Zach before. I need to shout him out again because if Patreon isn't your thing for whatever reason, if you want to just drop a tip in the digital tip jar, the way to do that is via PayPal. Just type in yep. thelapsedfan at gmail.com and you can send us a one-off pledge as Zach did in addition to pledging, which is always a big dick move. Uh, he right. um, actually sent us nineteen eighty five, $19.85 in memory of Coliseum Video's birth year. Thank wow. you, co-chairs, for digging deep for my Stephen Regal entrance request. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, the latest pum, 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 pum is thanks to him. Mm. Boss, we're going back to Boston. We're going to Mac and Southie. Always great That's to right. hear from our, our intrepid correspondent on the NBTA. Uh, and um, I hope you could share with us uh, the latest missive from that boy, Please. Mac. Here we go. There, there it is. For to Charlie on the NBTA, this is Mac <clears throat> on the NBTA reporting right. live for TLF. That's, and that's and that's what I need. I need I need live reporting on what's going on. Hello, purveyors of ass pain. I'm writing to let you guys. Uh, I'm writing you guys to let you know that the other day, 
while working for the MBTA commuter rail, I was sitting in my foreman's office during a break, and we were talking about various things. When out of the blue, he asked me, I see your headphones in the, all the time. Are, are you listening to music? I Don't said, answer. Oh. <laughs> I said, oh, no, no. Most of the time, I have a podcast on. He looked at me inquisitively and asked, there must be a few podcasts that you listen to all day. I said back to him, no, actually, it's just one. Dude, come on. Big mistake. We kind of drifted off the subject for a few minutes, but he eventually went back to it. What podcast are you listening to? This American Life, uh, Serial. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Tell, hardcore History. Tell him you listen to all, a full season of, of something. Audiobooks. I told uh, him. No, no, no. Honesty, honesty was, was, was the topic of the day. I told him it was called The Lapsed Fan. He asked me what it was, and I explained it was two guys talking about old wrestling shows, or in some cases, being an executive producer for Under the Cinemat, chatting about movies. He asked me what show I was currently listening to, and I said the 913, uh, the, you know, the September 13th, 2001 SmackDown. This is when it pretty much went all downhill told you oh yeah how long do they usually go on about all wrestling events for i could feel my face getting hot so i replied (laughs) back sheepishly this one is about 12 hours he looked at me his head tilting to the side much like stewie from family guy yes yes 12 fucking hours (laughs) How the fuck can you listen that long? I, without thinking, replied back. If I can fuck your wife I that long, I can pain. listen to a... Oh, sorry. <laughs> because I need the pain. We did not say that, Max. Jesus that? Christ. We don't want to get you fired, man. <laughs> there, there is now definitely an HR file yeah. opened on this guy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, can you get? Can, can, can we got a. Can someone please be watching him at all? Look, time? I, I, this guy, you know, this fucking. He goes like the union steward. He's like, you know, I, I'm not one to turn on my fellow brother, but I asked the guy why, why he listens to the stuff he says because he likes the pain. I mean, this guy might be a liability. I'd hate to be in the globe next week. You know, uh, fucking. I don't want this guy jumping on the fucking rails. All right. He's already you off know? the rails. <laughs> I can't have him jumping on the rails when he's off the rails. You know what I'm talking about? Here? <laughs> yeah, sure, Bro. I do. <laughs> I've worked for the Massachusetts Railroad for about 14 years and have been in some embarrassing situations in my job, but this one <laughs> ranks very high at the top. Because <laughs> I like the pain. Because <laughs> I like, I need, no, no, I need oh, the thank pain. You, thank you, yes, Not yes. like. Like would be something, but needing shows a whole different, you know, right, you know, mentality. Jack, being from Boston, I'm sure you know your way around Somerville. That's the town I work in. I always get a kick out of you guys talking about places in Boston because most of the landmarks that you mentioned I know about or have visited. And even though it probably doesn't make sense to anybody else who lives outside of Massachusetts, it's always a part of the show that's my favorite. Gloucester, Marblehead, Revere. I drove by Somerville. I was driving by Somerville. I saw a turkey flying through the air. It was the day before Thanksgiving. The fucking tur- the tur- the, uh, turkey toss at Assembly Row. I saw a fucking 20-pound bird in the uh, fucking Everett High one again. I don't know what they're doing at Everett High. I don't know what they're giving those kids, but they win every year. 
Yeah, I fucked so hard at the Wakefield Social <laughs> okay, Club the other day. Fucking Christ. Just fucking pounding. <laughs> Gets me every time. On a real note, I don't know what I've done if I didn't discover your podcast. You've got me through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. What you gentlemen do is a service to anybody that listens. That's correct. You may think this is just a silly podcast and it really doesn't mean anything in the long run, but there's so many people you help on a daily basis. I hope you realize that. What you do is therapeutic, life-changing, and life-saving. I won't take up any, any more of your time, so I'll just finish by saying thanks for the cast. Thanks for always blasting my balloon knot. Yes, yes. Thanks for the mediocre food at Kowloon's. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for Hulkamania. You need to thank the Wong family is who you need to thank. (laughs) You can only be told you save lives so many times until you start to believe it, right? I know, right? Hey, uh, well, Kellen's is closing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's what I read, yeah. Can I tell you something else that happened that actually um, was very depressing over Thanksgiving? Now, I don't know if I've talked about it on the show, but um, Omar... You know Omar, most very good friend. Yes, listeners know Omar. They they've heard him on the show. He's he's called in a couple of times for yep. live calls. Yep. Um, he and I used to, uh, you know, he used to come over to my house for Thanksgiving a lot when we were in college and for a few years afterwards. And one of the uh, one of the traditions that we always had at my family was the night before on Thanksgiving Eve we would get. Pizza and meat pie from Napoli's Pizza. Well, it's not like you're Lawrence. eating a lot the next day, so yeah. Huh? It's not like you're eating a lot the next day, so I get <laughs> No, no, not at all. So you just got to fucking, you know, you got you to gotta kick it off in style. With, and they have, you know, they have what, you know, you call beach pizza. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a version of beach pizza, which is, uh, I don't know, how, I don't know if there's anybody else, anybody other place, but massachusetts that has like this kind of beach pizza where it's done basically sicilian style with the square slices yeah more sauce than cheese and the sauce is much sweeter than a normal pizza it's very good uh it's not like pizza you want to get every day for sure but on special occasions it is just awesome napoli's was very special and they also had the best meat pie there's a napoli in every single city in Massachusetts, by the way, in Napoli. Yes, pizza. but there isn't. They're not, they're not owned by the same place at all. It's just, it's just there, yeah, well, there's a Napoli pizza like down the street from me here. There's a <laughs> there are like four Napoli pizzas in 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 New Jersey we used to go to. Tremendous, but none of them, none of them are the Napoli. It's like it was like it, you know, if you're from Massachusetts and you're from the the Boston area or you know the Lawrence area, it's like an institution. Especially, you know, for, for people of like my, my parents' generation and whatnot. And yeah, I'll just say they have the best meat pie because they're the only meat pie who of the beach pizza community who does the, the meat pie. They don't put in sauce or provolone cheese. It's just nasty with the sauce and provolone cheese. It's just straight meat pie, whatever their concoction is. Don't know their recipe. I wish I did know their recipe, but sadly... I will never know because they closed their doors. Oh, fuck. At the beginning of November. That, you know, when we look back on the pandemic, that's going to be one of the real losses. We lost a lot of culturally significant restaurants. At least around here we did. I don't know if that's the case in New York or L.A. or wherever the fuck, but 
Boston lost a lot of key. Oh. Especially there was no there was no warning. There was no like right. Hey, you know, we're going to close up shop in in a month or so. It was no next week we're done. It was like a week in advance and it just closed up. I had no idea. My dad didn't tell me until after they closed cuz I was like, "What in the fuck didn't you go get like <laughs> going to break the news?" 10 sheets of fucking pie and and just bring it home and put it in your freezer. <laughs> to live off that for a fucking year. Oh man. Instead, it's over. You know, <laughs> these, these And you have to remember that that nothing is good in this life. <laughs> <laughs> That's the- as soon as you fall in love with something, you're just yeah. counting down the days till its demise. The moment the moment you count on something as being a tradition and a staple of your You'll of learn. your holiday life, it's You'll over. Learn. That's right, it's over. Yep. It's That's over. why you always have to be introducing new things that could become the next tradition. You always have to That's right. There's it's That's like right. the song says, there's always something new. Mm. But every day's a holiday when I'm near to you. It, you always need a little something that that could catch next. The only thing we can count on are the movies that we have on Physical media. You know, I thought I could count on fucking Charlie Brown Christmas on ABC every year, but Apple saw to it that I have to subscribe to streaming, streaming service to see it. I mean, fortunately, I I own them, so it doesn't really bother me. I own them, too, because of that. I immediately bought bought it on DVD for that purpose. People act like physical media is passe. It's a fucking, it's a safeguard against these rights gamesmanship fucking you know, a game of uh, ping pong that we've been playing with with coveted cultural titles for the past decade. You know, fuck that. I, you know, I, I'm sick of being like, oh, what, what, mean, of, what of 16 services can I see this on? I mean, I love DVD Apple in there TV. and get on with your fucking day. I love Apple TV. I love it. I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not knocking Apple I, TV. I, I I'm not kidding. But there are things that should not be exclusively on Apple TV. Like something that's been on ABC every Christmas for forty yeah. years. How about that? Or yeah. fifty yeah. years. I, I it it does bother me that the uh, that the that the that those specials have been. I mean, now I know that they're showing it on PBS. I think, but who wants? I mean, no, to me, last year they were like, shamed into doing it. They're no, not doing that this year. No, 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 no. They're doing it this year because they were shamed last year. Well, they did it last year too. Then they certainly did it, on PBS it on PBS last year. Yes, yes. Oh. I think you may have it mixed up. I don't think it's oh. on PBS this year. I don't think it I is. I thought it was on PBS this year. Now, last year they did it, and it was a last-minute decision because people didn't, they didn't really make hay about the fact that they were going to put the Charlie Brown specials behind a paywall, but once Halloween came around and, and the Thanksgiving one, people started to realize this, and Apple confirmed, yeah, it's, it's exclusive to us. We bought the rights, and there was a fucking revolt, and they agreed mm. to put it on PBS as is only appropriate. But whatever, whatever. It didn't used to be better. I get it. Uh, ben writes to us, uh, in keeping with the Coliseum collection, Coliseum three packs. Hi, co-chairs. Early in the Andre episode, you mentioned that Mains one was part of a three pack with unusual matches in the Andre tape. I've noticed that there are indeed three packs with the Coliseum, but I think they work a slightly different way. Yeah, we talked more about this earlier. Yeah. There was a pattern to the Coliseum releases, one that went all the way through 1989. The pattern would go a grab bag tape, like bloopers, bleeps, or unusual matches, which they called, uh, what do they call it, novelty tapes or whatever the term that Steve yeah. had used for them. <laughs> A focus on one performer like Hulkamania or Andre, a best of the WWE tape. Pay-per-views yep. like the mains or the wrestling classic or the big event don't count in this order. They were episodic and released as needed. Check out the pattern. Bloopers, Hulkamania, best of WWF volume one. Mains one is added in. Unusual, Andre, best of WWF two. Biggest, smallest, etc. Piper, best of WWE three. Amazing managers, country boys, best of WWE four. Wrestling classic yep. added. 
Tag Team Champs, Lou Albano, Best of WWF, 5. Grudge Matches, Steamboat, Best of WWE, 6, Mains 2 added. Villains, Bruno, Best of WWF, 7. TNT, Randy Savage, Best of WWE, 8, Big Event added. Steel Cage, Bulldogs, Best of WWE, 9. Grand Slams, Hulkamania 2, Best of WWF, 10, Mains 3 added. And on and on until the pattern finally stops with the release of Best of WWF 20, like you just said, boss. Yep. In September 1989. Thought you'd find this interesting given that you're dedicating a portion of the next five years of your lives in our (laughs) life to running this down. Thanks for your tremendous sacrifices for the cause. Well, Ben, it's it's our pleasure. We're going to do the big event, aren't we? Yeah, at some point. Well, I mean, that's not a, that's not a, that's a pay-per-view. So that shouldn't be in the Coliseum collection is what you're saying? No. Yes. I tend to agree with you, actually. Um, we spent some time in the Andre episode talking about, um, you know, as you have to, whenever he's the subject matter, the, you know, the legend of his dimensions, how tall was he really, how fat was he really, how much beer did he really drink? <laughs> did he really shit in How bathtubs? fat was he really? Right. Did he indeed use Japanese bathtubs as a commode? And... Um, <laughs> We reached out to Pat LaProd, who wrote the great um, Eighth Wonder of the World biography of Andre the Giant that came out, I think, last year. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, we had noticed a, 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 con- a contradiction. One of the fans noticed that uh, Al Hayes, um, on the Coliseum video, Andre the Giant Coliseum videotape we talked about, had, yep. done, uh, had mentioned that Andre's wrists were a certain circumference, and that, uh, stood, in, that stood in contradiction to, um, to the to a piece of merchandise, actually, that Ooh. WWF released probably around the time of that aforementioned DVD re-release of this Coliseum video, where it's sort of like a life-size, almost blanket of Andre the Giant. And uh-huh. it has, like, all of his dimensions, including a wrist dimension that was bigger, uh, that, pardon me, that oh. was smaller than the wrist dimension that Lord Al mentions in the voiceover on the Coliseum tape when he's talking about how, essentially, Andre has to wear a pocket watch around his wrist because of the circumference of the wrist. And so Pat was asked, um, well, we asked Pat, you know, which of the two should we believe, Lord Alfred Hayes on this tape or the WWF uh, towel or blanket or whatever that thing was that, that was released with Andre's vital statistics? And Pat wrote, I'd go with the blanket over good old Lord Al Hayes. So oh my God. take that for what it's worth. And thanks to <clears throat> Pat for weighing in. All right. Austin writes, co-chairs, apologies in advance for the long message. Well, that's coming your way, boss. Get, <laughs> warm right. up the pipes. It it's not yep, that long, actually. God, these people need to have some perspective about how long their message really are. <laughs> we've gotten long emails. This is not a I mean, them. Jesus Christ. We've, 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 we've suffered greatly, but it's always great to hear from the solar system. And if you're going to pledge on Patreon, then we're going to make time and space for you. It's that simple. It's part of the secret sauce around here. I was a late arrival to the solar system. First of all, there's no late arrival. That's correct. You arrive neither early nor late. You arrive precisely when you are meant to. And you can always, always repent and atone for your sins. Absolutely. But the podcast found me when I needed it. Yeah. I will detail my journey with TLF in a future message, but I owe you one now. As I waited too far too long to end my freeloading ways, I was perfectly content to wallow as a pathetic leech for a long time. But as the cast became more vital to my daily life and my financial means improved with promotions at work, I knew I had to start contributing. I got to say, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, yeah. It's happened a lot, and I'm starting to think it's more of a causation than a correlation thing, where folks mm-hmm. join us at a time in their lives where they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily flush with cash. It's, it's a pretty big leap for them 
to set aside sure. even $10, $20 a month for the cast. And then how many times do we hear from these people who start to flourish, who start to, while yeah. having the cast in their lives, get promotions, increase their pledges, bring us along for the ride as they grow their, their slice of the pie. Um, That's right. And, and, you know, I'm telling you, it's, it's not a coincidence, okay? You stay plugged in to our wavelength, and there are promised lands we will lead you to. It's that yes, simple. I agree. Ask Austin here. <laughs> and Tyson. Um, about a month ago, I joined the 316 tier to cut out the ads. Hearing Jack mispronounce my name in the next episode during the Solar System shoutouts, it is King Solver. Solver, not King's, not King's lover. lover, right, which... That King would be um, one of many teenage girls yeah. in, in, in Memphis. Right. <laughs> Very common mistake, which you probably made again just now. King Solver, King's Lover. King Slayer. King Slayer. <laughs> Beast Mommy. And the upcoming <laughs> pay-per-view. <laughs> and the upcoming pay-per-view forced me to up my pledge immediately so I could gain access to the live calls. Now, I am dangerously close to leveling up my pledge once more so I can begin my journey with Cinemat. Do it. Before I get to a short lap story, I need to take care of some serious business. Hot dogs. Hot dogs. Ketchup is an acceptable condiment on hot dogs. What? Full stop. Baseball is probably the strongest partner of the hot dog in America, and at my ballpark in the country, whether it be MLB or Little League, you will find ketchup, mustard, and relish as the condiment choices. The larger issue I've noticed with this continued debate is that this nation has a litany of local hot dog varieties. Can't we see that this hot dog diversity is a microcosm for our nation's strongest asset? We should be coming together around the joy hot dogs bring us, not dividing over meaninglessly polarizing condiment opinions. Okay, now the real purpose of my message. I, there we go. Austin, my man. When I was a kid, I lived in the suburbs of Atlanta in the mid to late 90s. At seven years old, this would have been the beginning of 1998, I believe. Oh, fuck you. Fuck Feel you, old Fuck you, fuck you for being seven in 1998. I was a, I was on a competitive travel. Of course, it's worse, you know, what's worse is, um, oh, what the fuck was I? I was watching, I don't know what I was watching. I, I, I looked, I, I watched, I was watching something and I, I decided to look up how old someone was. And when you see that they're born after 9-11, it just, oh. just makes you feel sick. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, that's just unacceptable. You know what it was for me? And I've probably said this a hundred times, but yeah. it was so stark because it's it's when the UFC fighters started all being younger than me. Every yes. single one of them. Yeah. Because they all show yep. their age yep. right before the match. And it just, oh. there was a point where I'm like, oh my God, I am like the old guy to these yep. guys. It's like, yep. it's not just the new kids I'm talking about. I'm talking about like people that are at the top of the card, all younger than me. Very concerning. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it also still hurts my soul that Randy Orton's only a year older than me. Oh. That's just not right. Um, I was on a competitive travel baseball team. Unfortunately, yes, those exist. 
uh, with a teammate that kept claiming his uncle was a famous wrestler. Some of us believed him, some of us didn't. But I was particularly intrigued because I had just started watching Nitro with my older brother and was falling in love with the fake greatness of fake sports. Then one day, at a random practice with no announcement, it happened. Our, cart, our coach told the team that we had a visitor after practice. I look up, and there is a man I did not recognize at all in a shirt three sizes too small, a goatee that looked like a Satan Halloween costume, greasy short hair, which looked pasted to the top of his scalp, piercings, tattoos, and those sunglasses that looked too small for his face, which were too popular in the 90s. I have a bad feeling I know where this is going. Whispers fell over my seven-year-old teammates. Yep, here it is. Is that Buff Bagwell? <laughs> Some of the kids apparently knew he was coming as they had items for him to sign. I may not have known who this wrestler was, but I was not about to be left out, so I grabbed the only item I had in my possession. Do you remember the scene in Step Brothers where they become uh, best friends and Will Ferrell shows off his samurai sword signed by, Amer signed by American Idol's Randy Jackson? Well, in a similar... <laughs> well, in a similar manner, this is how I became... how I came to be the owner of Buff Bagwell's signature on a kid-sized baseball. You can tell how treasured of an item this is to me, as I'm fairly certain it is stuck in a random box of, ch of childhood garbage in my parents' garage over a thousand miles away. Some, someday, I will find this ridiculous token of lapsedness and, and will provide photo evidence to the cast. I am not sure if it is due to this interaction, the fact we moved back to Texas later that year, or pure coincidence, but I soon stopped watching WCW altogether after getting the stuff's signature. Thank you for the cast. Thank you for Hulkamania. And thank you for my daily dose of the only entertainment I don't want but need. <laughs> I need to say, too, I love, you know, at some point, at some point, what's going to happen is, you know, you know, long after we're gone, you know, they're going to be seeing people are going to listen to this show. And thank you for Hulkamania. Do these guys create Hulk Hogan? <laughs> you know, like all these thank you for Hulkamania. I fucking love it. It's we are great. so relentless about those things. Like, yes, <laughs> we don't give a fuck if you didn't listen to the episode where we first came up with it. You're just going to hear it over and over again until you That's realize right. that the only right. acceptable course is to go back to episode one and get your fucking homework done. March through the catalog. Oh. It's there for a reason. Hashtag shelf life. But uh, very oh good God. stuff. I love the the notion of like he got Buff to sign the baseball even though he didn't know who he was because he wasn't going to be left out. That's yeah. a fan, always a fantastic social experiment. Oh my like God. Next I time know, we go right? to a convention, we need to have some lapsed fans just like chase us down and like hound us for autographs just so yes. everyone else yes. wonders what the deal is. Yes. Um, and then maybe we could get one of them to just like shoot on us and then we like choke them out. And leave them right. like unconscious. Oh, absolutely. It's crossed my mind. Like, we'll be in public someday and, like, just have, like, a fake argument and just, like, start screaming <laughs> at each other and shoving each other and having, like, TDD yep. get in the middle or something. Yep. That'll be awesome. So, uh, Pete, thank you. Speaking of awesome, thanks for bumping your pledge all the way up to 20 bucks and getting under that cinemat. Enjoy your executive producer privileges. Um, we talked, I don't remember what cast it was, actually. Maybe this will tell me about uh, pro wrestling references and hip-hop songs. It struck me that oh, yeah. 
there's many, many, many of them. And uh, under the under the giant um, episode, James Irwin commented, I actually have a growing Spotify playlist of hip hop songs that reference wrestling. It's called Catch's oh, no Rap Can. Catch, yes, it is. Yes, it for that is. alone, I should be kept away from mainstream society. But here we are. <laughs> there's actually a surprising number of them, though. For example, You Heard by the Game has a guest spot by Ludacris in which he describes himself as slicker than Rick the Ruler, whoop ass like Lex Luger. Yes. Wow. Um, I just heard the... Um, the Mr. Carter song by Lil Wayne has a Randy Savage, Hector Camacho Man Randy Savage uh, reference in there. Yeah, I need a master list. Let's go. Let's get the master list. There's got to be one or we can form one here. Need a lapsed wiki for that. Uh, Steve Matheson, thank you very much for your generous bump up and pledge, my friend. Enjoy the uh, extra content that entitles you to. Uh, Dylan writes, I'll be, do, I'll be doing happily house chores all day today with that ducking cast in my various mm-hmm. orifices. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, there are many husbands and boyfriends out there who are being much more productive in the house cleaning department because they've got the cast Absolutely. in their ears and it makes it yep. that much easier. A lot of lot of lawns getting raked this autumn. A lot of dishes getting done. A lot of kids getting rocked to sleep. You're yes. welcome. You're welcome. Uh, TLF gets praised, he says, not for keeping employees entertained during long work days. They also need props for probably saving multiple marriages at this point. See what I'm saying? I agree. He didn't say it. Dylan said it. And um, he also remembers to add to the rap hip-hop wrestling reference off the top of his head, Murte by Jedi Mind Tricks references Adrian Adonis, Jedi Mind Tricks. Wow. Jesus. They go especially hard. Um for sure. It's been, it's been years since I listened to them, but what was it? Angels Descend Upon You or something like that is an incredible track and uh, good to know their fans. Uh, boss, it's going to have to, it was going to always have to come to this and Brandon is going to see to it. WWE uh-huh. recently had its uh, Q3 earnings report <clears throat> and uh, Vince McMahon had several things to say that were, let's just say on brand. And, okay. Uh, pardon any repetition from the Thanksgiving Day special that we dropped on listeners. Um, <laughs> but I think this is going to become perhaps a recurring thing, much along the lines oh of God. Will Winthrop's dispatches from the uh, BT Sport comment sections under WWE articles. Kind of a recurring series here in the, the mailbag segment. Here, Brandon uh, fills us in with some choice quotes, in real life quotes from Vince McMahon to investors. And you tell us, oh, is it go. real or yeah. is it lapsed, yeah, right. Vince? Good afternoon, everyone. As you can see, our solid financial results are pretty strong as a result of the global demand of all things WWE. (laughs) He said that. Including a return to live event touring, which is unlike any other media company. This is where the WWE brand really comes alive in so many different respects. And as a result of the strong indication we're going to, uh, we're going to raise our guidance, our 2021 guidance. And that's with the lack of one event in Riyadh, R-I-Y, Riyadh, Riyadh. Normally we have two Uh, because of the COVID situation. We have one at the end of the year, but nonetheless, notwithstanding, we're raising our guidance, which I think is pretty good. Uh, We saw a lot of positive trends, which Stephanie will get into in a minute, Um, but even with the strong recovery, it's opened our eyes to many more ways that we can take advantage of our IP and the evolution of sports entertainment. Then, this is, I get this is Stephanie. Oh, oh, Jesus. I thought I could just sit back. 
All right, let's see. <laughs> I mean, I can read it as Vince. It doesn't really matter. All right, you just finished uh, Evolution of Sports Entertainment, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I don't feel like doing it. Uh, in terms of content integration, uh, would you ever uh, see a pure life truck drive into Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City and have Patrick Mahomes spray down fans with a pure life branded super soaker as part of a touchdown celebration? No, of course you or, wouldn't, because that would be fucking stupid. Or have zombies replace the offensive line for one down? My guess is no. <laughs> but Depends you what, can. what they're on. <laughs> yeah, but you can in WWE and because we have all the exciting action of a live game but are scripted like a great movie we can write those integrations in ways that are fun and memorable for the audience and our partners or we can leverage our creative writing and media teams to create customized content across digital and social media that is relevant to that platform like we did with PNG's Old Spice and we introduced a new WWE superstar with the same name as their scent, their new scent, the Night Panther. Because that's what, exactly what we want what, as fans. What, what, what is she talking about? <laughs> we can leverage our creative writing and media teams to create customized content. Leverage it, is not, the, it's more like we can tell people um, to compromise for- our creativity. <laughs> We yeah to, leverage means tell people to do something and uh, yeah. create customized content means design this you fucking monkey and across <laughs> digital and social media means we post things we post things online right we we post and call it a day post. that's our job we post digital was there things. really a character called Night Panther no I have no idea what oh. she's talking about I mean maybe I'm not thinking of it maybe I haven't seen it I highly doubt that but. Or what the fuck she's talking about? Uh, in terms of superstars, the best comparison I can think of is Disney's Marvel of course, superheroes. Of course, of course. Each superhero is their own individual franchise, and WWE has just begun to unlock some of our incredible IP, which dates back generations, <laughs> with each superstar being their own brand with their own story. You know, the 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 more they try to sound intelligent, oh, so the more stupid they sound. They sound like robots. <laughs> well, that's the idea, boss. God. And that's the thing. Every corporation sounds like this, but we know the truth about who they really are. We know that they've scripted themselves to do like, you know, that Stephanie scripted herself to be knocked out and married in a yeah. drive through wedding chapel, right. which in right. any state is a fucking felony, a federal felony to, to, to take an unconscious yeah. woman across state. But it's all entertaining. Okay, yeah, but see, that's who you are. You see, you don't understand. Like, that's who you are. Like when Vince was looking at your tits on television and making eyes. Right. That's that's the reality. That's that's the places that you go when, you know, when you're not in polite company. We know this as wrestling fans, but people listening to the don't necessarily know. So they don't see it as so goddamn hilarious. Just ridiculous. Um, And then this is a a WWE NFT press release. (laughs) Better than an NXT press release, I suppose. Yeah, right. Uh, Blockchain Creative Labs is excited to partner with WWE (laughs) in launching its official NFT ecosystem. (laughs) (laughs) This is all real. 
Yeah. We know WWE's passionate fan community will love owning authentic digital goods across the organization's creative universe. From past and present star. Oh, this is not even him. From past and present stars to classic culture-defining moments, said Scott Greenberg, CEO of Blockchain Creative Labs and co-founder slash CEO of Bento Box Entertainment. RFT, our NFT studio is all about enabling fans to own NFTs and tokens that carry utility and social clout directly from the creators and brands they are passionate about, spanning animation, sports, shows and movies to music, books, art, pop culture, and every other Web3 powered media asset you can possibly imagine. Okay. And then uh, Brandon is waiting for these lapsed NFTs <laughs> from the British Bulldog. I'm fucked. A smoke crack. Mr. Hitman. Hogan. Ooh. <laughs> Brother. Stop the boots, dude. Uh, Steiner. What? Austin. What? Austin. You trash. Jimmy Barnett. My boy. (laughs) Do this next one. Do it. Flair. Hogan! (laughs) Luger! Luger. Wow! <laughs> hey, yo. <laughs> NFT style. You should be the crow, man. We got the big man. Got the medium sized man. And we got Mang Mang. <laughs> Nash. That's fucking fake. HBK. I got news for you. Patterson, get in here. Write that down. <laughs> I have an idea. Get the fuck out of my office. What's up, boss? Me fighting a moth. <laughs> um, <laughs> me taking the chop. Kobash, I presume. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be it. Cop, cop, cop. Oh, my God. That was okay. Do you remember that whole thing? Do you remember how, <laughs> what a crescendo that moment was? When we were like, we're a Boston cop. He's a Boston cop. Why is he from Boston cop? Boston cop. Boston cop. And we're going back and forth trying to do different versions of like full dialogue of Boston cop. And you just say, oh, hold on. Cop, 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 cop. <laughs> you just, it's just like you just squash the whole thing right there. It's like, I'm not, I don't even have the most clever one. This person is just going to say, because you know, inevitably in our universe, it always comes down to someone short circuiting and sparks coming out of the, 
out of their ears because they're all fucking robots. So finally, Mrs. Uh, McIntyre or whatever the fuck just breaks down and goes, clap, 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 clap. And it gets even more bizarre. Oh, my God. Good stuff, pal. <sighs> then, of course, the... And then rock. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let me know when the bidding starts. Well, I'll say this. If there is anybody, I, I don't know the first thing about this this racket, but if there is anybody yeah. out there who can hold our hands through actually putting an NFT on the market and getting paid for it and enlisting. I don't, I don't mean, what, what is it? I don't even know what the fuck it is. <sighs> All right. Uh, if you were to get an autograph of Mickey Mantle when you were a kid. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What was more valuable, the autograph or the certificate that proved the autograph was actually his? I don't fucking know. The certificate, because that okay. was the only thing that you had that proved that it wasn't just some schmuck who forged Mickey Mantle's name on, on, on a piece of paper. That, okay. in, in the collector's world, that has even more currency. That proof of ownership, proof of authenticity has just as much, if not more, currency than the collector's item itself. People insist on that to pay a premium. If you buy a baseball card, it matters not what the card is, but also its condition and the degree to which you can vouch for its authenticity. Sure. I don't know okay. a ton about this, but that's the basic tenet. Now, all an NFT is, as a non-fungible token, which is a word that's all wrapped up in the nomenclature yeah. of cryptocurrency and blockchain, it's not really important to understand, but that's what it stands for. All it really is, is that certificate of authenticity to a digital piece of art as opposed to a physical piece of art and or collectible. So instead of a painting on the wall, you own the rights yeah. to a digital file, a JPEG, a .wave, a .mp3. It's yours. Now, of course, nothing is stopping anyone from making a carbon copy and having it. But that's not the value. The value is in being able to prove that you own the real one, the first one, the first meme, the first tweet, the first whatever the fuck it is. You can make anything into an NFT because you say, here is the proof that you own the original one. That is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. And it is making people millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars because people are into it, not because it makes sense, but because there's a market for it. Right, because people yeah. see that they buy and they can sell even higher. And you think about kind of the long tail implications of this. You could you could have you could have an NFT that gives you the rights to anything. Anything right. anything on earth. That if someone's willing to buy those rights from you, then those rights have value. It's not about your ability to cook up value out of It's gotta be digital. It's gotta be digital. Now, there, that's not to say you can't have an NFT for a physical asset. You could, right? You, but it would be like sort of like a digital proof that you have a deed to property or something. The thing is, th yeah. this fills the void for property that doesn't have that kind of ownership documentation that's traditionally So, so what do you have to do to, 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 to NFT something? I don't know. 
I mean, there there are exchanges, there are websites. You, people, you know what I'll do? That fucking that fucking lapse fan painting that I fucking did. I'll <laughs> NFT that. That's another example. Absolutely, <laughs> you could do it all because if people are willing to buy the rights to the original, mm. right, and they feel like they got the original from yeah. us because we created it, then uh, so I'm thinking, right? I mean, we have fucking blazed every single trail there is to blaze, and it's not just because of our ingenuity; it's because of the ingenuity of our listenership, the solar system. Right. They they tell us like there's a direction you might want to go in. And then, of course, yeah. we execute. It's on us to execute. Nobody really does it for us, but they, they light the way. And uh, it would shock me if there weren't folks out in the solar system who couldn't facilitate this. When you think about, you know, the moments on the history of the cast in terms of the archives and, and those legendary stop the boots moments, you know, where we just completely enter a different stratosphere. Like, what do you do? I don't know. So we like, would sell you... a two, a 25 second clip of our show and say, you own oh. that. You own that clip. You own the original version of that clip and everybody else can download it and everybody else can have it and everybody else can copy it. But you can say you have rights. So to we just original. decide that it's the original. Correct. Yeah. As the creator, we authenticate that we're giving you the original. That's really okay. all it is. Yes. We're saying, we made it, and here you go. You own it. I mean, how do you, how do you authenticate an audio clip? You just sit, say on a piece of paper that comes with the audio clip oh that God. this is what it is. It's a digital piece of paper. I mean, it's really, that's, that, that's my understanding. Again, I'm sort of rough around the edges in my conceptualization of this, but I've spent some time trying right. to get at it, and this is the best I can tell you. It's, it doesn't make sense to anybody except somebody who bought something for $250 and sold it for 10 grand. Because there's a frenzy around owning things. Like, we're headed to a world where everything, where we live in the digital space 50, 60% of the time, where we go to work online yeah. exclusively, where we put on an Oculus style headset and enter a virtual workspace where we feel like we're shoulder to shoulder with our coworkers. We can see their bodies. That's what the metaverse is. We can hear their actual voices. There's no appreciable difference between seeing them through the Oculus in a virtual environment and being there in person. And so what happens is the more we live our lives in this metaverse, in this digital world, the more we want to collect status symbols to show off who we are, just like we would want to in the natural world. We want to buy expensive clothes yeah. to say something about ourselves. We want to buy expensive property and cars to say something. And we can own those things not only in real life, but also in virtual life. And people are willing to pay to have those things and have the original version of those things and strut and strut them in, in the virtual world. Um, this is also known as the end of humanity. Um, <laughs> This is the end times for the species. Yeah. But hey, here we are. And uh, that's, that's what I can tell you. So if there's anybody who can facilitate, uh, we can have a discussion about cutting in on the action, whatever it might take. We're not going to lift a fucking finger. But if there's, yeah. a, if there's a podcast on planet Earth, I was going to say wrestling podcast. If there's a podcast on planet Earth that could do that, it's us. So holler at your boy, lapsedfan at gmail.com. I ain't fucking around. NFTs. Does she really? She probably does. Oh, <laughs> that's another one of those, my mom. <laughs> Okay, that means we're moving on. <laughs> you'll, you'll be wanting to know a lot more, though, when we get our first score. Let me tell I you know, that. I know. Um, he has a little bit more, too, does Brandon. Oh, there is. Hold on. Let me get back to the email. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, also, I have, a, I have second row hard camera floor seats for AEW Dynamite in December. You know I will have on my lap swag. 
but can we get a lapsed hat or a TLF flag added to the PWT store? T store? Uh, um, I can check. I'll try. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they seem kind of weird about, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's like a limit to what you can. <clears throat> I've never been able to just add a hat. I don't know if. I know there are people who do it mm-hmm. on Pro Wrestling Tees, but they seem to be, you know, people with, you know, clout. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be something they, they extend to you. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, there, there's a lot of marketplaces. That's something else we'll put you in charge of out there in solar system land. Yeah. What's what's recommended? I mean, we don't have all kinds of time to do fucking market research. Like, if we want to do something beyond what Pro Wrestling Tees offers to us, you fucking tell us where to do it. We'll set up a store. It's not yeah. that hard. Yeah. Um, if there's demand for it, we'll try to fulfill it. I think even Patreon allows us to do it. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, Nathan from Detroit writes in Adventures of a Lapsed Fan on the Jericho Cruise. Do you know about the Jericho Cruises before I read this? I, I, I do know. I've heard about them. I, I mean, I, he, I when I used to listen to his podcast. Oh, right. Um, sure. Yeah. He would he would talk about the hard. So doesn't doesn't wrestling happen on there and shit? And yeah. He brought he brings a boat. Yeah. Uh, he brings a, a ring on the boat and they, right. they even taped they a uh, bunch of shit. A.W. Dynamite there last year. So. Um, Very cool. Yeah, it is. It's cool. It sounds like a cool experience. I'm, I doubt yeah. I'll ever go, but um, yeah, I'm gonna say unless they unless we're invited. <laughs> yeah, that tends to be sort, of, and even then we got to really sell ourselves yeah. on it, right? Because <laughs> it's always it's always great mm. when they say, yeah, mm. you know, you can you can have uh, you can have a percentage of whatever you sell uh, for tickets, right. and right. then no one ever mentions it again. That's always cool. Yeah, no, I'd, right. Adventures of a Lapsed Fan on the Jericho Cruise. Esteemed co-chairs, first of all, I have loved Under the Cinemat, and I really appreciated Scary Movie Season. Horror movies have always held a special place in my heart, and it's awesome to hear JP give them the same kind of treatment that Jack gives our favorite and not-so-favorite pay-per-views. Love it. Absolutely love it. As a longtime fan of live action, vehicularly branded, carny, smoke-filled bingo hall housed fake entertainment, I have had my fair share of shame and pain. I'm going to spare you the shame and pain of reading about it. Instead, this... I was recently fortunate enough to be on the Jericho cruise. I've got a couple of anecdotes Mm. for you. One day, while walking out of the buffet, I saw an old man with an oxygen tank signing a poster for a kid. It took a few seconds, but when I was about five feet away from him, I realized it was Jake the Snake Roberts. It was easy to see why he hasn't been on TV much, but still, holy shit, it was Jake the Snake. A god among mortals, but no, a god become mortal. Oh. The day prior, I was on the deck at a show, and Christopher Daniels' music started. When he came out, the guy in the front of me turned around and said, I'm not going to lie, I thought you were Christopher Daniels until just now. <laughs> At least now I understood why people have been asking to have their picture taken with me since I got on the boat. Kind of mm. like you going as Hogan at that Raw. Yeah, right, exactly. There are probably yeah. several people who think Christopher Daniels is a dick because I acted all weird when they asked for pictures. I mean, what was I supposed to think? Two days later was the costume party, and my wife and I were Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn, respectively. Around 6.30 p.m., we were at a show, and Christopher Daniels came out. The woman in front of me turned around and told me that she was just about to text her kids that Christopher Daniels was standing behind her, dressed as Harley Quinn. Oh, my God. The night before that, on the dance floor, we were right next to Britt Baker and Anna Jay, and random other AEW people kept coming over to talk to them. At one point, Frankie Kazarian came over to talk to them and told me I should just let people think I'm Christopher Daniels and have their pictures taken with me. Anyway, if you get the chance to go on the Jericho Cruise, I highly recommend it. It was fucking fantastic. Really the most amazing four-day party I've ever been a part of. If you do decide to do it, I'll be the guy wearing the not Christopher Daniels shirt. Now, I know what's supposed to come next, but I refuse to talk about the way that fucking cast lovingly but assertively dominates my ass. Oh, yeah, clearly you got a problem with it. (laughs) I also refuse to detail the myriad manners in which the co-chairs bless my orifices with the girth that other podcasts can only dream about. I just won't talk about that kind of thing. I'm proper. I understand. Amen or something, Nathan. 
Thanks you, for the dispatch. Uh, thank you for celebrating your propriety. That's right. We do celebrate properties and proprietary entities. <laughs> uh, here comes Paul. Speaking of Jedi mind tricks, Vinny Paz yes. got more hose than Jim Duggan. There you go. That's a good lyric. Damn near any Wu-Tang member will throw out some old school WWF references as well, like old school Bob Backlund, Ken Patera. Wow. These are uh, Coliseum references. All right. Like, okay. Matthew writes, I had an agency colleague at work this year who came from Grenoble. When he told me the first <laughs> thing I blurted out was, birthplace of Andre the Giant. And now you're telling me it's all kayfabe. <laughs> Your friend was like, huh? No wonder he only had a vague idea what I was talking about. That's right, Matt. What's That'll Andre? fucking teach you. That's right. Don't talk wrestling with normal people. Hall Kogan, always good to hear from Hall. Yes. So two years ago on a whim, I invited some friends of mine, a married couple, over to watch AW Full Gear with my brother. And I, since my regular wrestling buddy, fellow Solar System member Ross Hamrick, had other plans. To my surprise, they showed up and actually watched the whole show. A week wow. later, I was informed that they had watched and enjoyed the following episode of Dynamite. There you go. This was a surprising development, but more surprising is that they continue to watch, and now AEW pay-per-view parties have become a tradition that will continue this weekend and will be attending Dynamite on Wednesday. These responsible adult homeowners are now casually using terms like going over and discussing booking decisions. That's right. All this is to ask the question, is it normal to feel a profound sense of guilt and shame for inadvertently creating new wrestling fans? Don't get me wrong, it's nice to have more wrestling friends, but I can't help but feel like it may ruin their lives as it has mine. <laughs> Boss, you have any thoughts on that question? Um... No. No. I, I, I think it's fine. I don't think you're ruining their lives at all. They're ruining their own lives. It's not I your think, fault. I don't know. I think I think you have... I think he has responsibility. I think he opened the door to, to problems. So what should he do now? I, I, think, I don't think there's anything he can do. I think, I think he should never I talk to them again. I think... <laughs> That'd be amazing. You bring him in, and then all of a sudden, mm, I can't. That's nice. Look, I, enjoy it while it lasts. I've had those moments in my life as a wrestling fan where I feel like, oh, man, I've got him turned on to the product. This is great. i got somebody hanging yeah. with on pay-per-view nights. There's a uh, limit. There's a oh, certain yes. point where they're like, okay, we're kind of we're moving on. You know, I don't know about you, but yeah, it's, it's cool um, for a little I'm, while, but it, it, um, it's kind of getting done. weird. Yeah. I don't really want to watch. Wait, 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 wait. I want to know about the behind the scenes. Wait, wait, I just got 16 DVDs of Portland wrestling from the 70s. Okay, buddy, I'm going to go do this crossword puzzle, okay? Wait a minute, I just got, I, I just got, I got a DVD, Best of Minoru Tanaka. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> like, why, why do you always talk about Japan? Like, it's a cool country, but I don't know. Wrestling fans always talk about Japan. Like, well, you know, it's, it's like a sport there. They actually forearm each other hard and sweat flies. Oh, Cool. Still don't get it. Patrick uh, uh, Logue, thanks very much for that big bump up in pledge. Swinging that cock. And it's to our benefit as usual. That's right. Christopher uh, reminds us in Heenan's book, Women Loved Andre. One night, this is a quote, one night he got romantic with a petite young lady in his hotel room. The problem was he didn't bother to close the curtain on his first floor hotel room. She could not KC and some other Arab gentleman walked by and witnessed the whole event. There was Andre with his big mane of hair and the small young lady. I asked Adnan what it looked like. He said it looked like a lion raping a rabbit. Okay. Axel Buddha, thanks very much for increasing that pledge and welcome to the Tip Top EP tier. Welcome in PBCal98. Let's fucking go. Let's get it going. Frank from Muskogee, longtime supporter, bumping that pledge up $10 above the maximum that entitles him to all the content wow. we offer. And that's, that's a big dick move. 
Anthony Rossi, thank you very much. Welcome to the EP tier, my friend Bruce Taylor, uh, Bryce Taylor, pardon me. Let's keep it going. Let's keep it rising. We appreciate the, the cheese. Same to you, JG, who's now joined in the $20 tier. Always fun to think about who uh, who in the wrestling business is, is pledging and trying to hide their identity behind the, um, yes, right. the initials. Uh, Hardcore Milo Reviews. Thank you very much, my friend, for bumping up to the uh, executive producer tier. Joe writes to us um, <laughs> as executive producer Joe. In other words, he's uh, fact-checking our stuff. <laughs> Don't ever feel ashamed, folks in the solar system, for correcting us, for bringing information that we mischaracterized or failed to understand or failed to mention or or uncover. It's a process here. It's a living, breathing process here at TLF. So please, uh, if you can set the record straight, do it. We do not shy away from being called wrong at all. And we do not pretend that we knew what you told us beforehand. We acknowledge the, um, the blind spots. He writes, obnoxious wannabe expert in all things New Jersey, the Meadowlands is the name of the geographic area in East Rutherford where the Meadowlands Sports Complex is. Did you know this? Uh, ish. I just thought of it as the name of the building. No, I know that it, it is, it, it, like, the Meadowlands is an area because it's, um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's a land of meadow. <laughs> Apparently. It's what it is. If you look, if you ever look, I mean, if you ever... Uh, there's like nothing between, um, what is it? Is it the? Is it the? God, I can't think. It's been it's been so long. MetLife Stadium. Um, yeah, like MetLife Stadium and like the like where the Jersey Turnpike is going. There's like nothing but a giant, if you will, meadow. <laughs> there are no buildings. Like you can see. Yes, MetLife from the farthest places because there's literally nothing there. I remember walking out of that, what was it, WrestleMania 29, and just like feeling like we had to cross 16 lanes of highway and desolate land to to get back to civilization. Oh where my a car god, was. that was awful. That was awful. Not not advisable Oy. to try to cross. I guess cross the Jersey Turnpike at 1:30 in the morning on a Sunday night. But I mean, that was brutal. Truly brutal. That was brutal. But he writes, today it is the MetLife Sports Complex. We need to ruin everything with sponsorships. The Meadowlands Sports Complex came about when Brendan Byrne uh, was governor, so they named the Basketball Hockey Arena, home of the NHL Devils, NBA Nets, and Seton Hall Sports after him. This was, is also a football stadium named Giant Stadium, home of the football giants and later Jets. The new version is MetLife Stadium. There is also a horse race track. In 96, Governor Christine Whitman allowed the New Jersey Sports Authority, which owned the complex, to sell naming rights for the arena to Continental Airlines. The last name of the arena was Izod Center, I remember that, before it became yep. defunct. It has since found new life as a venue for NYC stage play rehearsals. So... Next time we uh, bring up Jersey, you got to reach out to Joe. Get those All fact right. checks in. Vlad Dredd, thanks very much for the pledge. Welcome to the executive producer tier, swinging big out of the gates. Paul writes, one small correction coach here as well. Tiny, Tiny Lister, was All-American in shot put. Neidhart was All-American in worked put. <laughs> yes, very good. That in reference to uh, Tiny very Lister's good. role in what recent Under the Cinema in, uh, Jackie Brown. What a fucking movie. Jackie you know, Brown. what a fucking movie. That was my favorite yet in terms yeah. of a movie under the cinemat that I hadn't seen, knew I should have seen, and watched kind of for the first time and was enraptured in the context yeah. of cinemat. That was it. Even more yeah. than on the waterfront. I was yeah. I mean, thoroughly it was, entertained. It's, it's a very, because you know what, a waterfront is not, I, I wouldn't say waterfront is an entertaining movie. Right. It's a it's it's a it's a very dramatic 
piece. J- Jackie Brown is fun. That's right. Waterfront's not fun. Waterfront yeah, Jackie is Brown's easy to watch in that kind of watch along format we do. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, Waterfront is is about is is a much is more powerful and more it's like, you know, uh it's like comparing Schindler's List to Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, well put. You know, like they're both great movies, but one is much more fun to watch and the other one is one that you will watch if you're kind of in the mood for something utterly depressing. Sure. Yeah, like all great Which so- I, like know, all great I songs. All great music is that. You know. You know. I've uh, you know, I remember I did a uh I did a reading for a play uh about the Holocaust and you know, a couple few years ago and I was like, you know, I think I want to watch Schindler's List again and get my my my, my mindset. And it helped. Sounds like fun. Or not. Yeah. It was like it was fun. Yeah, great. Big night at the house. <laughs> James Irwin also writes, How dare hey, you Hey Han, you wanna watch Schindler's List? And as much Zeus as we've covered on this podcast, including the No Holds Barred <laughs> episode that kicked off the Trial of His Life series, we have never gotten into his indictment for mortgage fraud. But we got into that on the Jackie Brown episode of Under the Cinemat. I think it's been mentioned. I think it's been mentioned. Probably has been but, mentioned, but we didn't get into the detail. We weren't no, literally no, we reading the indictment press release. <laughs> so fucking... What a fucking guy. It's always the same. Uh, you end up, you're in and around the... If you could be convinced to participate in pro wrestling, that... That vulnerability, that weakness that you have will eventually show up in your personal life and yeah. in the court records uh, in your immediate jurisdiction. Yeah. If you can be convinced to do pro wrestling, you now believe that you can get away with anything. That's right. Right. You, you're convinced that you're a hustler and yeah. that you can hoodwink people out of a dime and the next person come, comes along and makes you a pawn in their scheme and yeah. you act like the money's going to keep flowing forever. Uh, James Irwin writes, how dare you say that Zeus received kickbacks from sellers and not go off on a 25-minute tangent about his work in the wrestling business or at least mention the party? Robot, thanks very much for your pledge. Ready, Welcome nom, in. Nom. Gordon writes. God, you know, that's another movie I try I try very hard. Every, every week I look for I look for something. Like what, what, what rock haven't I turned yes. to see if I can get the party? <laughs> on fucking that's under a the call out to the solar system find a wrestling connection to peter sellers the party which is and, a movie that boss introduced me to in the college days and i'll tell you what if if you if if you're not on twitter um and i mean this if you're not on twitter and you and so you so you don't know about this if someone can find a video any video of bret hart playing the genie in that production of Aladdin. Yes. I will definitely throw it under the cinemat. You're saying stage shows are eligible now? If it's on if it's on video, if we are able to watch it, I'll include it. Yeah, I would think if such a thing existed, we would have all seen it by now. But that's interesting. He played the genie, right? He played the genie. Oh boy. And I would I, I mean I want to see that to see what a fucking Greek tragedy that is. <laughs> Gordon writes, oil check, co-chairs. If I'm ever having a bad day. <laughs> if I'm yes. ever having a bad day, I will refer to episode 303, starting at one hour, 11 minutes and 30 seconds, and allow the subsequent five and a half minutes to take the pain away. The impromptu bit about Andre giving wrestlers oil checks is impossible to listen to without laughing. Thank you, as always, for the countless hours of enjoyable entertainment, Gordon. You're welcome, Gordon. And have you seen st- that fucking image of him, that, that, that gif of him? Oh, dancing dancing around like just imagine that guy shoving thumbs up asses 
while doing like a over the knee backbreaker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but what about the noise the victim made? <laughs> it's normal. It's normal. This is what men do for fun. <laughs> so, uh, hey, Andre, uh, do you ever, uh, you got any more where that came from? Are you? Dominic Murray. Well, are you gay? <laughs> Dominic Murray. Uh, thanks very much for bumping up to the executive producer tier. Same to you, Ryan Morris, firing out a- of the gates. If you ask for it, then it's a problem for Andre. Well, of course, yeah. It's no fun <laughs> unless you're doing it to somebody who doesn't suspect it or doesn't want it. Just ask Fuji. I also picture, too. Okay, this is what I picture in my mind. He gives such a wind-up, all right, <laughs> that he fucking, he's like way in the back, and then all of a sudden, the thumb, like, and it's just a, a throw, like just a, like a thing, you know, think of someone bowl, doing throwing a bowling ball, right? And that's what it is. His thumb, though, just is projected out, and then all of a sudden, he like the guy is lifted off his feet. Absolutely. Whoever he, whoever he, uh, he, he checks oil. tremendous brought to you by valvoline there's another that's a (laughs) that's a brand crossover stephanie can sell across all digital media content platforms yeah sell a valvoline sponsorship to andre matches uh austin king solver you said we'd come back to you when you upped your pledge and here you are we love it my friend thank you that's awesome uh, Hulk Hogan went to Dynamite too, and he said at Dynamite last night, fun show by the way. There was a little girl, probably like eight years old, sitting behind me, who said maybe the greatest thing I've ever heard in regards to pro wrestling. Right after Sammy Guevara sacrificed for the industry by doing a swanton off the top through a table on the floor, she exclaimed, "You have to be a good actor to be a wrestler. You have to act That's like right. it hurts." That's right. It took everything for me not to turn around and ask, "You a fan?" So shout out to the little girl who was already <laughs> hashtag lapsed, whether she wants to or not. Could you imagine if she if she like if she was listening to the show? <laughs> it was a it was a put on. You know this is fake, right? Oh, my God. Dad, you're aware of this, right? It's all bullshit. <laughs> Firing into the EP tier is William Murphy. Enjoy under the cinemat, my friend. And thanks to Steve Laird for sending us hefty cake on PayPal, thelapsedman at gmail.com. He writes, Dear gentlemen, first let me say I am fucking hammered, literally tits out blasted. Secondly, for my birthday, I told my wife to not get me anything because my bitch-ass prolapsed anus has only been skirting by on my $20 a month on Patreon, and I needed to pay my lapsed union dues. So take these shekels and buy something nice. Big ups to the Discord. Wilson Nilsson is a fucking boss hoss, and TJ needs to stop hating us. <laughs> big Steve, P.S. The Mrs. is a big fan. It was wondering if she could get lapsed Vince wrapping stitches. Molly Cyrus. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think so, boss. He paid for it. I mean, you All can't right. deny the man. Let me see here. Stitches. What is it? Uh, Stitches. Molly Cyrus is the name of the uh, the song. This is going to be a, this is going to be a good one. I'm not too familiar. As you pull that up, Lewis Gustafson, thanks so very much for that EP <laughs> pledge. Timothy Lee, welcome in. Get that VIP status. Doug, big big move, right to the executive oh, producer hold on. tier. Here we go. Okay. Hold on, I'm not ready for you yet. Standing by, Lewis uh, <clears throat> wrote us an email. Should I jump into it? Nope, I'm good. Oh, here we go. I'm good. Here we go. I have no idea how the song goes. So we're gonna no clue. Just, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a that's a image. Okay, here we go. I'll put cocaine in your ass. <laughs> 
I'm going to put cocaine in your ass. I'm going to put cocaine in your ass. I'm going to put my dick in your ass. Put the molly in her ass. Put the molly in her ass. I just popped a molly. Now I'm going to try to fuck Molly Cyrus. I just popped a molly. Now I'm trying to fuck Miley Cyrus. I'm going to put cocaine in your ass. I'm going to put my dick in your ass. I'm going to put cocaine in your ass. I'm going to put my dick in your ass. Fuck Billy Ray Cyrus. I'm your daddy now. I'm putting my dick in your ass, and it ain't coming out. And if you don't like what I'm saying now, I don't give a fuck, because it won't change the fact that my dick is in your (laughs) butt. We'll now turn the call over to WWE President Nick Khan. Nick, go ahead. Um... (laughs) <laughs> Nick, who we fire in this quarter, pal? Let's get that fucking list going, baby. Uh, I think we might have to fire you, Vince, <laughs> Who who did we just push two weeks ago on two days ago on television that we can now send out on the street with all their belongings? I'm thinking of can we fire Roman? <laughs> I think it's a good idea. Uh, I, I don't think we can fire the champion. Imagine the margins, just imagine, pal. The margins. Just imagine, just imagine that. Think of, you know, we could save a lot of money by kicking him out to the curb. Get the free Still cash sell his flow. merch. We sell his merch. Don't give him any because he doesn't work for the company anymore. And, you know, then we have, we have a little bit more of a cash flow, you know, positive. The only statement <laughs> I care about making is income statements. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm not interested in outcome statements. I'm interested in income statements. <laughs> I think we got another one. As uh, DJ Khaled would say, Louis Gustafson writes, just checking in. I finally got my membership to the executive producer tier, although this will likely uh, be only until March or so. It's a damn good feeling to know I am paying more than the 316 I was rocking. That's it, boss. I mean, people, do it for yourself. It feels good. I mean, we've heard it this does. from enough people. To give for something you enjoy so much. You know, you should feel a degree of shame for just... You know, on the sly, just like of course stealing something, basically, or at least not helping perpetuate it. That that means so much to you and plays such a key role in your life. I am starting with the episode thirty-five scream, and it is well worth the twenty dollars. The reading of the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault on Rose McGowan was wild and truly shows the internal horror women feel when being taken advantage of, which is di- much different than the willing colon collapsing the solar system receives constantly. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No comparison there. That was. One of the more haunting moments so far in Cinemat, I would say, boss. Yes, indeed. I would say so. I got a cameo from my homie, and that was some of the funniest shit I had heard in my life. It came through (laughs) at about four in the morning on the West Coast, and I was laughing so hard that the next day my neighbor said he either had a dream I was laughing or I was really laughing and woke him up. (laughs) It was the one where Dusty, Hogan, Nash, and Vince were debating if my friend should have a birthday party. Oh, my God. His last name is Slaughter, so Hogan was worried. (laughs) He was the son of Sergeant. (laughs) It's actually funny as hell just typing that out. Hogan was worried. <laughs> there will be a sequel for Christmas, so expect that order soon. Can we get a Honky Tonk Man theme song in the Laps Jukebox? Also, when I was young, my mom had a picture of Elvis and would ask me who that was in the front of her friends as, I thought, it, man. as I thought it was the Honky Tonk Man, and they would laugh when sure. I gave my answer. Oh, my God. I'm going to finish this, get ready. I'm 40, but not sure how you guys made it up late enough to watch Saturday night's main event. I always fell asleep. I also had a lot of anger towards American Gladiators and the Westminster Dog Show growing up for being on and preempting the sport of kings. Absolutely. Um, Ill Goldboard um, 
is a fucking joke. Other than that, thanks always for the hours of entertainment and hard work you guys do. It is truly appreciated. P.S. Feel free to check this out. Um, okay, this is Pit Fox featuring Jake Jackal's SummerSlam 2019. You guys might be able to appreciate it. As it was certainly inspired by the Laps Fan theme song. Oh, we've we've got our uh, eyeballs really? on that one. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, go ahead. Do we ever listen to it? Okay, I, I've, not, I've never hit it. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So here we go. <laughs> my lungs out burns and my hair slick back. New York town and my pink Cadillac. I'm just a honky tonk man. I'm just a honky tonk man. I'm just a honky tonk man. I'm, I'm cool. I'm cocky. I'm bad. Make a mean guitar. I wear blue suede shoes. You hear my sing the snakeskin blues. I'm just a honky tonk man. Just a honky tonk man. I'm just a honky tonk man. I'm cool. I'm cocky. I'm bad. I could also do the Nintendo version. <laughs> You know which one I fucking love? <laughs> no. dun, dun. Oh, are the Nintendo WrestleMania game? The MIDI version. Yeah, exactly. That's, All a, right, that, so here we that's go. a link to uh, this song by uh, Pit Fox featuring right. Jake Jackal. It's called SummerSlam 2019. I'm not sure if you'll right. be able to hear it out there, but we're going to sample it here. I'll see. I'll see if we can send the, uh, the, the, the right thing here. Entering the ring. Oh, boy. Bit of the Triple H game opening chords here. Smell what the fox is cooking. I can smell mm-hmm. it. If it's inspired by TLF, I can smell it. Trust me. Yes. Oh, it's a rap song. Oh. All right. I got you. Yep. Go for it, man. Love it. All right. Well, Lewis, thanks very much for the email and for the cake. John Hooker, bump it up. Let's yes. fucking go. EP level. Zach sends us more money. Says paying for both of your monthly WWE network fees since neither of you deserves to be out of money for that shit. Thank you for your service. Reminding the world why it used to be better. See, that's why we do it. That's why that's we right. do it. Folks, step yes. up without even being asked to uh, help alleviate the pain of being a wrestling fan. Jared Wolf, thanks very much for upping the pledge. We appreciate you always. Yeldy, thanks very much for not only joining us, but then jumping all the way up to the tip top of the uh, pledge tier. Kurt writes to us, I've been a very good solar system boy this year and have been giving you guys money since before I got shit for it. Could boss do the Halo theme for me, yours in Christ, Kurt? Oh my God. They're coming fast and furious, boss. We're going to have to, this is going to have to be a cameo thing soon. You keep this up, folks. I know, seriously. Cameos only for jukebox. To be very judicious with these requests. <laughs> what I love is that it's gone way beyond things that I actually know. <laughs> of course. I mean, that last one, the Miley Cyrus one, holy shit. Yeah. That's a fucking song made for this. <laughs> I see why they want me to do this. Yes. Oh, 
You motherfucker, Kurt. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Is that what you want? <laughs> Fucking asshole. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, maybe that's a New Year's resolution for 2022. Let's build some guardrails around jukebox requests, okay? I know. Maybe. Maybe we should. It needs to be cameo. Maybe just, you know, you have to set aside a particular uh, PayPal pledge, uh, part and distinct from your <laughs> patron. Because, uh, if if oh being God. a supporter on Patreon entitles you to a jukebox, we've got uh, thousands of these to do. <laughs> every a problem. Uh, we got a problem here. Will Winthrop has a great comment on Vince McMahon and, and the, the the very state of him on the 2021 yeah. Survivor Series show. Now, was that Oof. Vince McMahon or was that actress Sandy Martin from It's Always Sunny? <laughs> <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> uh, let me see. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a fucking good one. Oh, my God. Wow. Sam has a question for you. Our good longtime listener, Sam Stevens. Becky Lynch is now really annoying. Too big for her boots. Ooh. So much better as an underdog. Discuss. Boss? I like her now. Yeah, I'm honestly. not with that. I'm not with that. I didn't dislike her before as the underdog, but I like her as the cocky heel. I think people are uh, sleeping on just how much people would have shat on Becky Lynch if she came off that, you know, 13-second squash of Bianca Belair at SummerSlam and just carried on like the baby face who's come to save the day and you know because people I mean, are, they, they might not have done what they did they might have they might have built her up to win the rumble or something but they might not have done the that's true the, yeah. the 13 second squash like like her turning heel was some big mistake of let me tell you if she came out like John Cena you know our superhero no matter if we accepted her or not after that fucking thing yeah. the way they handled that yeah. she would be dead to rights right now that was a very smart move considering the landscape. Considering I mean, and if she's annoying, I mean, maybe that's good. Right. You know, maybe that's what she's supposed to be doing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. The underdog, I mean, yeah. If you're a baby face, usually you're better cast as an underdog, but she's a heel. Sure. So she's going to lift. That. I mean, that's, look, she's got swagger. She's got a great promo ability. She's good in the ring. Not, not great, but good. And. She copied a lot of Conor McGregor's thing, you know? It's like Conor mm. McGregor is, is, is going to be a baby face for carrying himself with that, you know, chin, chin tucked high. Uh, yeah. Tucked high is a contradiction in terms, but chin held high, stiff upper lip, uh, you know, always in the fighting stance, always ready to throw down, um, always ready to come with, with, you know, the sharp tongue to lay the stakes down and, and just, you know, lay gauntlets down for your opponents. And, yeah, uh, yeah eventually that character is going to turn into a heel, I mean, we saw it with Connor. You eventually have to become a heel when that when that ostentatious kind of nature and that bombastic style of you know self braggadocious kind of stuff yeah. is. Yeah. So she's just going with it. She's going all the way. She's going full Connor on the uh, Mayweather tour and wearing like the mink coats and everything, and just you know, but in, but in wrestling parlance, that makes you a heel. You know, whereas it's just a natural evolution for a character like Connor as he's making right. more and more money and growing his star and his profile. He's going to be able to afford more and more trappings of luxury. Uh, she couldn't do that. She couldn't evolve her character that way and stay a baby face, so she became a heel. I think it was smart. I mean, it's it's exactly what Roman Reigns had to do to finally deserve his position on the card in the eyes of each yep. and every fan in those seats. And he's at his absolute peak efficacy right now, and he'll never be um, as money as a face. Maybe 
he, he, he never would have been as money as the face we knew him as, you know? Right, right. I mean, this is the movie. I this mean, is it. The, the, because WWE is so fucking um, ass backwards when it comes to how to book a baby face to get over yes. and stay over and draw money. This is the best we can do is a really cool heel. That's those are going to be for the foreseeable future. The most interesting television characters in WWE, because when it comes to I their mean, baby, that, that is the that, that that's that's that's. I mean, that's what people want as their baby face. Anyway, as we've said, we want you kind of want a cool heel, right? You know, right. And the, and the subtle who, adjustment always was the the cool heel, right? The, he was so good at what he did. You hated him so much, but he would always shit on the fans. He would always, you know, say, fuck right. you. you. I don't care if you like me. Fuck you. Like, you're a bitch. Like, he wouldn't stop until you hated him again. And then when he turns face, that subtle adjustment is he stops doing that. He's still the exact same guy, but he doesn't take that moment to call the fans out for being idiots or, you know, for being stupid, for cheering him. That's still... The, the demarcation line between a baby face and a heel, even if they have the exact same character, do they take the time to call the fans idiots or not? And if they don't, then they're baby faces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's just not something that they, they know how to do anymore is, is keep the characteristics, characteristics and mannerisms of a cool character, but make them be a baby face. They have to also be these, they have to also look down on the people. And, um, and so the only baby face character they know how to build is somebody who's just constantly, squished under the thumb of the domineering heels and eventually gets their day in the sun. And then it's, of course it's over once the person that's perennially kept down finally breaks through the heel authority figures and the domineering egotistical um, heel title holding headliners, you know, and you get your WrestleMania 30 moment with Daniel Bryan and within two months, they're bored with it. You know, yeah. it wasn't the launching of a new era on the back of a babyface superhero. It was just, someone overcoming these insurmountable odds that just begin restacking themselves uh, the night after he or she overcomes them. And so that's just the problem. And that's not going to, yep. you know, as long as Vince is alive, that's the way WWE is going to be. And so if you're Becky Lynch, makes a whole hell of a lot of sense to position yourself as a heel, knowing that that's how you're going to stay on top without getting the, uh, the rejection from the crowd that WWE is clearly ill-equipped to respond to in a way that keeps you uh, relevant above totally. water and embraced for what you're presenting. She would be stuck doing, you know, promos that were totally against how the crowd was reacting to her if she was a babyface, which is always death in WWE. You simply cannot control the audience reacting to you as a babyface because you're so beholden to a script that assumes how the fans are going to react to your punchlines. And if they don't, you're stuck there still acting like they responded to you positively when they're fucking yep. sitting on their hands. Oh. So whatever. Jim Rocco, thanks for the up increase in pledge. We appreciate all the years of support, and that is a meaty monthly allotment to the cast, and we do notice and appreciate it. Pav Wrestling Gifts, welcome to the family, my friend. Big time pledge. We love it. Monroe Dorman, thanks very much for your pledge on Patreon. We appreciate it. Michael B. Thompson, let's fucking get it. He's involved. Um, over on PayPal, Brian Ferris, um, one of the realest motherfuckers in the room. Uh, we heard from him a lot on our 9-11 cast. Proud... Um, Proud service to this country sends us uh, a little sweetener on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Brian from Worcester. Well to you too, sir. We're privileged to have you in the circle. Christian Love Hollister, it. as OG as it gets, is back in the circle, and we're glad to have him. Thank you very much. Um, Pav Wrestling Gifts, who we just mentioned, um, mentions under the video of uh, of uh, old, uh, old Fritz von Erich's uh, bastard cousin here, Boss Atkinson. Um <laughs> Says uh, Boss Atkinson in the cut is a scary sight, and um, for real, his dream match is Fritz von Erich versus Boss. Oh, there we go. Imagine being in there with the man himself. I think the uh, the underrated 
uh, uh, commentary bit from you uh, in in that match is when when he is when when the co- when the col- the cold commentary team questions the legitimacy of Boss Atkinson as a Von Eric, and you say, "Well, I spoke to his cousin Lance." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many aren't <laughs> equipped to process that one appropriately. I mean, that was that was so specific. I fucking loved it, good, and I good. love how, and I love how they took it as legit. Didn't get it. Well, they're no, calling him. Was they're calling him um, uh, Atkinson anyway. They're not even pronouncing it. That's always a giveaway. No one fucking knows. No one fucking knows. No one and knows. I love it. They think it's Atkinson. A T K I N S O N. Right. No. Adkinson. It's fine. You know, not everybody's acquainted with the story, but everyone pretends they are, and that's always amusing to me. Uh, Chris Mann, thanks very much for the pledge. We appreciate it. And yeah, if that's a, if that's a draw for you as well in that Patreon-exclusive match, uh, my commentary uh, on the match, uh, please uh, dive in. You could kind of hear it also on the documentary we released, the audio documentary, but uh, yeah. this is a cl- sort of a cleaner version. There's a whole show worth of my commentary out there somewhere. I mean, I, I commentated every match on that Renaissance Rumble thing, not yeah. just yours. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to see the rest of it. Uh, Chris Mann, thanks very much for the pledge and bumping up the pledge. We appreciate it all. Matt writes um, of our Thanksgiving special around Vince's dinner table, lapsed Vince, that is. That was an acid trip. This was an acid trip, and I think that's a perfect way to put it. I've never felt so strange. (laughs) I was having like an out-of-body experience. You know, like when the hyper-religious start talking in tongues? Yes. There were moments, because we we spitballed a lot of that shit. It was just like, let's just fucking... Let's just make Let's something happens. out of this. That's right. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that was our treat to you this Thanksgiving. Uh, B. Schmalzbach, thank you very much for the meaty increase in pledge. It's deserved, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, J.W. writes under your match, this is good stuff, boss. Must be nice to impose your superior willpower and physicality on the nefarious purple parrot. While it is <laughs> fake, it must be cool to perform scripted combat sequences with your own two hands that were previously relegated <laughs> to video games, Hasbro toys, or similar textual simulacrum. That is the dream That's right true. there. Yeah, speak to that. Uh, it was, it was. I mean, it was, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a very fascinating, um, it's cool to be able to do that. Fascinating is not the right word, but it's cool to be able to partake in what, you know, what in, in kind of the what you watched as a kid and what you, the things you played with, whether it was video games or toys and or even, you know, acted out with your friends and stuff. And to, again, I think the biggest, the biggest revelation is and always will be to me, the amount of cooperation from both participants yeah, that it takes a certain amount of trust that is really beyond anything. And when you look at people who have, who you know have real animosity towards each other, yet act because they have to be, they have to trust each other still in the ring. That is an un, an absolutely incredible thing. It really is. It's it's a. Uh... And you don't really appreciate it. I mean, I'm sure you appreciate it more deeply than I do, having been in the arena. But I watched the whole training, and I could get a real flavor for, wow, like, yeah, the people who look strongest are never the people in a position to make that move look good. You know, it's always no. the recipient that, that decides whether that person looks good or not. And here's just a little example. Uh, when you guys are practicing snap vertical suplexes, um, mm-hmm. the idea is, you know, that the person receiving it basically jumps, lands on his feet, and is a front flip. Yep. 
It's all yeah. it's all in them. You could you could take a snap vertical suplex without an opponent. <laughs> you know, that's basically right. Right. How central to the whole thing the recipient's movement is. There's no pulling up by the, the suplexer. There's none of that. There's no strength. I mean, there there is, but it's a shared thing. It's a shared thing. It's a shared momentum you as know, opposed like to like you, you you know, you need to help them for sure. Like when you're you're grabbing yeah. their trunks or whatever, you're helping them float over, but it's got you're you're just kind of directing them. You're not lifting. You're putting not the lifting. You're directing. Right. You're right. like a you're like a fulcrum. You're like a something on which everything turns. You couldn't lift them on your own because they are. It's you know, no one you know, and it's one of those. It's one of those weird things about wrestling how you. It's about suspension of disbelief completely because no one would actually do this. No, if you know, like when you think about how difficult. <laughs> these things actually are it's like well yeah it makes no sense that that you know like you wouldn't let yourself get lifted up into the air like it's just way too yeah you would fight you it know. with everything you're worth right but yet it is rooted in real amateur wrestling technique i mean you can german suplex someone you can suplex sure. someone who doesn't want to be suplexed but it's much more of a it's much more of an exercise in taking someone's balance away and then flipping them over at the moment. It's more of a trip. Suplexes tend to be more trips than just muscle muscle a guy into the air and dump them. I mean, there are some wrestlers who are just such absolute sick powerhouses like an Alexander yeah. Karelin where they're literally ragdolling you around and there's nothing you can do to stop. But really the art of the suplex in a lot of ways is creating a trip motion where the guy loses his footing and then you throw, much like judo. Like uh, I remember yeah. uh, Dan Severn did a German suplex at UFC 4 and, and it wasn't about lifting the guy up over your head and dropping him and folding him, it was about sort of leading him backwards until he was losing his footing and then bridging so that he had nowhere to fall right. backwards but over your entire body and crash into the canvas that way. Um, belly to belly suplex, much the same. It's about turning and creating that trip so that the guy's, the guy's footing is lost so you can launch him. Um, it's much more about that or the crotch lift, taking the footing away, not so much lifting the person off of flat feet. And... Um, and so the interpretation of that in a performance pro wrestling is just, well, let's take out the whole having to trip a guy to get him off his feet for a suplex and let's just have the guy, you know, voluntarily leave his feet, um, the person receiving the suplex. And so we get this yeah. sort of warped idea of what a suplex actually is and how you can't really do one. But in fact, if you were to do one, it really wouldn't look like that. It involves a whole lot different mechanics about balance than the pro wrestling suplexes. And, you know, anyone who's heard me talk about playing with the wrestling toys over the years, my fucking lifelong obsession is trying to make the matches with the right. toys look as realistic as possible. Right. And I'll tell you, since coming back from that intensive and observing you training, when I do a snap <laughs> suplex with the, with the toys, you better believe the emphasis is on the front flip of the guy taking it. That's right. You gotta, and that's you a shift. bend those legs. You that, bend those yep. knees. You know, there's a lot going on. It's about both jumping at the same time, right? right? Landing at the same time and the recipient taking off with the front flip. And so I focus the energy of the suplex on the person taking it, the wrestler taking it more than before, where right. I pretend the guy's pulling him up by the trunks, which is right. malarkey. Tremendous. <laughs> Robert malarkey. Robert Hayes, thanks for the pledge. And Norman Francis, thank you for the pledge. That's it. That's the deal. There it is. That's what people come for. Uh, that is the favorite segment of the show for way more people than your eye-rolling, arm-folding bitch-ass can appreciate. And mm -hmm. we're glad to do it. We're glad to bring it to you. So the Lapsed Fan uh, on Patreon, uh, send your support. Join that elite company. We do want to also make an announcement that uh, this holiday season, in addition to a cameo and a pro wrestling tee, 
why don't you get, what, what would you consider a, a hopper selection for the lapsed fan in your life? Ooh. Because while the hopper's been closed for some time and, and relatively dormant, uh, we never made the announcement that it's closed. And that day may come right. at any point, but I don't know, boss, in the spirit of giving, what do you think? Maybe one in December? I think that would be very interesting, you know, as a, a hopper gift. Sizing up the calendar, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room. You know, this, this, this season really crept up on, I think, all of us in a lot of ways. Yes. But uh, I don't know. I'm seeing, I don't know, maybe the, the 15th. Maybe. Maybe a potential maybe. there. So uh, yeah. keep your eyes peeled to our Twitter account for details on when that hopper might open. It'll just be one time. If I'm looking at this calendar correctly, we've only yes. really got the breathing room to open it one time for the holidays 2021. And if you really want to deliver for the lapsed fan in your life who always wanted to come on, select a show, and rap with the co-chairman, um, it's it's not easy, but place your bids, and uh, perhaps you can deliver a true one-of-a-kind gift to the lapsed fan mm. in your life this, this holiday season. So it's the lapsed fan on Twitter. Keep it locked for potential, no promises, but potential hopper sweepstakes opening up again in a neighborhood near you. With that, boss, we've dispensed with the necessities <clears throat> Uh, there's yes. one more to check off before we deep dive the latest in the Coliseum collection, best of WWF volume two. And that is the best of WWF volume two death toll. Indeed. And we have 25. Wow. 25, which is less than what we've seen on some of these tapes, but nonetheless, it is still nothing. And it could be more too. Uh, you know, it, it's always hard with these nameless. I mean, I'm sure some of the referees are like, yeah. you know, the, the referees from like the, the 60s and early 70s matches, I'm sure they're dead, but I don't know who the fuck they are, so they don't count. Uh, but nonetheless, we have Gorilla Monsoon, Howard Finkel, referee Joey Morella. He's there. Rocky Johnson, Dick Murdoch, Adrian Adonis, The Killer Kowalski, Sky Low Low, Billy the Kid, Chief J. Strongo, Strongbow, Strongo. Strongo? Strongo. <laughs> Didn't they fire him? <laughs> that was Strowman, sorry. That's right. That's Chief J. Strowman. <laughs> Professor Emeritus Toru Tanaka. <laughs> Lord Alfred Hayes. Paul Orndorff. The Captain Lou Albano, Gene Okerlund, the mean one, Freddie Blassie, the classy one, Bobo Brazil, Pat Patterson, the Black Demon, maybe? Oh, really? Because, I mean, well, there were several Black Demons, and I presume this is the one who is dead. Mm. There is one who is dead, and I would presume that it's that it's that it is he. You took Andre Black the Giant. Demon, wasn't he on the last week? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, oh, yeah. Black, there's Black Gordman well, and Goliath who wrestled Black Andre Demon. in the tag match, but not. The, so Black where's Demon Black Demon different. factor in here? Faces Andre the Giant. He wrestles Andre, and he's dead. <laughs> I think. I don't know. I don't. Right? Is not on this tape. Black no, there's no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In those, it's what it's in the, it's a, it's the, it's not an official match. It's in that weird, oh. you know, that that montage of of surprise finishes. Oh, oh okay, got it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Moondog King, Moondog Rex from the trial of Mis his life. That's right. <laughs> Mister Fuji uh, will investigate 
the dead Mr. Saito. Right. And Pedro Morales. Man, that's pretty grim. You said Rocky Johnson too, right? I did say Rocky Johnson. Man. Man, these are these are tough in that oh, yeah. regard. I mean, I think the first one uh, the uh, I think one of the ones early ones we other ones we did was like 30 something. Right. So this is this is this is better. Yeah, it should get better as the years go on, but what again is always so striking <clears throat> to me is when we go back to to the 80s, um the death tolls, it's like they're still relatively recent. Like Gene Okerlund just died in 2019. Yeah. yeah. You know, and you would think and, that And he, Patterson just died last year. Amazing. Orndorff just died last year. Um you would think a lot of these deaths would be sort of clustered in the late 90s or like a decade ago, but, no. you know, the, these absolute um, cornerstones are still, we're losing them these days all the time. You know, phone call worthy passings in terms of the call, right? And yeah. uh, the best of the yeah. WWF Volume 2 there, quite a grim roster. But uh, we do what we have to do. We take a pause on the other side of this break. It's time for the latest deep dive and it's into the Coliseum Collection. It's the best of the World Wrestling Federation Volume 2 coming for that ass on the other side of this break. It's TLF. 